This is the novel Just Poor by Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain, and I really, really like it. I hope that you will too. It is set in England in the late 18th century. I'm still very pleased with it, and I hope that you will enjoy it. This is Just Poor. Chapter 1. An Introduction. The table was laid for more than a feast. It had all the outward appearance of a feast. The birds had been freshly killed, the pigs slaughtered, the calves had bubbled their last breath. Cakes had been summoned from scarce flour, sugar for a year's tea had been poured into fantastic meringues, and the liquor hoarded for many Christmases had been poured into tall bottles for one expected evening. Farmer Jigger regarded the bowed table. He tugged his ear and scowled. Everything looked up to scratch, but one could never be too sure. He moved a plate. His wife snorted. He shifted it back again. What do you think? He asked finally, turning to her. Wife Jigger frowned. She was a short woman, fast crossing the line between pleasantly stout and demandingly obese. She had produced eleven children before the age of thirty, and her body still appeared to be in shock. She had had a brief bloom of beauty somewhere between the age of eleven and her second child, but the endless demands of work and babies had scraped the glow from her cheeks like a neurotic painter raging at a portrait of youth. Her purpose was production, but her purpose remained largely unfulfilled. Of her eleven pregnancies, only four came to term, and only the last had survived. Her husband had turned from an enthusiastic champion of virility to a sad spectator of fading hopes. The Jiggers had given up naming their children, calling them only Lad or Lady, in the hopes that death would have a harder time tracking the nameless. The trail had ended with the last baby, and the name had stuck for good luck. Lady was a pretty child, precocious, flirtatious, and her mother had regarded her with wondrous suspicion. She turned rather hysterically to religion, forgetting the line of tiny graves behind her in sudden joy. "'We've passed some test, husband!' she cried over and over, hugging her child in her meaty arms. Lady blossomed into a young beauty with lustrous fair hair and skin so soft, the villagers said, one could sand mist by rubbing it against her cheeks. Her possessive father shielded her from all demands of labor. She milked a little, cooked some, and spent a large amount of time walking country lanes and tossing her hair in the sunlight. Farmer Jigger watched her with a fierce, almost malevolent pride, elementally aware of the rarity of beauty in a land of want. His wife was unrestrained in her sacrifice, he made no complaint when she came to bed after midnight and rose long before dawn to make up for the lost labor. This nurturing side went almost entirely unrecognized by Lady. In the world of the village, Lady was queen. Her ragged court paid homage to her in countless ways. Flowers were laid at the jigged door, little gifts hung from branches where she walked, and the village scribe, a grubby altar boy of nine, had even turned his hand to poetry, which she constantly found tied to milk pails or cow's udders. She had never learned to read, and so turned to her best friend Mary for translation. Mary was the polar opposite of Lady, an almost 
elemental fusion could be seen when they were together. She was an orphan the discharge of a distant relative who died of scarlet fever when Mary was an infant. A passing tinker brought her to the Jigger farm. The note tied to her foot could not be read, but she was accepted into the household without question. It was a harsh world, and irregular castaways, while they could not always hope for love, could usually find shelter of some kind. Mary was a silent child who accepted praise and punishment with the same unblinking stare. She made people uneasy. Her hands were always wandering, and her face always still. When she was picked up, her little fingers would run over the smiling faces, exploring, tugging, caressing, storing sensations and textures. Wife Jigger was worried that the infant was mute, until one day, when she was carrying Mary through a field, the child had pointed and said, Cow! Quite clearly. Wife Jigger had gasped, almost dropping her in shock. Mary was six months old. By the time she was two, she could repeat the Sunday sermons back, word for word. Mary's mental abilities were sharpened by a willpower so savage that for a time she became the terror of the household. One evening she was nowhere to be found, and the whole house had been roused in a frantic effort to locate her. When the cook tore open the pantry door, Mary was sitting, staring intently at a curious arrangement of peas she had placed on the floor. There were two rows of three peas, and underneath a row of nine more. The cook understanding nothing of the mysteries of multiplication, had, in her frantic anxiety, aimed a blow at the child. Mary had raised a thin arm and warded off the hand with surprising strength, and taken one pea from the top row and three from the bottom. Then she had picked up the peas and eaten them, gazing up imperturbably at the shocked cook. Mary and Lady regarded each other at a strange distance for a time. They were almost the same age, but seemed worlds apart. As they grew up together, they grew apart, physically. While Lady seemed to spread into a gentle caricature of voluptuousness even before puberty, Mary grew up ramrod straight and unnaturally thin. She had an enormous appetite, but her mind seemed so demanding that it merely tossed leftovers at her body. Her hair was kept short because she kept taking knives to it when it interfered with her vision, while Lady's hair lengthened like a blonde shadow, at sunset. Mary never seemed to change her clothes, and the cook gave up trying to change them after discovering several biological specimens stuck in the pockets, while Lady seemed a clothes horse for her mother's endless alterations and inventions. While Lady's hair was always adorned with flowers, Mary's was adorned with the material they grew in. Both girls were teased mercilessly. Boys pulled Lady's hair longingly, they grabbed her shoes so she would chase them, they threw water at her to reveal her form. Their teasing of Mary spoke little of subverted attraction. They threw sticks at her, punched her arms, and pushed her into the ponds she studied. Mary took these insults without comment, waiting until the jeers faded in the distance before resuming her inspections. As time went by, she earned a sort of grudging respect from the boys. They never asked her to play, but whether that was due to hatred of her habits or fear of her indifference was never clear. One spring, two boys were climbing a tree to get at a bird's nest, when they suddenly realized that they could neither climb further up nor go back down. After a short span of trying to brave it out, they began crying piteously. 
Mary arrived and spent a few moments inspecting their dilemma, ignoring their cries for help. She reached down, picked up a stone, and flung it at the bird's nest. The nest wobbled, toppled, and a tiny blue egg fell out right past the two boys. They both grabbed at it, the motion dislodging them from their precarious perches. They fell with a scream, but since the distance was only about ten feet, scrambled to their feet, then burst into shocked tears. Mary muttered something under her breath, pocketed the egg she had caught, and strolled off, whistling. One boy, on hearing this story, began trying to frighten Mary. One morning, John Mudder stole up on her while she was reading in the barn and dropped a spider on her. She blinked, picked up the wriggling thing, and studied it. "'Do you know its name?' she asked, looking up at him. "'Sure,' he said scornfully. "'Billy.' "'You're wrong.' Mary replied. It's an arachnid, part of the arachnid family anyway. Thank you. Huh? I had one, but uh, it escaped. You're weird. It's true. So, if you're not as scared of spiders, the boy said, throwing himself down in the hay and sneezing, what are you as scared of? Mary frowned. You frighten me. There's nothing to be as scared of about me, girlie, said John, looking pleased. Why would I scare you? "'Because the only thing that frightens me is stupidity,' Mary replied, shaking her head slightly and walking off. John frowned, chewing on a stalk, then rolled off the hay and ran after Mary. Suddenly she found herself flung forward on the ground. "'What was the point of that?' she asked, standing up and brushing her ragged dress. "'You're bigger than me, but we already knew that.' "'You're just a little girl,' the boy had said, scowling suddenly. So why did you push me over? He blinks. Why not? I'll tell you why not, said Mary with a rare smile, stepping forward. Because if you don't push me over, I'll teach you all about spiders. Yuck! Who'd want to stick around with a girly poking at bugs? Mary's smile disappeared. It was not replaced by anything. It simply vanished from her face, like a shadow under a passing cloud. When she turned to go, of course, he leapt after her and threw her down again. Whether Mary was beginning to understand anything other than spiders and peas was unclear. Her face remained strangely stable. But a change slowly overcame her. She began to give the odd impression of shrinking as she grew. Her eyes became less curious and more intense. A strange, waiting energy hung around her, like the mutterings of an impatient lineup. Sometimes when the household was at dinner, there would be a clatter of cutlery at the rough-hewn children's table, and they would all turn to see Mary staring into space, her cheeks reddening, and the room would grow silent, as if fading in the sound of distant thunder. While they watched, Mary would blink, pick up her fork in a trembling hand, and attack her food once more. Conversation was always a little limp after such occurrences, despite ladies' near-constant giggling. Wife Jigger became a little afraid of Mary, but took extra care to hide it. She was a powerfully instinctive woman whose maternal perceptiveness seemed designed for an immense family. The depths of her perceptions being focused on only two children grew almost supernaturally acute, and she was prone to scolding them for transgressions they were only starting to contemplate. When they were twelve, 
Lady sat with Mary on a fence out by the backfields and listened to her first talk of the future. It was a beautiful day. They had finished their chores early in expectation of miracles. They sat gazing at the endless spread of the land, the men toiling in the distant fields, the jackdaws wheeling and diving to the rutted earth. The sight gave a luxuriously contemplative air to the unfolding young minds. Well, one of them anyway. That Jack, he's your boyfriend, giggled Lady, pointing at the hunchback, passing like a whale through the wheat. Mary didn't reply, but sat with her hands folded in her lap, staring out over the waving fields. That Todd in the village, he sent me another poem, said Lady, tugging at the pocket of her dress. Read it to me. Not now, Lady, murmured Mary, her eyes distant. Lady pouted. Oh, Pooh, you said, let's go to the back fence and watch the clouds. Well, now we're here, and I want you to read it to me. Why? You don't even like him. He's, you know, he's he's funny. It's, it's funny what he writes. Not to him. He loves you. Oh, don't they all? Giggled Lady. And that's all they'll ever do, isn't it? What? All their lives they have so few feelings, and here they are wasting them on one spoiled little girl. Who's spoiled? And I don't see it such a waste, said Lady. Don't you imagine that there's a great army over that last hill, said Mary suddenly, pointing at the horizon. Don't you think that they're kneeling in a field, swords glittering and muskets raised, just waiting for the signal to charge? You silly, what would they charge for? Because everyone has a father's till, even an army. They're probably looking over here and thinking, there is a fabulous kingdom, rich in gold and open for plunder. Can't you almost see them trembling, waiting, their metal shivering, shaking the sun's rays? Oh, how I wish they would come and take me away, she cried. A fine figure you'd cut in an army, said Lady, stroking her golden locks. You'd be set to carrying water and washing their feet when they'd been marching all day. Oh, that would be all right, murmured Mary, as long as I could march with them. There was a short silence. "'John Mutter was mean about you yesterday,' said Lady after a while. Mary shifted. "'What did he say?' "'That you are nothing with no family, and that someone has to teach you what that means.' "'Oh.' "'He said it many times, that someone has to teach you what that means. "'What does he mean?' "'He means that he thinks himself something, and he hates anyone who disagrees. "'Because he's not much of anything.' He's very strong. He hung from a tree branch for the longest time. Yes, whispered Mary. He's very strong. Does that frighten you? asked Lady, turning to look at her friend. Mary didn't answer for a moment. Her thin face was pale, taut, and her hands slowly clenched in her lap. No, she said finally. Not that he's strong, but that he may be right. Maybe I am nothing. "'Well, looky here, it's the girlies!' cried a frighteningly exuberant voice. Mary whipped her head around and saw John walking along the fence, his arms wagging from side to side. "'Well, well!' cried John. "'The spider and the princess! What a pretty fairy tale!' A sudden shove from behind sent Mary spinning off the fence. She landed in the dirt with a thump, tasting blood from her lip. She turned around and saw Clive standing on the other side, his hands stuck in his pockets, grinning madly. Quite a win today, hey, girlie, he said. 
Mary stood up silently and dusted her dress. Clive was John's shadow, a weak boy who only needed the permission of a stronger soul to become darker. "'What did you do that for?' asked Lady. "'Because we takes a notion,' said John, leaping off the fence and walking forward. A piece of wheat jutted out from his mouth, wagging as he spoke. "'And what is the weight of this little girlie?' he asked, sneering at Mary. "'A wind blows and she flies off the fence, fat head and all.' "'Oh, leave her alone, John, you're so mean!' cried Lady. He turned to her and grinned. "'You, my pretty, you don't know what's good for you, hanging around with this son when there's already those that'd show you what's what.' "'I know what's what,' cried Lady. "'I know that it's mean to push a girl, and not very gentlemanly.' "'No, no, no, no,' thought Mary. "'Don't say that.' John's cheeks flushed. "'Is that what you say?' he demanded. "'I don't push no nice girls, but those that ain't nice gets no protections from me.' I know what a gentleman is. It's not all in your picture books. A gentleman is him that takes the time to set things right. And when someone steps out of line, then wham, he lets them have it for their own good. The son, he said, jabbing a finger at Mary, the son, she don't know what's what. She's parading all airs when she don't have no brothers, no father, no mother. She's making out like she's better than the rest of us put together because she can read and talk back. But that's not what's what. What's what is that don't make anyone better than anyone else, because she don't have no family that makes her not talk back, because she don't know what's what. You leave her be, cried Lady. She needs to know what's what. And as a mere favour, I might see my way clear to showing her, leered John, rising to full height. Let me, cried Clive, leaping over the fence. That's as we'll see fit to say, replied John. He walked over to Mary and stood with his hands bunched in his pockets. So, Missy girl, are you going to tell me what's what? She stood there silently, staring at him. John took a step back between his teeth. Ah, to tell what's what, ain't it, especially when you got no family to tell you. I'll tell you some, though, and we'll see if you're smart enough to figure out the rest. He leapt forward, suddenly pinning Mary's head in the crook of his elbow. She did not resist. Her eyes narrowed. Lady gasped and leapt forward but found herself pinned by Clive. "'Here's a sample of what's what,' growled John, his lips very close to her ear. "'When someone tells you what to do, you do it. With no words, no books, no whys. When I tells you something, you just nod and say, "'That's very clever, Master John. I wish I'd have thought of it. Can you do that, girlie?' he asked, grabbing her hair tightly with his free hand. "'Can you nod for your Uncle John?' Mary closed her eyes. "'Can you nod for your Uncle John?' he repeated, yanking her head back and forth. "'There, you see, I already got you started. It's not so hard when you think about it. "'And you know,' he said, continuing the motion, "'since I know you like the wise, I'll give you some. "'You nod because you got no family. "'You nod because there's no one and nothing looking out for you.' You nod because you're a girly, and that's what girlies do when someone tells them what's what. And the simplest is why you nod for me. You nod for me because I say so. And if you think that's not good enough, I've no choice but to take it as a very personal insult. He finished, using the rhythm of his last words to yank her head even more viciously. Then he released her and let her fall in a heap on the ground. And that he whispered, bending over her in mad glee, is what's what?
Mary rose slowly, welts rising on her neck. She looked at John, and suddenly he felt unsteady, as if she were not looking at him, but rather through him, or beyond him, to some vast puppet-master who controlled his every move. It was a moment he was to remember for a long time. As an adult, when the true scope of what Mary was capable of was becoming clear, he often woke from a dream of that gaze, his sheets soaking wet. I know what's what, and what is not, she said slowly, distinctly, with the simplicity of great clarity. And you are not. He exhaled in a great whoosh, taking a step backward. His eyebrows knotted together. Suddenly, with all the might of his sturdy young frame, he lashed out and punched Mary full in the stomach. She doubled over, tottering on thin legs, then fell over sideways, her face slamming into the ground. There was a shocked silence, broken only by the strangled sounds of Mary laboring for breath. Lady turned, her pale face aside. "'Never say that again!' screamed John, dancing around nervously. If you even think it, I'll know, and I'll make you pay you nothing. You think you can say that to me? I am everything. You are nothing but doing what you're told, and you and you better do nothing but what you're told, nothing else your whole life long. Your mama and your mummy and daddy gave you away because they didn't want you, and that means you keep your mouth shut. No one steps aside. Do you understand me? You nothing. None step away. Everybody stays right where they are, and that's with me up here and you down there in the dirt. Do you hear me, girly? Don't try to change nothing, or this is what you'll get, and more. John's face was flushed. He panted as he spoke. His words roused him to frenzy, and he drew his foot back for a kick. Mary watched him from the ground and slowly closed her eyes. An odd shadow suddenly drifted over the tableau. A large, flat rock came out of nowhere and landed with a dull whap on John's cheek. "'Go on, you little bullying crumb!' cried a raspy voice. The children turned and saw knotted Bob standing on the other side of the fence. "'Go on, you milkmaid, you side order! Go back to your hovel and leave the ladies in peace!' cried knotted Bob. Or I'll toast you both sides, inside and out. John put a hand to his cheek and stared at the old man, a supernatural horror in his eyes. He turned without a second thought and sprinted away over the fields, falling, scrambling, and running again, only slightly behind his shadow, who had released Lady at the first sound of the old man's voice and bolted too. "'You all right, younger?' asked knotted Bob, opening the gate and levering his twisted frame over to Mary. "'Just... Nothing we were playing, said Mary, wiping the blood from her lips. Ha, huh, yes, but you can't gaffer gaffer, rasped the old man, helping her up. That sort of play the world can live on less of. You, sunshine, go on and get some water and rag and tail it like a rabbit, he added to Lady, who turned and flew away only slightly less rapidly than the two boys. When Mary had composed herself, she turned to her saviour. Not at Bob leaned over her, his rough face softened in concern. Knotted Bob was sort of a living monument to the idea that human beings are capable of being indecently exposed to time. His nickname came from the strange gesticulations that erupted from his passionate need to be understood, despite his crippling arthritis. He was in charge of the milkmaids, having grown too old to be a shepherd, and he had been put out to pasture 
with those considered even more domesticated than sheep. Not that Bob had no last name, even the thought that he had once been fathered caused misty visions of eternity to rise in people's heads. He had never married, which, to some, was further evidence of his oddness, for it was whispered that no man should have the wisdom to make such an intelligent decision before reaching the age which made it redundant. Others argued that he had not married because his arthritis had struck young, for even wife Jigger could not remember a time when knotted Bob had been able to strike the dinner gong without the odd creaking sound his joints made being audible from the kitchen. For all that, though, Knotted Bob had retained a savage desire for life, as if he had accepted the burden of his physique only on the condition that he would be required to worry about nothing else. His still active convolutions at the county dances made him a local celebrity, and he was the recipient of much attention from the younger women who greatly valued the chance to practice their charming arts on a disposable canvas, so to speak. His gallant ease with women was the natural result of a man who has never had to raise his voice to one. Were it not for his kaleidoscopic body, Knotted Bob would have been the recipient of a good deal of resentment from other men. As it was, fortunately, they saw him as the only kind of gentleman they admired, a harmless one. Only a few of them realized that Knotted Bob was, in fact, the last revenge of romantic bachelorhood, which is to raise the expectations of wives to the point where their husbands were open to attack, if they did not traipse through the fields with flowers for their lovelies at least once a month. The few who had the sensitivity to realize this, of course, were a little troubled by it, for they were also smart enough to preempt such chivalric demands by regular maintenance of the romantic ideals of their wives. The women, in turn, met them halfway, greeting their gifts of meat, wheat, and news of new piglets, with the air of those who receive French chocolates procured by long and hazardous journeys. Mary had been aware of Knotted Bob's attention for a long time. One of her earliest memories was of the creaking of her crib as he rocked it far into the night. It wasn't until she was much older that she realized that the sound actually came from his elbow. During one of her dinner-time revelations, he had looked at her for a long time, after the others had resumed their conversation, gazing at her with the air of one who waits for understanding. Not his own, but the object of his observation. She was intensely embarrassed by his scrutiny, by her youthful inability to answer his silent question. But when she saw him, he held her gaze for only a moment before turning back to his food, with a shrug that said only, Not yet. As she grew, Mary began to withdraw from her life. Knotted Bob was the first to notice, but it wasn't long before her gradual diminishment began to be evident to all. The demands of her intelligence could not be slowed or vanquished. It was as if seeing her surroundings in such a blazing way, the only survival she could find was to turn her wick down to its lowest level. Her eyes grew at once hysterical and listless, and she often seemed to sort of halt, as if waiting for something. She became careless and forgetful. Sometimes she would stare at her bucket of milk for hours, as if awaiting a vision. This slowness began to be combined with an almost supernatural irritability. 
Many times as she was ascending the steps to yet another pre-dawn breakfast, she could be heard muttering under her breath, and she would become distracted at the table by the shape of her food or the colour of her plate, and would suddenly look up her cheeks red to discover that uh, everyone had left. To many she appeared almost simple. The tales of her early prodigality were all but forgotten, and she began to be regarded as someone who had squandered her life's ration of common sense in premature displays of pointless ability. She irritated those around her. She had to be forced to do her chores, and went about them with a resentfully hesitant air. Whenever external pressures ceased, she fell slack at once, her eyes turning dull and introspective. She became sullen, furtive, and stole knick-knacks on occasion. Wife Jigger caught her once, when she had stolen a goose egg, and had been utterly perplexed as to why someone would steal something so worthless, and keep it under her pillow besides, until it cracked and betrayed the stench to the whole house. Mary did not respond to Wife Jigger's persistent questioning, sitting on her bed and picking at her blanket, face red and voice low, relaying in a monotonous tone, preposterous lies and justifications for her theft. The absurdity of the girl's replies drove the woman to distraction, and almost to violence. But when she finally raised her hand to the girl, Mary stared up with such a vengeful spite in her eyes that wife Jigger positively shuddered. Her vast spread of maternal feeling began to flow around Mary, as if the girl were a sharp rock in a wide river. The more she tried to apply love, the more Mary seemed to resent her. One night, when she came up to tell Mary a bedtime story, the youngster pulled her blanket up to her eyes and stared at the older woman, her eyes wide and red. How to think of stupid stories in the midst of this, cried Mary, her lips trembling. In the midst of what, dear? Wife Jigger asked with the cloying concern that comes from resisting an urge to smack "'All this, all of you,' Mary said, turning her face to the cracked white wall. "'Whatever is the matter with you?' asked wife Jigger. "'You have a good home, which is more than most orphans can hope for.' "'There is no good home,' Mary replied, her hands wandering over a mottled and much-mended blanket. "'What are you saying? You have enough to eat. Lord knows you aren't burdened by many chores, and there is enough cheer in this house to brighten a Russian.' How can you be so murky about it all? Because, replied Mary, still staring at the wall, because it is boring. Well, if it's time you have on your hands, there's the south fence to be mended, the cattle to be bled, the well rope to be replaced. Better not send me there. <laughs> like as not, I would throw myself down, said Mary, with a strained laugh. But why? Why not? cried Mary. Why? Because for the rest of my life I have little more to look forward to than pricking cattle and weaving ropes. Oh, my girl, that's scarcely all, exclaimed wife Jigger. You're growing up a strong lass. You have a whole life of children and husband ahead of you. You're thirteen already. It's not all chores, you know, she said with a wink. But she stopped all of a sudden because Mary shuddered in almost tangible revulsion. You'll make me sick, she cried. The boy's here to be a drudge for the stupid, to breed stupidity and answer stupidity with nods and smiles. 
Wife Jigger took a deep breath. To her view of life, Mary had just committed blasphemy. Then what is it you want to be? She asked finally. Sure enough, there's not a mess of choice. We must be content with our lot. I know that, said Mary. I know what I am built for, what I was born for. I don't have to like it. What else would you have? But the young girl did not reply. She just stared at the wall. Then perhaps there is nothing to do, she said softly. But nothing. Ah, that's your spite talking, said Wife Jigger, rising to leave. The world may not fit all who wear it, but there's no use fighting the seams. Else soon that's all you'll see. To some, that's all there is, replied Mary, biting on her thin sheets. Then that's all they look for, said Wife Jigger decisively, leaning over and turning down the lamp. Now get some rest. It's a big day tomorrow. Why, sun rising earlier? No, child, sighed Wife Jigger. Lord Lawrence is coming to dinner. Mary's eyes lit up at once. She started up feverishly, her fists knotting over her covers. Is it true what they say? She asked. Is he very rich? Richest I've seen. Which is not too rich, mind you, but then they tell of wealth, and so I think. Rich enough for you, no doubt. Why is he coming? Uh, every year he came since he was a little boy. You're too young to remember. Now, though, for the past four years he's been abroad. She grinned excitedly, her hands on her cheeks. A broad child. And now he's come back to take over his lands, which have been run by his mother since his good father died, uh, six years ago now. Where has he been? Asked Mary, her eyes wide. Where has he been? Exclaimed Wife Jigger, sitting down again on the bed and sighing happily. Overseas, over many seas, to uh, Italy, to France, uh, and other such countries. Uh, four years of travel he has under his belt. Oh, I saw him the other day in the village. Gosh, but what a fine figure he cut. I remember his father when he was young, and young Lawrence is the spitting image. Spitting. Just as a lord should look, I dare say. <laughs> He's been up to some adventures abroad. That much, I can guess. His cheeks are so fair, and his eyes dance like fairies. It's a God-given vitality, no question. Some of the upper folk get all plumpy and angry, but not him. He's lost weight. He used to be quite a chubby lad. Not that I'd remind him now, except as a joke. But he's grown so straight and tall that you'd never know. He once had trouble getting over a fence. <laughs> All the women have a new pillow made, I dare say. All worship him like the good Lord, she said, crossing herself. And though it may be blasphemy, it's hard to complain. Just the other day, I heard how he had rescued a girl from the rain. He put her in his carriage and danced alongside it. It's quite tiny, you see. And just danced alongside it in the rain, laughing and, and making jokes. Oh, that girl, she can live forever on that day, though God have mercy on her husband, who has no carriage nor even a horse. Still, there's life here now. Our Lord has returned. The girls all put a bounce in their step, and they look so pretty. They wear flowers in their hair and rub themselves with sweet herbs. <laughs> Listen to me getting quite out of breath, but husband isn't around, so it's all right to be out of breath, laughed wife Jigger, patting her heaving bosom. So, listen, child, you you put aside your frowns for one day and, and come to dinner dressed in your best. We'll see what we can find, one of ladies' old frocks, perhaps. And you laugh when he does, and maybe we can put in that you can read, and perhaps this will do some good. I know Clem's full of talk about some farming methods the good Lord picked up uh, abroad in Holland, I think, and perhaps something can come for you there. Wife Jigger's excited speech was cut short by a bellow from downstairs. Wife! Oh, that's me, 
giggled wife Jigger, standing hurriedly and brushing her hair back from her flushed cheeks. Good night, sweet child. Sleep well, and look forward to the future. Mary lay, staring up into the darkness long after wife Jigger had gone. Unrealized greatness, how it worships the pomp of privilege. Her heart pounded in her throat like a beaten horse, glimpsing the barn door ajar. He will know, she thought rapidly, visions of halos and crowns dancing in her head. He will be beautiful, and he will look past my grubby dress and trembling hands and see my true soul, my hidden heart. Her intelligence, roused like a snake after a long slumber, fastened its fangs on the image of the Lord's outstretched hand. Oh, such a mansion he will have, she thought, such trinkets hidden in the library where one might live, quiet and unheard as a mouse, scurrying from book to book in the midnight hours. So many rooms. One might get lost in the cobwebs, hidden deep among old furniture and dust. Mm, occasionally he will ask me to dinner and ask me what I have learned, and I will talk him to the moon, and the wine will sparkle in her glasses, and I will leave him polishing his spectacles and shaking his head in wonder at his hidden guest. Outside, an owl hooted deep in a tree. Mary pulled her blankets over her head. And sometimes I will be in the garden, resting from my studies, pruning peach trees and wearing a big white hat and he will ride up on a horse with another beside him, and we will go thundering through his woods, and then there will be no talk of books or deep thoughts, only the thudding of wild hooves and the ducking of branches as we fly past. And once, in a very great while, we will come to a clearing with a big wide pool, and under the shade of the leaves his laughing passion will get the better of him, yet so gently, and he will kiss me softly on the lips, and on his lips I will taste all the admiration I deserve, all the wonder that is myself, and the future will widen like avenues of fire parting before a shudder of spring wind. How his hair will slip between my fingers, how the leaves it has gathered will fall about us, how he will bear me down on the soft heather and open me to the skies above. Mary's breath was coming short, a sudden elemental restraint cut through her wild thoughts, slicing like a dark knife through her web of soft pictures. How shallow he could be, she thought. How his laughter might be nothing more than a froth on a rivulet, a gaudy spinning heartiness around a tiny narrow parcel. And what of his looks, and all those other women? And with that, her breath almost stopped. What of his clothes and, and hair? What if he should care about them? What if, lost in lies, he sees nothing but falsehood in others? What if, and this was the worst, what if tomorrow night his eyes barely slide over the ragged little girl at the children's table? She felt an awful sinking sensation in her stomach at the last thought. If I could only grow two feet by morning, it would be a start. Or have ladies' hair. He will surely notice her hair, even pass his hands through it and remark what a wonderful bedspread it would make if woven. Mary shuddered, closing her eyes tightly. All through the night, Mary watched the shadows shifting over the ceiling, wondering what movements he would have to make in the garden to produce such shapes.
Chapter 2. A Son Returns to a Different Home Lord Lawrence Carvey was a creature of boundless energy, whose every gesture sprang from the kind of certainty that can only come from taking entirely too many things for granted. When he leaned against the wall and talked, it was with such ease that weaker wills seemed to fall in line like salmon before a strong current. His eyes were focused, sharply kind, and radiated such a sense of purpose that one could find oneself agreeing that the world was indeed flat, and, moreover, one could repeat such observations with the same subtle earnestness and find oneself oddly irritated if they were opposed. Lawrence was raised by his mother and sister. His father had been a great traveller, and his son had become the focus of those odd kinds of feminine obsessions that naturally unfold when the expected roles of wife and daughter remain unfulfilled. His childhood was a long stretch of bidding and lazing, of days lying on couches with picture books and finger puppets, and nights of breathy abandon with the wilder boys of his clan. Such a coalescing of all that is pleasurable, so few demands and so much desire, so much the centre of cloaking femininity. Is it surprising at all that Lord Lawrence had grown up with such an ease of manner? In many men such pampering would have decayed their sense of purpose to feeble sequences of pale demands and flushed rejections, but Lord Lawrence had grown into a beautiful young man who impressed all he met, a theoretician of social ills and earnest devotee of the new philosophies, a man who diagnosed his class and performed verbal post-mortems on social ills with pale-cheeked matrons whose teacups rattled with the soft intensity of his speeches. Here is a man of conscience, they thought with daring admiration. Here is such an improbable amalgam of power and possibility that he is capable of anything he sets his mind to. The young god of the oldest pantheon was tall, with dark hair that hung in tight curls. His cheeks swept in flowing ridges from ear to hollow. His lips were precise and relaxed, and his hands wonderfully expressive. When he talked, they fluttered quickly, outlining plans and thoughts like racing doves. He was quick, but not quick-tempered. He was an aficionado of Plato. Aristotle had bored him immensely. And like that old master, he had developed the art of erecting ideas on clouds with such breathtaking elegance that they seemed more real than the dessert plates which trembled in his listeners' hands. For all that, Lord Lawrence was a man who prided himself on his practicality. Taking his cue from the integration of the Greeks, he applied his intellect to practical problems with the same energy he used to sculpt abstractions. First and foremost, he learned the arts of agriculture, for, as he often said, if masters were not to earn their keep by education, then servants had every right to cut their throats at night. Such observations, uttered with an intensely earnest air, made his female listeners positively shudder, though perhaps more at the thought of the young lord entering their rooms at night than murderous servants beating down their doors. Relations with his father had been strained, but not unpleasant. 
The elder Lord Carvey had been a rambler who had long mourned the final discoveries of the known world. Rather than waste his time exploring discovered geography, he had plunged into a hearty but confused study of Eastern religions, producing an impressive tome shortly before his death, a work universally admired for its ability to show well on a bookcase. Lord Carvey had devoted the majority of his work to graphic descriptions of Eastern sexual mysteries. These sections were written with just enough departure from objective opinion to give the impression of a man whose interests as a scholar had succumbed to his enthusiasm as a tourist during his surveys of the fleshy realms. His book was always kept on the third or fourth shelf for the sake of the children, which had the effect of turning it from a work of investigative theology to a handbook of practical physics, so earnestly did youngsters devise ways of reaching it. A favorite trick of young wags was to take the book from the shelf while visiting relatives and let it fall open in their hands, since it inevitably widened to rather vivid prints of ritual sensuality, it created good opportunities to wiggle eyebrows and say, mmm, and aha. Lawrence's mother, Lady Barbara Carvey, had found the book quite disgusting, because it gave the erroneous impression that she was an enormously fortunate woman. She found herself forced to meet the inevitable question of, does he really? with acute and stony stares. To her profound relief, her husband had not approached her in that way for many years. He actually seemed quite relieved that his firstborn was such a spectacularly healthy boy, for it absolved him of the responsibility of grunting his way through the indignity of future sowings of seeds. This had been no great loss to Barbara, although initially quite curious, she'd been disappointed by the awkwardness of it all. That, and the odd desire of her husband to keep his hat on during the act, had quite snuffed any latent desires she may have had. They had married, as a matter of course, to avoid stigma and to make entertaining easier to organize. Their bond had been one of companionship. They had made their aims clear from the beginning, and would have regarded any attempt at passion with the vague distaste of watching someone embellish a white lie. Barbara had always been a solitary woman who enjoyed reading and vigorous walks, and her marriage suited her perfectly. Those of her companions who threw themselves into stormy affairs seemed, to Barbara, to be rather missing the point of life, which was to live quietly and pleasantly. She regarded the endless soul-searching and torrid impulses that constantly shook her friends with the complacency of a large vessel, the watches rowboats smashing against rocks during a violent storm. Why ride the silly things? was her constant, though silent, question. The third part of the Carvey family was Lawrence's sister, Lady Kay. She was two years older than Lawrence, and had an appearance that combined the demandingly hesitant impositions of a live-in spinster with the unbearable sensitivity of a poetic child. Her face was long and pale and drawn. A white skinny horse was how Lawrence had described her in a rare moment of cruelty. Her hair was flat to the point of paint and hung below her ears like a broken awning. Her eyes, however, did a lot to make up for such defects. They were sensitive without being soppy, 
and were prone to wonderful shifts of mood that almost seemed to change their hue. Kay's favorite word was kind, and she had spent most of her young life lamenting its absence. Certain souls have the misfortune to adhere to ideas that act as a constant friction against their natural state, and Kay was one of those. She was by nature quite uncomplicated, but had a romantic streak, and so found herself torn between common sense and self-dramatization. She believed that passion was the unconscious pursuit of dark secrets and undefined longings, and so spent a good deal of her teenage years yearning after various things. She had yearned for travel, gotten seasick going to France, yearned for the continent before being robbed in her pensione, yearned for Frenchmen before discovering they smelled, yearned for freedom before discovering that most suffragettes were rude, yearned for poverty before discovering it was dusty, and now believed herself to be in a sorry state of suspended desire and denied expectations. Kay spent an oddly dreamy four years while Lawrence was away. Plans came and went, inspiration trailed off into lassitude, and she began marking off her calendar over a year before he was due home. If she requestioned long and hard, Kay would have admitted that everything she did was for the sake of her brother's return. I read Gibbons to talk with Lawrence about Rome. I study father's book to talk about religion. I learn about architecture to argue the merits of the Taj Mahal. He had visited it, of course. She had filed his letters alphabetically by location. I know where he stands, the progress and evolution of his thought, the impressions of his visitations, and when he returns, we shall talk far into every night. At the same time, though, a strange dread began growing in her. As her brother's return grew imminent, Kay became confused and nervous. Her diary sprang fascinating backwards pages as Kay frantically attempted to live her life retroactively. Here we went to the old ruins, and, oh yes, there we went to Land's End, and had the most fascinating talk with an old lighthouse keeper. Such stories he had of storms and imagined invasions. So much to tell you, Lawrence. And by the way, how was your trip? Of course they would laugh, sitting there on the couch, and there would be lazy curtains swaying in the breeze. Still, Kay could not repress the dread in her heart. A crushing tension seemed to take hold of her, and she spent many hours sitting by the window of her room, gazing over the hills to the distant forests. And at such times she could have sworn with her whole soul that there was not another person in the entire world, that they had vanished, and she waited only for a phantom that would never come. Tears came to her strangely then, tears that seemed too coarse from the tearing of an endless fabric, tears with no sense or or purpose or release. And at times she would find herself in the grip of exoring exaltation, and an urge to shout would rise in her breast. But again, to what purpose? Yet for all Kay's hopes and fears, Lawrence's return would affect most the girl who learned of it last, Mary O'Donnell. Chapter 3. A Fatal Banishing Lawrence was to dine at each of the farmhouses. A schedule was 
sent out as soon as he returned, and Farmer Jiggers was to be his first stop. The old farmer was a central pillar of village life, and Lawrence knew that his plans would only succeed if they met with the old farmer's approval. When the young lord finally arrived, after a week of frantic preparation on the part of wife Jigger, he was met by Farmer Jigger at the front gate. The girls' faces were all squeezed into the narrow window of their communal room, except for Mary's. She was sitting in a corner, frantically knotting the threads of a hastily repaired dress given to her by wife Jigger. Lady had trimmed Mary's hair savagely short, of necessity, since she was always hacking it off. Mary's face was tight and nervous, and she kept casting frightened glances at the girls squeezed around the window. "'Lord, I bet he's as handsome as he's spoken of,' gushed Gwen, who was a short and slightly plump girl given to excessive, albeit utterly untested, flirtation. "'We are the luckiest around,' agreed Lady, brushing back her hair. "'Some lords have pimples and big behinds, and thunder around pinching maids and shouting, "'Where's my grog?' she said, lurching around and making the other girls giggle. Lady had been carefully arranged for the evening, and was aware of her looks enough to keep from tugging at her clothes. Wife Jigger had given her a whole plate of berries to eat to redden her lips, and had brushed the girl's hair incessantly, vaguely indicating that, you never know. Everyone was standing at the table by the time Farmer Jigger showed Lord Lawrence in. The long, low table was bright with polished ancient silverware, and thick tallow candles glowed in rows between the steaming bowls of meat and potatoes. The impressiveness of the young man's demeanor caused a half-second pause in the rising of the girls, and the shift of air was almost palpable as they all drew her breath. Lady stood at the adult's table, and she gazed at Lawrence through a low fringe of hair, Lawrence's gaze hung on her for a brief moment, then he grinned, as if sharing a secret joke. Girls, said Farmer Jigger, yanking up his trousers. He had his good pair on, but no belt. Say hello to Lord Lawrence Carvey. The room gusted with breathy greeting. What a splendid spread, cried Lawrence, taking his seat and gazing around with a broad smile. Everyone sat down. There is great pleasure in foreign food, but to return to native cooking is a joy beyond compare. It certainly is the best we have to offer, laughed Wife Jigger, but barely good enough for you, I'll say. There is a pleasure in homely hospitality that even the finest foreign meal cannot touch, said Lawrence, buttering a hunk of thick bread yellow in the candlelight. And to experience it again after four years, ah! Such a pleasure. I see no unfamiliar faces here except... Hello. Who is that young lad? Mary paled. She had been trying to catch Lawrence's attention since the moment he entered, her eyes fairly itching with the intensity of her gaze. Now he sat, smiling at her, and suddenly she felt a vast chasm of shame open within her, the tallest girl at the children's table. She turned for a moment, feeling old eyes upon her, and saw... Knotted Bob, staring at her from the adult's table. "'I should be ashamed to be a boy,' she said coldly, looking at her plate, her heart throbbing painfully. "'That's young Mary,' said Farmer Jigger with an easy smile and a warning glare. "'You might not remember her. She was just a whipper when you left.' 
Mary, exclaimed Lawrence, frowning. Ah, yes, the clever one. Well, even clever girls can let their hair grow, hm? Now, as I was saying, he continued, turning to the room at large, I have been gone for four years, and in that time I have travelled much of the world, this side of the Pacific Ocean, through France, Spain, down to Italy, Turkey, north, into Russia and Poland, and Holland. I came back across the North Sea over Sweden, and arrived in London two weeks ago. Most of what I saw would mean little to you, but a few things, with luck, will affect you greatly. That's what I want to talk about tonight, here, over this wonderful feast with you. With your permission, he said to Farmer Jigger with a smile. The farmer grinned and spread his hands. If it affects him with something more than laughter, you're welcome to try. Thank you, said Lawrence gratefully, spooning some mortar-like mashed potatoes onto his plate. Now, I want to say a few things before we start. Some of what I say may seem confusing, or even frightening, but if you have the patience to hear me, or are just curious about what is happening in the world, I will forever be in your debt. Lawrence took a sip of water and smoothed his sideburns. He took a moment to consider his words, then started speaking. I will start with something dramatic, which is bound to get your attention. The world you have known, the world you have inherited, the world that has existed as long as men can remember, is coming to an end. For thousands of years we have consumed almost a third of what we grew. But in various places around the world, men have found ways to change that. In Holland, ordinary farmers have discovered ways to harvest ten times what they eat. Ten times. I say it again because I didn't believe it myself at first, laughed Lawrence. The land is our friend, but she is a fickle friend who cannot be trusted to reward hard work. We all know those who have starved for want of food, though they planted well and harvested quickly. We are nature's slaves, not her master. An early frost, a dry summer, a rainy autumn, or simply too many hungry birds, and we're all gnawing the bark off the trees come Lent. The young man smiled. Ah, he could have been talking of the moon for all the milkmaids cared, for all his eyes gleamed. Wife Jigger wanted to tell him to keep passing the potatoes, but didn't dare interrupt. I have come to tell you, he continued, that we can now do better, if we work for it. I'm not going to get into the whys and wherefores of how all this is achieved. Let it suffice to say that it involves using better breeds of crops, rotating them to use the land differently each year, using the new seed drill, adding limestone to the soil to reduce acidity, using more cover crops in the winter, building irrigation and so forth. All that you can understand, probably better than I can. But what I desperately, he put great emphasis on the word, need is your courage and commitment to the changes I want to make. The girls all leaned forward, brushing their cuffs from their hands and baring their thin wrists. You all remember my father with respect and love, as I do. But my father was from the old world. His ways were short-sighted. He spent more than he made. 
he was what is now called an absentee landlord, which means he spent more time in his study than in the fields. And as a result, this is the only prosperous farm in all his lands. I'm sure you know the others, the Mundys and the Brackenborns. You know that they have crust for breakfast and dinner and pray with all their might to last through to spring. I want you to be generous enough to share some of your good fortune by leading the way to wealth. I have seen enough of your generosity to know that it will be an easy choice to make. I know that you give of your food and clothes freely, and that no unchristian thought stands between your bounty and the needs of your neighbors. Lawrence leaned forward. I also know that if I ask you to trust me, you will do so. I know all this because together we can become the pride of England and the envy of all other countries. And who knows? Perhaps we can all do our small part in making the world a better place. What the boy is saying, said Farmer Jigger easily, and what he ain't mentioning in all his stirring talk, is that he'll expect ye to break your backs for him on his say-so alone. If I may. Lawrence laughed. Yes, well, thank you, Farmer Jigger, for making the point clearer and my task harder. Yes, like all good things, what I ask will be hard. At first, you will have to learn some of what I know, for I don't want you laboring in the dark. Otherwise, I couldn't complain if you threw stones at me. Giddy laughter, the laughter of girls who wanted to throw more than stones at him. Mary did not join in. Strange passions were rising in her breast. She found it difficult to breathe or or concentrate. Something about the young man, something in his easy certainty and hearty appetite, something. She could not say what, but her whole soul revolted against him, and she clutched her cutlery tightly, afraid of her desire to do damage. As the meal got underway, an image rose in Mary's mind as she sat as a hated children's table. A bloated, terrible figure which loomed into her mind's eye like a heavy eclipse. Mary had read of the elephant once, a huge beast which terrified all who beheld it. There was no picture of the frightful monster, but Mary felt that it was among them now, hanging over the beautiful dinner table like an enormous, fleshy storm cloud. The girl's hands swerved slightly to avoid its legs as they passed plates of sweets to Lawrence. They let their bangs hang forward as if to ward off the glare of its terrible eyes. It was the invisibility of the elephant that terrified Mary the most. It hung as silent as the carved channels of the conversation, the burning aisles of truth that friendly words parted before to leave in peace. The elephant was fear. Fear of Lawrence and his power. But everyone laughed and joked as if he were a beloved friend, a a bright courting youth. Mary shuddered, unable to swallow. He was a fine-looking man. Crumbs of bread hung like scraps of pale gold in his tailored beard. And as he wiped his laughing mouth, the skin stretched over his prominent cheekbones. She saw through his finely hollowed cheeks, 
to the rows of sharp teeth within, teeth that chewed the food he was offered in tribute. But the food was not for him. It was for the elephant, whose appetite was endless. Mary blinked and took a deep breath, her heart beating fast. The conversation swam back into focus. Lawrence was grinning at Lady, who squirmed under his gaze like a young willow writhing in the wind. "'Why, yes, young lady, there are wonderful pictures in Rome,' he smiled. "'Where did you learn that?' "'From Mary,' mumbled Lady, excitedly sweat glistening on her smooth forehead. "'She's read me from hundreds of books, hundreds. The things she says, I I laughed at first, but but there were pictures as well.' "'There is a statue in Rome, the statue of a naked man.' Did she show you that? asked Lawrence, winking. Oh, cried Lady, clasping her hands to her throat. No, 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 none such pictures did I see. Good thing, too, scowled Farmer Jigger despite his wife's elbow in his ribs. That is what I mean, smiled Lawrence, glancing at him. How can we want to change the world and be afraid of a statue? Is it true that they dance in the streets in Rome? asked wife Jigger hurriedly. I was shown the dance by a tinker once. Oh, he was a rascal. He shook his bottom at me, though I gave him a pie. He says, that's what they do in Rome. But I can't imagine it being the home of the Pope and all. But those Italians, I've never met one. But I've heard they're as dark as night and wear their hair in bundles, even the men. And they think nothing of marrying twice or or more. And they go to church only if it's sunny and bring a picnic to eat in the aisles. And the pastors, Lord, mind them, but they don't give a care, but says all gives to God in their own way, although they're very fat of that, I'm certain. And there are children running around that uh, none knows the parents of, but no one minds because it's always sunny and they, they, they don't barely have to touch the ground because it just up and, and flings the food on their plates. And they sleep during the day with hats on, is that true? And they sail in ships a mile wide. Some of them uh, live there all the time. And the seas are so full of ships that the pirates hang around the market and pinch girls. To go through your list would be too exhausting, smiled Lawrence, waving his hand playfully. Yes, they are blessed in their climate. Ah, but they're girls. Their girls could not hold a candle to our English lasses. Ah, how I would love to go to Rome, sighed Lady explosively, tossing her hair like a golden sail. Well, you play your cards right, and you just may, winked Lawrence. You just may. "'Did you play your cards right, Lawrence Carvey?' demanded a voice from the far end of the room. All turned their heads, but none faster than knotted Bob. Mary sat with her head held tensely erect. "'Did you play your cards right?' she repeated coldly, her eyes fixed on a void over Lawrence's head. "'Or did you use your father's money, the money you admit he took from us without giving anything in return?' "'Hold your tongue, whipper!' hissed Farmer Jigger, his eyes narrowing. Ye just remember your place. Lawrence held up his hand, his eyes strangely sharpened. No, no. Let the girl speak. This is most surprising. What on earth do you mean? Nothing but what you know, replied Mary. What do I know? asked Lawrence quietly. That this dinner could have lasted three families through the winter, said Mary with effort. That you, are, that you are not here because you have wonderful ideas about the future, but because we are all afraid of you. Afraid? 
cried wife Jigger. Afraid of our good lord! Yes, afraid! cried Mary, her eyes flashing. Afraid, afraid because he has the king behind him, as they, as they all do. Afraid, afraid because he holds our lives in his hands. Afraid because if, if we don't show him the proper respect, he might get angry and throw us off his land. The land we work! What strange nonsense you talk, cried Lawrence. I came here in good faith. As if ye work, growled Farmer Jigger. She's the laziest creature in the world, yet she dares to rail. Work for what? shouted Mary. The other girls drew back from her. Work so he can see the world and tell us we can have it if we play our cards right, if we are good girls. His cards! I won't sit and listen to such evil. By God, this is too much, cried Lawrence. Ye, my girl, had better apologize and leave the room if you want to stay on my farm, said Farmer Jigger. Apologize, cried Mary, her breath laboring. Apologize for courage. No, I will have none of it. Turn me out as you like, but I will never apologize. You, young lady, would be wise to learn your station, said Lawrence with a grim smile. Learn from the pleasant ladies at your elbow. "'Say you're sorry, you vicious, ungrateful whelp,' growled Farmer Jigger, "'or you'll sleep under the moon tonight, and every night forward.' "'Do as you like,' shouted Mary. "'I speak the truth!' "'Can you not control her?' asked Lawrence. "'Is she mad, then?' "'Nay, by heaven, she's not mad,' cried the farmer, rising. "'You, whelp, stand straight and listen. "'Your time here is done. "'Go get your things, your own things, mind, and be gone!' he shouted." "'standing and folding his massive arms. "'If I may,' said Nutted Bob, "'suddenly raising an arm and flapping it wildly. "'What?' demanded Farmer Jigger. "'If I may,' said the old man, "'it was I what put such thoughts into the lass's mind.' "'What? "'She's barely big enough to know her toes from her fingers,' "'croaked Nutted Bob, standing and bowing. "'I says one day, sort of casual, nothing in it, "'that I'm all confused as to how big ye house be, master, and how hard we work. "'She was quiet when I said it, but I suppose she thought on what I was saying. Uh, "'I was older, I had no right. She just confused is all. I didn't help.' "'This ain't nothing to do with ye,' snarled Farmer Jigger. "'She got no prop in this house. She ain't worth the food she eats. "'She's always troubling us, lazing and, and nicking things, and this is her gratitude. "'I say she finds her own way, and I will not be contradicted.' "'You hear me, miss? Ye get out!' he thundered. "'Out! Out!' screamed Mary, grabbing her knife and hurling it to one side, narrowly missing Gwen's head. "'Out! Out! And happier, too!' She half stumbled from the room. All could see the spring of tears and the awkwardness of her movements, and all felt an unclean sort of pity, as if watching the death throes of a foal born with two heads. Nutted Bob followed Mary's footsteps upstairs. Evading her father's eyes, so did Lady. He found her, sitting on her bed, mechanically stuffing her few clothes into a ragged little pillowcase, her breath coming in short gasps, her eyes red. Mary looked up at him, startled into sudden hostility, and then immediately cast her eyes back down, her back so rigid it seemed a tap would shatter her. "'Wait a scant,' murmured Knotted Bob to Lady, closing the wooden door behind him. He watched Mary struggling with her self-control. "'That wasn't too shiny,' 
he said softly. Her eyes flew up, again like startled spears. I should have known that you two would betray me, she snarled. He sighed. I have my own thoughts on that, and I should have thought before muttering aloud in your presence. Now the damage is done. Mary smiled grimly. Yes, the damage is done, but not by you. There is no pride in that, he said. You act ahead of your time. Yes, chastise me now. Good, very good. You have no idea what you've done, said Knotted Bob, cracking his knuckles. You cannot live alone out there. You have no idea what a haven it is here. Not for me. This is poison. The air is so poisoned here that I burn when I breathe. You, you have no idea. I do, he murmured. I do. Why, she demanded, because you are a cripple? Because that is the last thing I be. What do you think you will do? I will walk and see who will have me. And if none will have me, I will die like a dog and rob the world. You be too proud. What would you know of it? You be proud, but unwise. You think I am unwise, she shouted, leaping up her fists in tiny knots. You think I am unwise? Because I do not ask for these visions. I do not ask for them, but they come unbidden from the devil, it seems, and make me speak. Ye are not possessed. Then why is it that when I walk past the church or, or, or see the pictures of the cathedrals, I cannot admire the structure of the stones? Why is it I only hear the voices of the men who died building them? When I hear Father Jones speak about the power of the faith that builds such monuments, why can I only hear the voices and see that the church is built on blood, that it rises on graves, that, that it is a false tombstone without even the honesty to admit its corpses? Mary pressed the heels of her hands into her eye sockets, her voice breaking painfully. I see everything. With two eyes. She lowered her hands and looked up at the old man. Lord Carvey is young. He is beautiful. But he deserves to suffer. But he will never suffer. And that is the worst injustice. Her voice was tight. Her hands fluttered madly before her eyes. What am I to do with such visions? I cannot deny them, for even if they come from the devil, I have never heard such beautiful truths. For I love my visions, even though I shall be cast out for them. Ye shall be cast out, growled Knotted Bob, his voice suddenly harsh. Ye shall be cast out, and perhaps in the wilderness ye will find the wisdom to know that there is a time and a place for honest words, that the truth is not a sword to be drawn at all costs, that silence and preparation is sometimes its best service, and that dying like a dog is not. Mary lowered her head like a penitent child. If that is what is demanded, it will be done. Having lived as I do, I am not afraid of death. But if you had spoken before, she said with such yearning that his heart almost broke in two. I had no idea, he whispered. I saw your silence, and I thought you had much to wrestle with before we talked. Much wrestling to do with hatred, with bitterness. Because, though I believe hatred is the first sign of thought in evil times, I also believe that there are often lessons to be learned that cannot be taught, and that hatred must run its course even to destruction, to, to be purified, to turn to love. Mary's face twisted. Love. Love of what? of my life, of my circumstances, of the fact that I should be cursed with nothing but ability, nothing but staring at what I could be without the means to make it so. Should I love God for this? 
Yes, if that is what God demands. Perhaps he has a plan, and he gave you this vision to see beyond what is. Perhaps you may also do your part to soothe the evils of this world. Perhaps you should not be so eager to lay claims of understanding. For understanding of this world ye may have, but of your place within it you have not at all. Then if he should choose to test me, she cried, then I shall say to God, I shall go further than you dreamed of, and I shall make you ashamed of my suffering, of the suffering of us all, to give this young elephant wealth, power, and love, while forcing me on my knees to stare at a milk pail for eternity is a sin, and I care nothing for those who say it is a sin to say so, for I charge God with the errors of this world, and if he chooses not to inflict suffering on men like Lawrence, if he grants them the illusion of power in the midst of poverty, then I will act as the agent of his better self, and I shall make them suffer. I shall make them suffer. Although God sits on his hands, I shall be his sword. This is a kind of evil, said Knotted Bob, backing away, his face pale. "'Then let it be so for those that call it thus,' Mary shouted. "'But until you can show me a better world, "'you shall never convince me that opposing this one is wrong. "'And you who say, who say that there is a time and a place for truth "'shall be proven wrong, even if I die like a dog. "'You shall be proven wrong by the fact that I lived. "'And I shall laugh at you from the face of eternity, "'as I shall laugh at God and make him hide his face in shame. "'Your life will end in destruction. "'I go.' with joy, if I take one lie with me, and that whore downstairs with the beard, he had better be the first one to watch his back, for I will consider him in the wilderness, and find his weakness, and then I shall enter his life, and rend him limb from limb. Yeah, I I see your eyes. They think I'm mad. All who are committed are so, because they live life beyond these fat tables and shiny little curtsies, and they see that these well-dressed whores have blood on their frilly cuffs, that they defile any well-laid table, sticking knives into their hosts as they charm the dresses off their daughters. Enough! cried Knotted Bob, raising his hands. Enough! Ye may not be mad, but ye have convinced me that I was right to keep my distance. If some day ye be cleansed of this, I shall love ye for it, and talk with ye through the night. But for now, you must go through the fire. Mary, whispered Lady, opening the door a crack and peeking in. Mary, Father is threatening to throw you from the window if you don't go at once. None of this is for you, said Mary, instantly subdued. None. For you are power without harm. Come here. Lady almost ran into the room, into Mary's open arms, and the two girls wept together. Mary clutched her lady's hair, her young face distorted and wet. "'I shall be gone for a long, long time,' she gasped, stroking lady's blonde locks rapidly. "'But some day I will return, and will you remember that we were once innocent and sat on the hill and held hands like lovers?' "'I will remember,' whispered lady. The parting was hastened by a banging on the door. Farmer Jigger strode into the room, his eyes burning. "'Get away from my lass, ye beast!' he shouted, tearing Mary away from Lady. He picked up some of Mary's old clothes and threw them out the window. "'You want your things, they be on the ground. Now get out, or you're next!' Mary snatched up her pillowcase, her head lowered, and staggered out the door. Knotted Bob followed her closely, hoping to stave off any further attacks. The other girls were all clustered at the foot of the stairs. Lawrence stood among them, his face pale. 
I meant to take no such offense, he said in a low voice that was drowned out by another bellow from the old farmer. Lawrence caught at Mary's arm as she passed, and she turned suddenly to look him full in the face. Oh, it was a gaze he was long to remember, long after everything had been made clear to him. Lawrence glanced at Farmer Jigger, then leaned into Mary. If you need anything, come to me, he said, his eyes averted. But she turned away, pulled her arm from his hand, and without a backward glance, walked through the doorway into the night. Lawrence leaned against the wall, suddenly exhausted. Farmer Jigger stood panting on the stairs. His wife tried to caress him, but he threw off her hand. "'And none the worse for wear!' he shouted. They all stared at him. "'Now, the boy was saying something, if I'm not quite mistaken. "'Well? Well? Well, yes,' said Lawrence, standing up straight and attempting a grin. "'Yes, um, let us continue dinner. There are many things to talk about.' "'Well, in you go!' cried Farmer Jigger, shooing the shaken girls back into the dining room. Lawrence followed them all, and as he passed the half-open doorway, he turned his head slowly as he imagined the silver eyes of some oblong beast staring malevolently at him from the pillar of night outside. Chapter 4 a Merchant's Mourning Such is the continuity of certain feelings that, four years later, Lawrence felt the same sudden chill when Mary's name came up again. They were all in the sunroom, Lawrence, his mother, and his sister. Lawrence sat at his mahogany writing desk, going over the latest accounts. Lady Barbara sat on a sofa reading some letters. Kay lay on the carpet lurid, Moroccan, brought back by their father, reading the newspaper. Going over his accounts was a Sunday morning ritual, one that gave Lawrence great pleasure. The mounting returns on his initial investments had begun to exceed his wildest expectations. It was funny, he often thought, how it all began with turnips. Such a simple little vegetable, so shy, that the earth barely noticed its presence, shrugging it off with such contempt that it welcomed the next year's crops with barely restrained fertility. But the turnip, ah, it went straight to the mouths of cows, cows that no longer faced the falling of leaves with nervous lowing, cows that grew fat on turnips through the winter, cattle that had grown from scrawny sacrifices barely worth their keep to herds of fat breeds rich in milk and meat. The cattle, too, had only been a starting point, for more than milk flowed from them. Gold, too, as if they were magic geese, for they could be sold for a good profit at the market. The market had changed as well, from a scrawny throw-off of shoddy goods to the pride of the county. Farmers travelled for scores of miles, eager to trade and learn. Butchers, no longer the scavengers of autumn, had become respectable, almost revered, for the magic of meat hung firm in the bellies of the townsfolk, granting them health and strength beyond their wildest dreams. Lawrence's boyhood memories of the village were vague and confused. 
the sight of the thin children forever begging, the haggard steps of hungry women and the baleful stares of underused men had frightened him. Now, as he walked through the market and heard the vigorous cries of strong men, he felt a benevolent strength and faith in the proper order of intelligence, and gratitude, for he knew how lucky he had been, blessed with both the desire for change and the wealth to enact it. He occasionally took the day carriage to London to the dissolute clubs where other young lords squandered the excess of their tenants' sweat, and spoke of his ideas. Scowls and mutters greeted his exhortations for change, and he found himself feeling like a preacher in a world of war. A few arguments almost escalated into fistfights. They called him a tradesman and a hawker in an attempt to portray him as a sly seller of sordid goods. But we are custodians of the land, he cried. We can only justify our existence by working to enrich the land and all it produces. If we shirk this responsibility, all talk of revolution is justified, and will be proven so in action before long. What a custodian, the jeers would return. Yet he manages his trips to London and abroad. He manages silk shirts and cognac while telling us we must work for the poor. Not only for the poor, he said, for ourselves, to have a purpose in life, a reason for being. Purpose is for the poor, fool. Our purpose is to eat, drink, and be merry. And if it be at their expense, then so be it. We didn't make the world. And when it benefits us so tangibly, why should we sweat to change it? There is wealth in it, Lawrence replied. Ten acres sensibly managed can produce more crops than a hundred farmed the old way. Look at me, you know the history of my family. Overspending nobility since day one, barely able to afford a place in the registry. And why were we there in the first place? Because some ancestor bowed properly to the king and helped put down a rebellion? More power to him, I applaud that. But now, for myself, how can I imagine that I have such virtues that I deserve to reap the fruits of a man's labor hundreds of years dead? Where is my justification? Where is yours? Ours is that we are here. Yours is fading fast, merchant. I shall outstrip you, Lawrence shouted, driven beyond all patience. Does that mean nothing to you if nothing else does? How much does your land produce? More than mine, perhaps, but acre for acre I shall outstrip you all. Your ways are dead or soon will be. The time will come when the king no longer says, Who was your grandfather? But rather, what is your yield? And ultimately his favor will be proportional to that. (laughs) That kind of wealth is not for us, they laughed. To say... Plant this because it is better. How many can do that? All who are told. But to be born into rank, to have the blood of ancient victors in your veins, that, my boy, is granted to a very few. You think you can threaten us? You don't threaten us. You threaten the king, and so yourself. He found them turning away then, turning back to their dicing tables and women, and Lawrence felt a sudden rush of contemptuous indifference, as well as a certain sense of freedom. It wasn't for him to change men's minds. Changing the crops was far easier and far more productive. There was one noble he was attracted to, however, whose name was Lord Serbs. Lawrence met him at a recital given by his daughter, Lady Lydia. Lydia was the focus of many youthful desires, but all such aspirations were tainted with a certain fear for she was a woman much given to speaking her mind, a source of much criticism from Lord Serb's peers, who maintained 
that such habits should be rigorously checked at youth. She was a superb singer, and Lawrence responded strongly to her passion and energy during the recital, but since she had vanished at its conclusion, had to content himself with approaching her father. Lord Serbs seemed quite aware of the direction of Lawrence's interests and listened to the young man's tales of agricultural renewal with a faint smile that indicated he knew exactly what sort of sea Lawrence was actually selling. They discussed the ramifications of sheep, which Lord Serbs had recently introduced in great numbers to his lands in Yorkshire. The older man's pointed observations showed that he possessed a first-rate mind, and his watchful silence during Lawrence's speeches indicated that he was not a man to be offended by originality. They parted after only a quarter of an hour, but exchanged cards and promised to keep in touch. Lawrence walked out of the recital hall on a cloud, his whole sense of purpose renewed. This sense of renewal proved difficult to maintain, especially during the Sunday morning breakfasts with his mother and sister. Lady Barbara's reaction to the long process of change was somewhat surprising given her intensely patrician upbringing. She still held the whole process in disdain, but believed that, while disgrace would surely be the result of such agricultural tampering, bankruptcy would not add insult to injury. If we are to end our days as petty merchants, she was given to saying, we shall not be poor ones to boot. Thus, though deriding the process at every step, she also disciplined herself to become as well-informed as possible and had argued Lawrence out of some disastrous decisions. She had read Smith's The Wealth of Nations, numerous tracts of Ricardo's, some of Turnip Townsend's eclectic literary mutterings, and even managed to procure some books written in the last century about England's treasure by foreign traffic. A decidedly distasteful endeavour, as she mentioned several times, since she had to send her servant Edith in disguise to London to retrieve it. All this was because of a patently obvious case of that most pagan of maternal religions, sun worship, that's S-O-N. She regarded Lawrence as little short of the second coming, though took great pains to hide her regard behind a relentlessly critical demeanour. All his decisions were opposed, all expenditures were examined microscopically, and she even kept a chart called Returns on Expenditures on the wall of the sunroom wherein all his mistakes were highlighted in bright red ink. It was only at his insistence that she began to pencil in his successes, though she preferred a hard grey pencil for those. And, as is so often the case in families, as Lawrence's fortunes grew, those of his sister dwindled. His return made Kay acutely nervous. During the four years since, that nervousness had grown, fluctuating a little, depending on the success of her various, quote, projects. If Lady Barbara had had her way, Kay's projects would have been outlined in a special graph of their own, all red and brightly lit. Lawrence supplemented her meagre allowance from his own stipend for these projects. He did not especially believe in them, but he granted that there may be divisions of ability within every family, and that his sister's incessant desire to do good might be her own area of competence. An example often quoted to her detriment was the debacle of the shoes. 
One day Kay came home in tears because she had seen a barefoot boy cut his foot while running. Can you believe it? She asked, her eyes wide. In this age, to court infection and death, to be robbed of the chance to help in the harvest for the sake of a pair of shoes? She had been so insistent on the point, and so obvious in her desires, that Lawrence had given her money to buy shoes for the unfortunates. Kay had gone round to every farmhouse and asked whether they had shoes. Naturally, word had travelled far faster than she could, and as a result, shoes disappeared from cottages and dirt was rubbed into the feet of children. One family even pulled the horseshoes off their horse, and Kay arrived to find them lamenting and weeping over the thorns they had stuck into the poor beast's unshod hooves. The result of Kay's investigations was that over 200 pairs of shoes were found wanting in the Carvey lands. Kay, of course, was not naive enough to think that everyone was being totally forward with her, and so began paying surprise visits to households, in the hopes of finding sold footprints in the yards or suspicious bundles in the children's pockets. This approach quickly degenerated into a game of hide-and-seek, which forced even those with many pairs of shoes to walk about barefooted in order to keep up appearances. Children, on orders from parents perhaps, began staggering past the gates of the Carvey household, gripping their feet and crying out most piteously. A few men ceased showing up for work, complaining of their lack of shoes, and generally the pace of village life began to wind down as the issue of footwear grew from a dim hope of a freebie to a moral crusade, the affair becoming so mixed up in everyone's mind that Kay found herself unable to venture into the village for fear of being accosted with the demand to produce the shoes that was promised us. In the end, Lawrence had to personally go down to London to order 200 pairs of shoes, wait for the week it took to make them, and drive them back to his estate. The volume of the purchase had to be paid for dearly, and the net result of Kay's project was that a good deal of money was wasted in order to provide inferior shoes to those who already had better ones. The local shoemaker was also put out of business. This was Kay's most notorious escapade, and it was made all the worse by her inability to contribute much to the cost of the shoes. She begged her mother to ask for the release of a hundred pounds of her dowry, but the late Lord Carvey had so ordered his will, knowing more about his daughter's habits than even his wife suspected, that she was unable to collect until she was married, or until the age of thirty, still four years hence. Kay had stayed in her room for a week, unable to face her family's anger. To give Lawrence credit, anger was too strong a word. He felt more of an impatient incomprehension that lacked even the grudging respect of true anger. He didn't pretend to understand his sister, but gave her the money in the hopes that it would keep her occupied. Lawrence was a man who loved activity. He spent dawn to dusk solving problems, convincing recalcitrant farmers to try yet another innovation, reading the latest agricultural treatises, doing the books— It wasn't for lack of love or concern that he found himself ignoring his sister, but rather that he felt he didn't have time to cater to her. When she came to him with that earnest, pleading look, he found himself strangely irritated and felt an urge to shake her and demand that she face something, though what that something was, he had no idea. Still, it was Kay who first brought Mary's name up again, and that wasn't something he was likely to forget in the years to come. It happened on a Sunday morning. He was going over the books in the sunroom. His mother 
sat at a table answering her correspondence, and her sister was on the floor, cutting articles out of the newspaper. Heavens, Lady Barbara said. Here's another one. Listen to this. Quote, I find it hard to comprehend, though word comes from a trusted mutual acquaintance, that your lovely parlour has been transformed from a place of civilised tea into a quaint little banking room where your son chews the ends off his pencils in the hopes of raising your family's fortunes by dint of hard, though we shan't say gritty, labour. Margaret says that a family's fortune must have fallen far prior to the desire to raise it in such a manner, but I poo-poo that idea as positively out of step with modern times. No, no, I say patiently, we shall all become bankers soon, and it is most proper that the venerable Carveys, who have been quite trend-setting ever since the late Lord's strenuously stimulating book, should be so kind as to blaze the trail for the rest of us. Charles says that it shall all end in disaster, that we are seeing the end of civilization and all things Christian, etc., etc., but then he is still in the throes of his battles with Bacchus, and we pay no heed to his millennial mutterings. Only say, my dear Barbara, that if we come to tea in the near future, we shall not be obliged to pay an entrance fee, or leave a tip, for we do not carry coins ourselves, and that would require bringing extra servants. Lady Barbara scowled and tapped the paper, wrinkling her nose. This from a woman who sees it fit to address me by my first name in a letter, though we have met only thrice, and does not care a fig that her insults show appallingly plainly. "'Why you finish these letters is beyond me, mother,' muttered Lawrence. "'And the fact that you let yourself be bothered by such vapid jabs "'is more credit to them than you. "'Oh, it's not that I expect our flying plunge into the future "'to be arrested by such slights,' replied his mother. "'But rather that you give a thought for the other side of the world, "'the world whose only concern with work is one's distance from it.' "'Hmm,' murmured Lawrence, tabulating rapidly. "'Now this is horrible.' exclaimed Clay, propping her chin on her elbows. Can you believe it? A woman in Battersea tied her children in a burlap sack and threw them into the Thames. She was about to follow suit when she was restrained by passers-by. All three children drowned. When asked why she did it, she said it was because she couldn't stand her husband hitting them any more. She says that he had beaten them all with a table leg. She was quite bruised herself and she had only survived because the weapon hit the doorframe, bounced back, and knocked him out. The police went to her room to find the husband, but he had cleared out. There was a terrific chunk torn out of the doorframe, and they found a table leg on the floor with a little blood and some hairs stuck to it. They showed it to the woman, and apparently the hair belonged to one of her children, because she tore the table leg from the policeman and hasn't let go of it since. Kay frowned. She's to be hung Saturday. Hmm, said Lawrence distantly. Awful. "'Oh!' exclaimed Lady Barbara, throwing down another letter. "'Now this is too much. "'Lady Wadsworth has declined our invitation to supper "'because she says that they lack the necessary apparel, "'it all having been recently cleaned. "'This is absurd. "'It doesn't even pass for wit.' "'Do you know, I met the oddest girl on the road yesterday. "'Remember I went to Tottenham for the day,' said Kay, "'turning on her side towards her brother. "'She gave her name and asked about you, Lawrence.' She stopped in my carriage for directions and had the strangest look in her eyes. I took her for a mystic of sorts. She had such an intense something. Where is the innovator? she asked. I was very surprised. Such words do not easily fall from the mouths of our hapless poor. What innovator? I asked. 
I am looking for a certain gentleman, she replied. I want to offer my services in his honor. I didn't let on that I was your sister for fear that she would ask for a ride, so I told her there's a man answering that description about uh, 15 miles from here, and I described her house and how to get here. She seemed bone-tired, so I don't think she'll be here today, but please satisfy my curiosity if you ever see her, for she looked like a most interesting person. This girl, did she seem swollen in places? asked Lady Barbara. No, on the contrary, it seemed that the wind was having difficulty finding her shape, she was so thin. I haven't been having affairs with peasants, mother, snapped Lawrence. What a sordid suspicion. Half suspicion, half hope, replied his mother. It would be a relief to know that your desire for planting extended beyond the agricultural. In time, in time, how many times do we have to have this conversation? I am a young man with many things to do. She shrugged. Other men are acting, other decisions being taken that will limit your choice when His Majesty considers himself ready for marriage. Then I shall have eliminated the unnecessary, for the woman I will love will also have had many things to do before marriage, replied Lawrence, rising from his chair and stretching. And I honestly do not appreciate these ancient intrusions into what is essentially a modern life. You see, Kay, modern men have no time for wives or mothers. Modern men are driven by more than the need to maintain the bloodline. I don't condemn you for these beliefs, for we are all constituted partly of ourselves and partly of our circumstances, but my patience for these constant hints is wearing thin. Hints, cried Lady Barbara, as if I do not speak plainly. Perhaps you are a modern man, and perhaps there is much in you that I will never understand. But all men, modern or otherwise, still need wives. And if they do nothing but grub in the earth until the world catches up with their lofty expectations, they will end their lives very sorry and very alone. <sighs> I've tried explaining this before, Mother, scowled Lawrence. If you took the half hour to walk into town on market day, you would see that I'm doing far more than grubbing in the earth that what I have achieved is of tangible benefit to a great number of people. I have doubled our income since returning, and I plan to do a great deal more. Yet one has to ask, will it ever be enough? Asked Kay, peering up through her hair. Lawrence shrugged. I know of your beliefs as well, Kay, and if by some stroke of genius you find a better way to benefit the poor than I have, you shall find me an instant convert, but... Diminishing the family fortune for the sake of redundant footwear doesn't hold much water in my book. That is so unfair, cried Kay, leaping to her feet. Did you personally invent all these schemes of yours? No, uh, of course not, but yes, you see, it was a process of trial and error of which you are a mere beneficiary. Am I not to be allowed the same latitude because I take a, 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 a different approach? It's not a question of approaches, but of effectiveness. I, I know, she cried, her breath short. And yes, you do your, your part to feed the bodies of the poor. Congratulations, you have discovered the turnip. But there is a lot more to human life than a full belly, Larry. Do you know that the Monday boys have been terrorizing the cottagers who've turned to weaving? Why, uh, are they just bad, or have they been raised so? You can throw them in jail, and then their parents will starve, because Papa Monday lifts his fingers only to scratch his head. What are their chances in your modern world? Everything for the middle, that's what you offer. Food and, and tiled roofs for the hard-working and unimaginative. But there are those who cannot work that hard, either because they are uh, above it or, 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 or below it, or have, have so many dreams in their heads that they feel like spitting on your offers of plows and, and cattle and brave new uh, schemes. Wait, cried Lawrence, raising his hands. Uh, you've raised about 
500 objections in as many syllables. I, I can't follow them all, let alone answer them properly. I work to create opportunity, yes, because that's what I do best. And I say again what I've said before, when you come to me with a better plan, you shall have my full energies at your disposal. But until then, I shall work as I see fit and will not be damned by you or anyone just because the advances I create are not spread as evenly as you would like or because I refuse to waste my time on Sunday brunches with vapid women. If you want the truth, I believe that these ideas come from a certain inactivity on both your parts and I have no wish to step in this particular bed of nettles at this moment. But if you found something more productive to occupy your time, we might find your constant desires to manage my life pleasantly diminished. And what what would you suggest? demanded Kay, her voice trembling. Needlepoint? I can't tell you how to occupy your time, replied Lawrence. That is your business. But I repeat my offer to become more actively involved in the changes going on around you. Learn, learn the books, learn the theories and practice, and I will willingly take your input. God knows I am having a hard enough time doing it all alone. You were born to do all this, cried Kay, raised from day one as the family visionary. Yet I, every time I walked into the room, Daddy left it. It wasn't as if I was looking for it, but, but it happened. Don't look at me like that, so polite and sympathetic. You will never understand what it means to live in the shadows. Kay, I'm talking about agriculture, reminded Lawrence. Yes, all right, yes. Let's talk about agriculture. Let's talk about nourishment and light and the proper soil. You went away to school. You got to travel. You, you rose to your challenges naturally because more and more was demanded of you. That was your light, your soil. And I'm happy for you. I, I hold no resentments except... Except, except, except that I wish it had been so for myself. Lady Barbara sat silently watching her daughter. Look, said Lawrence, perhaps I cannot understand. I, I don't know what it is you're after. But if there's anything I can do to help, I am at your service. It's not for myself. Kay's face was pale. I at least had pleasant surroundings and good food, and, and still do. But the poor... What are we to do about the poor? I'm doing what I can, replied her brother. There are fewer poor now than when I started. In a way, yes. But those who have escaped poverty in your way were never really poor. I want to be able to help the poor who will never have a chance, even under your way. The poor who are so wretched that they don't even see the point of escaping their poverty. The poor who destroy their lives because they have no riches in themselves, no dreams or hopes or aspirations or thoughts of a better life. The poor who have had their humanity stripped from them and do not even know of their loss. How will you help them? I, I don't know, shrugged Lawrence. I don't either, replied Kay. But when I do, there will be no stopping me. You will never know, said Lady Barbara suddenly. And that will be your downfall, both of you. I thought you had uh, fallen asleep, remarked her son. As well I might have, given the redundancy of your conversation, so serious, so full of concern for weighty matters, but so ridiculous. Yes, you, you, you have always thought so, haven't you? said Kay. My dear child, we are not put on this earth to assume responsibility for all its problems. I find the view quite incomprehensible, actually. If by all miracles you found yourself able to make this little corner of England a paradise, what then? 
Why, then you must take on more responsibilities, for surely there are hungry children in Yorkshire, in Scotland, and Ireland. Oh, and let us not forget the continent, for when England is perfect, we have only scratched the surface. France, Holland, oh, Holland is, of course, already perfect. And further, for surely people need food in Turkey and, and Russia and China. <gasps> Such a scope this new world sets for itself, while surprisingly enough... Life chugged along fairly tolerably before such lofty aspirations came along. If you want my advice, and being young you won't, for you believe all age is prejudice, you will get married, raise a happy family, and leave the world richer by five or so pleasant people. Kay's face went as white as a sheet. That is to be the sum of my life? Procreation and sing-alongs? It has done for many before you, and if you think that motherhood is a kind of song, then you are greatly mistaken. Learning what to plant from books is child's play in comparison. You are both proof of that. It's so easy to say so after the fact, said Lawrence. Lawrence, you are a strange kind of idealist, and rather a simple-hearted too, so I will tell you this plainly. Without happy families, the world may be well-fed, but it will still be unhappy, and that is all I shall ever have to say on the matter. With that, she rose and left the room. How strange, murmured Lawrence, taking his seat and gazing through the glass walls. Kay looked up. What? Do you remember much of growing up, Kay? He asked suddenly, turning to her. She smiled, her cheeks red. A little. Everything I remember is about being schooled about learning this or that or fighting over nothing at all. I remember coming home, but I I don't really remember what it was like. You were out a lot. I always wished I were even a little forceful. Your friends were so loud. Do you remember when you were going back to school once, I kissed you goodbye at the carriage, and you shooed me off because you were so embarrassed? No, I don't remember that. <laughs> Sounds like me, though. That's something I've never understood about you. Always admired it, but never understood it. What? Kay's hands fluttered. Oh, it's odd. You've just always had something about you, a, 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 a kind of certainty, a, a force. Y you think for ten seconds and go on without a moment's doubt. I think for a month and still feel unsure. Lawrence shrugged. I never thought about that. What can you do? Life is short. Decide. But but don't you ever get this feeling that you're living in absolutely the wrong way, and that some day you will be revealed as an utter fraud? Lawrence smiled. That's a strange idea. What kind of fraud? It's it's sort of that when you're young you you have a certain type of momentum, everyone does, I think, an an energy. But have you ever noticed how many older people seem unhappy? Oh, not unhappy, but, but sort of grey. I've always thought that if you, if you don't take good care of that simple sort of basic energy, then you will become very unhappy in time. Or just grey. I, I can't figure out what that means. Grey, mused Lawrence. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I've never actually thought about it. Perhaps it's because people get bored of their youthful habits, the socializing and so forth, and have nothing to replace it with later on. He laughed. <laughs> That's rather stupid, but it's what sprang to mind. There are people. 
Kay coughed a little, then cleared her throat. Her voice quivered as she spoke. Uh, there are people, political madmen, who, who, who believe that we are parasites, that, that, that we can do all the good we want, but we are still parasites and always will be. I, I, I don't know if you've seen the pamphlets in London. Lawrence nodded slowly. Oh, I've seen them. They're, they're, they're quite hysterical, but, but, but very earnest, you know? Uh, they frighten me more than I can say. Things seem so content for so long. I don't know why there's so much anger now. I know, yes, there had to be a change, but what kind of change will that be? Uh, are we all to become farmers? Kay shuddered. It's not that I would mind the work, but I feel so sort of fragile that, that if it weren't just an experiment, if it were something that I had to live with every day my whole life long, I, I honestly think I would kill myself. Lawrence frowned. Huh. You know, I've had a hard time understanding you. If you don't mind the frankness, I've always thought of you as rather flighty. Of course, but think of it, Lawrence. If something were to happen, if we lost our fortune or we were turned out of this house, what would happen to me? That will never happen. We're too valuable. But, but if it did, you would be all right. You could join the army or manage someone else's estate, but without a proper dowry, where would I go? I would take care of you. That's a frightening thought. Why? How would you feel if I said the same thing to you? Asked Kay. Lawrence laughed. Oh, but... Yes, you see? It would be humiliating beyond words. Yes, but that is, after all, the way of the world. Women are at the mercy of fortune. But it has its advantages. Mother has led a very happy life. Kay shuddered. I wonder... But you see, I, I know you have always scorned my desire to do good. Don't frown. I know it's true. But really, Larry, anyone can plant better. The act of kindness, however. The poor are quite a brutal lot. That is their life, I think. I've had leisure enough to develop a certain kind of sensitivity, let's say. I feel positively wounded when I see a poor man wandering the road. That sounds extreme, I know, but it's so. But it may be the only thing we have to offer when everything else becomes general. If we can just find a way to ease people's burdens, the, the, those who cannot ease their own, I mean, then our lives, our, our way and means of life will be justified. Perhaps not forever, for perhaps even sensitivity will not be ours alone forever. But at least for now, it gives us an answer to those who say we are parasites. In America, there is no aristocracy, and they all believe that is for the better. If America does well, it will not be long before we are called to account. If all we have to offer is easily shared knowledge about agriculture or, or, or art, then I fear we will go the way of the dodo. There was a pause after Kay's lengthy speech. That's very interesting, said Lawrence finally, rubbing the bridge of his nose. I understand your position and appreciate your concerns, but... I have no idea how to turn this sensitivity into practice. Yes, yeah, I know. It, it is to me nothing more or less than a jumble of fears and hopes, admitted Kay, glowing inwardly. You know, speaking of sensitivity, I remember one thing I'm very ashamed of. Lawrence turned to look at her. When I had just returned from traveling, I went to dinner at Farmer Jigger's. There was an odd girl there. I don't think you ever knew her. 
Mary, her name was. She had the most intense eyes. I was showing off a little. I was very enthusiastic, I remember. And she said some very strange things, insulted my position, as it were, as if anything I could do was in the wrong. Of course, I I didn't take offense. She was just a little girl and obviously overwrought in some way. But Farmer Jigger lost his head completely, threw her out of the house, her home. You know, I did nothing. His forehead wrinkled. I just stood there and watched it happen. I knew I needed Farmer Jigger's approval to start changing things, and I thought, it is a small sacrifice for a greater good. I offered to help her as she left. God, she looked pitiful with her little pillowcase of clothes. And she looked at me. I knew she knew I didn't mean it. Her face haunted me. There was such a depth of vengeance in her eyes that I half expected to be murdered in my sleep for months afterwards. He laughed sadly. (sighs) It was quite silly. I used to wonder what had happened to her. She's probably dead by now. But I think I lacked that sensitivity you spoke of. I might act differently now. That girl. Her name was Mary? Yeah. Kay's face was pale. What? asked Lawrence, standing suddenly. (laughs) It's probably nothing but the most absurd coincidence. But that woman I met on the road yesterday, the the thin one, I, I think she said her name was Mary. Her brother's eyes widened. Really? The intensity of her eyes, that's what reminded me. Lawrence turned away from Kay abruptly and began pacing the carpet. Larry, what? Your talk has moved me, Kay, he said rapidly. Perhaps I have forgotten something in my drive to improve everything. He turned to her. His face flushed. Listen, if you can think of something that makes sense, if you can come up with a plan to help her or or, or people like her, then you have my full, unqualified support. Yeah, I have been missing something. It's not every day one gets to atone for an old sin. I hope it is her. Yes, said Kay fervently. I hope so, too. Chapter 5 A Fading Flowers First Feast Kay rose quite early the next day, which surprised everyone. Her desire to laze about in bed in the morning was well known. She often demanded to know the reason why the hours between 6 and 10 in the morning were automatically considered more valuable than the time between... 10 and 2 at night when she stayed up late, reading or writing in her journal. She got out of bed at 7, dressed with care, choosing a simply cut dress and low shoes from her scant wardrobe. She tied her hair back in a tight bun and applied only the bare minimum of powder, and was downstairs by 8. "'You're up early,' commented Lady Barbara when Kay came down to the drawing-room. The older woman slept for a little and was sitting on the sofa reading a slim volume in the dim light of early morning, dressed impeccably. Where does she get the time? Kay wondered. Expecting someone? asked her mother. Yes and no. You should always inform the other members of the household if guests are expected, she said sternly, peering over her glasses. Those are the simple rules of coexistence. 
coexistence, muttered Kay, walking up to the window and pulling back the lace a little. What are you reading? A rather sordid little piece called, Lady Barbara checked the spine, Songs of Experience. It's a new form of art quite in keeping with these modern times. Sordid, self-aggrandizing, and reeking of emotion. Won't go very far. Who were you expecting? Is Lawrence around? He went out early to check on the jiggers. Said they were worried about rot in the seed crop. Shame he wasn't here to see you in this light. I'm surprised he left so early. Why? There's a woman he was expecting, the one I spoke of yesterday. The peasant? We spoke of her after you walked out yesterday. He knew her years ago. Well? What? Well? He knew her well? Snapped Lady Barbara. No, not, not, not really. I see. Oh, stop fidgeting, child. Are you so eager for this girl's appearance? You know. I think I am, said Kay, gazing out the window. I think she will be very interesting. Really? Her eyes yesterday. I have never seen such intensity. Kay turned to her mother, leaning back against the windowsill. Do you know, I've wondered for years how to help the poor. They can't tell me because they lack the knowledge to look at themselves objectively. But someone who was born poor and has risen from the pit of ignorance by her own fingernails. What a perspective she must have. Do you think, I know this sounds daft, mother, but do you think it might be possible to have her stay with us for a time? I beg your pardon, said Lady Barbara, closing her book with a little bang. Have you utterly lost your mind? We know nothing about this creature. Oh, I know, we'll have to be careful, said Kay, examining her fingernails. But I'm thinking, what if she is a nice girl, knows her place and all that? We have more than enough servants. Have you had breakfast? I'm not hungry. But, Mother, I have said no. But, Kay, no. Kay jerked her head and stared out the window, her eyes suddenly brimming with tears. Damn it, she cried silently. Why am I such a child? She caught a glimpse of her mother from the corner of her eye and felt a sudden stab of hatred. Sitting there, pretending to read, she thought, as if she were a rational creature who has made a reasonable decision. And why is it she should show me so little respect? Is it because I am unmarried and striving for something better? Perhaps it is true that her generation is nothing but a barrier to progress, because they are so impressed by station and bearing and a thousand other stupid things. And how ridiculous it is for me to become upset by her idiocies. I am twenty-six, many years an adult, and seething because of a stupid slight. But, but perhaps there should come a time where I shall cease to be injured by pettiness, cease to be enraged by insults. And perhaps that time will only come if I stand up to them, to all of it, to her. Mother, she said suddenly, a little frightened by the authority in her voice. Lady Barbara looked up. Daughter? I think it is very unfair of you to dismiss something that I asked for without even considering the question properly. Lady Barbara nodded. I see. Kay blinked, frowning. So, I, I would like you to consider it properly. Properly, you mean, agree with you. No, just, if it's a bad idea, I, I want to know why. Lady Barbara sighed. Days may be long, but not long enough for this kind of foolishness. 
Why is it foolishness? cried Kay. Why? Daughter, control yourself, ordered Lady Barbara. I see no point in elaborating on a fairly obvious and rather inconsequential decision, and that is final. Kay shook her head, seeking self-control. Why am I so enraged? All right, she said, her voice trembling. If you are not willing to discuss it, I shall take your answer as yes. Lady Barbara closed her book and thrust it down on a little lacquered side table. If this is how you act when you rise early, I would rather you slept late. If you want to attack my authority, you must wait until you come of age, at which point you may make all the stupid decisions you like. But what makes it so— Oh, do be quiet! snapped Lady Barbara. Ridiculous child, you have nothing better to do than bother me. Leave me in peace. I shall ask her to stay, nonetheless, and I shall turn her out, nonetheless. You're such a— cried Kay, trailing off. What right do you have to your room? shouted Lady Barbara, rising from the couch imperiously. Kay burst into tears. What right, just because you hold the purse strings? To your room, evil child! Out of my sight! So sad! Kay shot back, her cheeks blazing. Your whole life so sad! The two women froze as a knock sounded on the door. Enter, said Lady Barbara as Kay hurriedly wiped her face with the curtain. Edith, the maid, entered the room quietly and stood by the door. Kay and Lady Barbara stared at the maid for almost a full minute before Lady Barbara gave her permission to speak. "'Lady without calling card, madam,' she said, curtsying. "'Her appearance? Poor.' "'Wait outside,' Lady Barbara commanded the maid, who nodded and left. She stared at her daughter for a long time, then spoke. "'I am not in the habit of granting permission to exercise whim, young lady, "'and I do not wish this capitulation to be a sign of free license on anyone's part.' "'Thank you, mother,' sniffled Kay, terribly excited. "'Edith,' the maid entered, "'send her in. Give her some slippers. See, she doesn't touch anything. "'And take these curtains down for a cleaning.' "'The maid curtsied again and left, "'and the two women stood immobile before the door was gently pushed open.' The young woman who stood in the doorway had a strange appearance. She was thin, of medium height, and her face was wide, focused, yet there was something about her, a shadow perhaps, that seemed to dwarf the room. Her body seemed to sway like a thin curtain before a wondrously distant and fantastical view. Her dark eyes gleamed like the night sparks of a distant volcano. She raised her gaze to Kay and Lady Barbara, and they almost shrank back, as if this thin woman were leaping at them. "'Your name was not announced,' said Lady Barbara, narrowing her eyes. "'Good morning,' said the young woman. "'My name is Mary, Mary O'Donnell. "'Neither was your business here explained. "'I have business with the gentlemen of the household.' "'Lord Carvey is not at home at the moment.' "'Oh,' Mary looked at Kay. "'I met you yesterday on the road.' "'Excuse my reticence at that time,' smiled Kay, stepping forward. "'I had many things to do and, and, and somehow guessed that we would have ample time to talk. "'And we will. You may be sure of that.' Mary flushed violently. Her hand wandered for the support of a nearby chair. "'Yes. Thank you,' she whispered. "'Please, sit down,' ordered Lady Barbara. 
Are you hungry? No, said Mary. But some tea, if it's not too much trouble. See to it, Kay, said Lady Barbara. Personally. Kay hesitated, unable to tear her eyes from Mary, then left the room, almost bumping into a sofa. <laughs> Excuse me, she said, then laughed loudly. Are you his mother? asked Mary, taking a seat. I am. But more importantly, I am the mistress of the household, and as such you will forgive me for asking exactly what you desire of my son. Oh, laughed Mary. That's nothing mysterious. I was at a placement near Sheffield when I overheard, quite by chance, that Lord Carvey had embarked on some remarkable experiments. He and I met, again, quite by chance, some years ago, and he offered me some aid with no specific time limit attached. No, no, I haven't come for any aid, but rather that I have spent some time learning things that I believe would be of use to him, and I wanted to come and offer my services to his honor. Services? As what? <laughs> it's, uh, it's very silly, blushed Mary, and perhaps it will come to nothing, but I believe, from what I've heard, that there are certain improvements that he may not have paid full attention to that I could help him understand. Not that he'll need much help, because he seems like such an intelligent fellow, but I thought I might be uh, of use to him in that, in that area. I see. And this will take how long? Oh, I see. Uh, a good question. No, I am not planning to move in, but I, th I th but I think that he would do well to take on a sort of uh, research assistant. Not permanently, because there is still such a limited amount of material, but for a few weeks at least. Or so. Lord Carvey has many friends. Brilliant friends, I'm afraid, said Lady Barbara. Thus I find it hard to imagine that he would have any need for the scholarly services of an obviously uneducated peasant. Mary swallowed her face pale. Yes, of course, I understand. Yet it may be that there are very few in this world who have a full grasp of what he is attempting to do. It's probable that he doesn't, in fact, understand it fully himself. Though, that sounds silly, I know, because, as I said, he is so clever. I may have uh, that to offer. And what is this full grasp of which you speak? Mary pursed her lips tightly, then nodded. Yes, well, this may not put me in your good books, for I see that you are an uncommonly determined lady, but it is something I would rather pursue with Lord Carvey, if I am to be allowed. He won't be returning until after lunchtime. What will you propose doing in the interim? Mary blinked. Uh, well, waiting? I'm afraid that is quite impossible if you expect to sit in my drawing room for some four hours. No, no, said Mary rapidly. I could wait outside. It's all the same to me. Although this room is very beautiful. Some tea, cried Kay, kicking the door open and striding in with the tray. Lady Barbara shot her a savage look. So tell me, said Kay, sitting the tea down and turning to Mary. How was your trip? Come a long way? Is our guest to help herself? asked Lady Barbara. Mary regarded her carefully. No, no, of course not, laughed Kay, leaning forward. Sugar? A hint, said Mary. There. Thank you. Kay stretched back on the couch, raising her arms over her head. You're welcome. Where are you from? I came from a farm near Sheffield, said Mary, sitting back in her chair. I have been walking for a little over a week. How did you hear of Larry? 
grinned Kay, drawing another venomous look from her mother. You lived near here before, you said? Mary nodded. At the Jigger Farm, four years ago. Why did you leave? asked Lady Barbara sharply. Because I was unhappy, replied Mary softly. Bush! Few have that luxury at any level. Why? I was thrown out. Yes, said the old woman, casting a triumphant glance at her daughter. More like it. On what grounds? I was full of hatred for the appearances of this world. And this led you to what? Bitterness, spite, anger, a feeling of injustice. Yes, yes, said Lady Barbara, but why exactly were you evicted? Because I insulted Lord Carvey when he came to dinner, replied Mary. Oh, you remember, mother, said Kay. When Lawrence first came back, he went on his tour of the farmhouses where it all started. Was that when it happened? Yes, he talked of his reforms that night. How did you insult him? asked Lady Barbara. I suggested, though perhaps stated would be a more appropriate term, that he was not the rightful owner of his wealth. A free thinker. No, not really, if I may. I was very young at the time. It was not uh, me speaking, but a, a, a kind of devil. How strange, exclaimed Kay. Are you superstitious? No, replied the young woman evenly, looking straight at her. Not in the way you mean. Kay leaned forward. How do I mean? That's enough, said Lady Barbara. I have come to a decision. Really, mother, we were just talking. Oh, do be quiet. Young lady, you are not to stay here. In fact, you are never to speak to my son unless you are willing to incur my wrath which shall make being cast out of a farmhouse at a tender age a country picnic in comparison. And now I would appreciate it if you would leave immediately, without finishing your tea, and never set foot near my house or its lands again. Mary stared at the old woman for a moment, her face white and still, her eyes radiating a strange kind of chill. She shivered, a delicate peal ringing from her teacup. I hope I have done nothing to offend you, she said softly. I will, of course, respect your wishes. Mother! This kind of rudeness is utterly uncalled for, cried Kay, her eyes flashing. I find no offense in the young lady. Which is precisely why I do, replied Lady Barbara, rising and ringing the bell. Edith! There was an agonized pause as they listened to the maid's footsteps approaching the room. Yes, madam, said Edith, opening the door. Please escort the young lady out, she ordered, her face set. Edith, to whom Lady Barbara was the model of moral perfection, assumed a rather similar expression as she approached Mary. There is no need for this. I know the way, said Mary, standing suddenly. The sixth sense, which seemed awakened by her presence, detected a dismal haze of confusion and terror coming from the young woman, an unstable shimmering of conflict and desire. Lady Barbara found the sensation almost unbearable. Make haste, creature, she cried. Mary almost fled the room, closely followed by the maid, who made shooing motions with her hands as she pursued her out the door. Not a word, daughter, said Lady Barbara, taking a deep breath, rubbing her face, and almost dislodging her glasses. 
I am going to dress for a walk. With a last stern look, she walked out, head erect. Kay stood for a moment, agonizing at her indecision, then rushed to the window, flung back the lace, and threw the pane wide. She thrust her head through the opening like a caged bird, nosing a loose wicker door. Craning her neck, she saw Mary wandering down the path to the front gate of the house, her back held erect by an inhuman act of will. Suddenly Kay felt a chasm of sympathy, seeing in her mind's eye the struggle of a lost child with a blazing mind, a creature out of sorts with every waking moment, a soul whose future loomed like a shark, widening to snap every opportunity and shred every means of momentum. To be granted a mind, she thought, not mindless prejudice or blind conformity, and to have to beg charity from those who in freedom would be distant spectators to one's brilliance. Kay felt a sudden soulful inrush of breath as she glimpsed a very different view of the human horizon. Yes, she thought rapidly, there are many divisions in our lot, many who work and create with their hands, many who think clearly and steadily and go from A to B as if the learned alphabet were the only possible letters, and many who go to church and worship stained art in a kind of second-hand reverence. And why not? She also thought, we do not all have to reinvent the wheel to build a new carriage. We are not all born to view life firsthand to see its essence. Otherwise, we should starve in the pursuit of perfection, for who would till the fields in the span between what is and what is to come? But those who are? Kay was not so distant from the hub of thought to be unaware of the changes overtaking the wide fields of philosophy. She, too, knew the names of Locke, Bacon, Smith. She had read some of their works, her head spinning, rootless and fearful, in her excitement of the future. Yet these men were born and educated within the narrow crown of privilege, and Kay had a sudden vision of those with similar brilliance, those who labored over the broken shoes of horses, dreams of a better world finished to the last dotted eye, knotted under the cover of their grimy foreheads. All those scattered by the divinity of intelligence in a blind scattershot over the face of the world, regardless of means or privilege or possibility, like fertile seeds dropped from a blind wandering crow, falling even faster on the harsh rocks of poverty than into the lush earth of privilege. All this passed in rapid succession through Kay's mind, and she felt a wrenching of perspective that spun her from repressed daughter to agent of change, an acolyte of intelligence whose only job was to unlock the door, to scatter straw in the pews and stand in the darkness as the priests performed their rituals, the salvation. Yes, she thought with absolute finality, turning and running from the room, we all have a purpose. Reaching the gate, she saw Mary wandering up the narrow road towards the village. Kay ran after her thin form, heedless of her slippers. "'Miss O'Donnell!' she cried, panting, unused to exercise. The young woman turned, and Kay saw that her cheeks were lined with tears like streaks of chalk against a grey board. She stopped before the young woman and waved a hand, bowing her head to her knees in an attempt to regain her breath. 
Did I leave something behind? Asked Mary. It's unlikely. No, <laughs> no, listen, gasped Kay. I think, if I am right, that <coughs> you will know what I mean to say when I say, I understand. Mary gazed at her, her eyes deep and startled. She took a step forward, then back, wiping her cheeks with the back of her hand, smudging her tear tracks. What do you understand? She asked finally. <laughs> Exhaled Kay, standing and fanning her face. The sun was hot. The shielding leaves dissolved the fierce light into deep green shimmers. That's better. <coughs> Can we sit? On the road? There, there's a log, said Kay, indicating a skinned trunk beside the path. They sat for a few moments in silence. Mary's hand caressed the bare wood. She turned to look at Kay. Do you know I saw many trees like this when I was young? I wondered why men would strip the bark from trees like this. When I was nine, I saw why. Why? Just after Lent, a man, barely more than skin and bone, was caught at the Jigger farm, tearing the bark off the trees with his bare fingers. I have responsibilities, he cried when caught. He was hoping to make a kind of soup with the tree bark because his family had nothing to eat since they were turned off their land. It was quite a common practice until very recently. Still is, beyond these lands. That's awful. We have had so little grace in our history, said Mary, rubbing the smooth wood and looking up at the leaves. So little justice. The aristocracy got theirs. Those with the strength to work got enough, and the rest got bark soup and broken fingernails. Can you imagine that? Kay paused, looked at Mary, then gazed down at her own white slippers. I can imagine something worse, she murmured. Yes, I think you can, said Mary, gazing at her. And that is why you say you understand. When did you first know? Mary shrugged. There was never a time of not knowing, she replied. Oh, it must have been awful. It was. And I think it is over. Mary looked at Kay quickly, carefully. Is that in your power to say? My mother is of the old school, said Kay, if that makes any sense. Alone, I might not have the ability to change her mind. But Lawrence, he feels he owes you a great debt. Kay laughed nervously. <laughs> well, that's privileged information, of course, but somehow I trust you. I'm not sure I should be telling you this because you may use it wrongly. I don't think so. I have been trained to caution. Kay saw her words disappearing into Mary like birds into a deep well. I didn't think such reflections existed anymore. Or such memories, said Mary. Not all who have wronged you are wrong. No, perhaps. But when some chance incident has had such an effect on your life, it is hard to imagine the perpetrators remembering it, let alone acknowledging their fault. Yet I can be very useful to your brother, 
said Mary with a sudden unhinged smile, and perhaps to you too. These accomplishments of his, they are a stage, and an important stage, but only the beginning. What do you mean? Mary laughed shakily. <laughs> I will tell you when I have fully absorbed your kindness. I owe you a debt, both for having the empathy to see and the courage to defy your mother and wind yourself running after me, and to sit and listen to a grimy peasant girl barely worth her keep in material terms. It's no struggle to listen, smiled Kay, reaching out and touching Mary's thin forearm. And there are things that I shall want from you, too, in time. That is beyond wonderful to hear, said Mary, her eyes brimming. She turned and looked at the path for a moment, startled at a sound. There was a figure walking up the path. His high whistling was faintly audible. Mary leapt up violently, and her gaze shot like an arrow towards the distant figure. "'What is it?' asked Kay, standing up as well. "'Look at that man!' said Mary breathlessly, pointing. "'What about him?' "'He's an ally!' cried Mary. Oh, "'Never mind. One learns to see such signs.' "'What signs? The way he walks! He is eager, unafraid!' As they watched, the man leaned over, picked up something from the road, and popped it in his mouth. Straightening, he saw the two women waved and walked towards them. Startled by the flurry of movement beside her, Kay turned and watched as Mary beat her tattered dress, smoothed her wild hair, licked her palms, then rubbed her face violently. "'Ah, ladies!' called the man pleasantly, waving. "'Best of the morning to you. I am looking for the Carvey Mansion. Is this the right path?' "'Yes, but they don't see peddlers,' called Kay. "'You will be turned away at the door.' "'Quite right,' grinned the man, stopping in front of them. He was tall, slender, and quite young. His cap was pushed far back on his head, and his fair hair lay in lank strands over his broad forehead. His face was handsome in a rough sort of way, his brown eyes merry and open. "'Sensible precautions in these uncertain times,' he said, spitting a pebble onto the path and smiling apologetically for the thirst. "'Were I a mere hawker of wares, I would heed your warning and turn my heels immediately, right smart. Yet I see before me a strange sight, a woman who obviously belongs to a regal house, sitting in the woods with a peasant girl of uncanny appearance. Things I would like to know more about,' as my name is Adam Footer. He extended his hand towards Kay. Mary grabbed it tightly, then Kay found herself also shaking it. Yes, quite a beautiful day, continued Adam, staring at Mary and rubbing his fingers. A day when a man yearns for the lazings of his betters to enjoy it properly. I have been walking since before dawn and thinking many strange thoughts on the beauty of this world, for that is my trade, if trade you want to call it, the beauty of this world. "'What exactly do you sell, Mr. Footer?' asked Kay, intrigued despite herself. "'Ah, what do I sell? There it is, in a nutshell, although the answer cannot be contained in such a space,' laughed Adam. "'I sell marriage and the reflection of fair cheeks. I sell freedom from disease and ugliness, golden traps for happily eccentric gentlemen, and earthy traps for sun-baked lads of fourteen. I sell bounty.' and pleasure for the things of the flesh, along with visions of angels and spotless dreams for those aspiring to divinity. I sell magic, in a word, and those that call me a liar are the unimaginative few. A strange pitch, observed Kay, opaque 
although pleasantly expressed. Yes, well, expression is the heart of the matter. Look at you, my young pretty, said Adam, regarding Mary with twinkling eyes. I see none of the glow of good marriage about you, and I do not for a moment believe that you would settle for anything less. But then it would take nothing less than an eagle to see your loveliness behind your apparel. This dress, how old? Three years? Five? I don't remember, said Mary, blushing fiercely. And why should you have to? cried Adam. That's my question. That cut comes from the Sheffield area, or take my hair. A shilling? If it was a penny rough to the skin, I'm surprised you were not sanded to a skeleton. Greek statues cased in burlap come to mind when I behold such incongruities, and why should it be so? Is there not a new world dawning? Have not sheep now multiplied tenfold for the beautification of women? Are not these new fabrics a godsend and admirable canvas on which to hang eternal pictures of loveliness? For, since you asked, he said, turning to Kay, that is what I sell, and proud I am of it too. Cloth, asked Kay. Adam smiled. No, not me. That is for those with agile fingers, not agile minds. I sell the means to cloth, if you'll excuse the phrase. I sell power looms, or rather rent them, for to sell them would be to give them, given the means of most peasants. Then why are you going to my house? asked Kay. Are you expecting us to set up shop in our drawing room? Oh, no, smiled Adam. A new world is dawning, but one sun is rising while the other has yet to set, if you catch my meaning. Young Lord Carvey is the master of all he surveys, and it has not escaped my attention that he is also master of certain changes. A master which has drawn me here like a bee to honey. I will go to him and say, I carry the new world in my rucksack, but if you wish to stay with the old, I shall depart unoffended, for not everyone is born to rebel against scarcity." And there is precious little understanding in this land about the value of sheep, for many believe that the wool market has turned sheep into wolves, into rabid beasts that hound the worthy off their lands and drive them to the woods to live on berries. Such is not my opinion, not by a long shot, but only the power of persuasion lies between dreams and achievement. Lord Carvey has looked into the matter of sheep, said Kay. It has not proven viable, despite your eloquence. Yes, and this time he looked. It was when? Um, about a year ago. Ah, said Adam with a deep sigh of relief. That was before landowners became acquainted with a certain device. A device whose power it was to fulfill their wildest dreams. A device called a power loom. You've heard of it? Yes, said Mary, leaning forward. Yes, I have heard of it. Do you have one? I'm not so tall that I can carry 200 pounds on an afternoon stroll, grinned Adam, unslinging his rucksack. I find the conveyance of certain drawings far more convenient. He pulled out a wide sheet of vellum from his pack, untied it carefully, and spread it out on the path. There she is, said Adam proudly as they knelt over the drawing. I can get you five in the span of a week, more if you need, and in the wink of an eye your fortunes will rise as you had never thought possible. You'll get ten, twelve times more cloth than doing it by hand. With industry, she'll pay for herself in a single season. Lord Carvey has been wizard with the crops, but there's nothing to do with such bounty but grow more, and transport is still spotty. With this, he can grow enough for want and turn the rest to weaving. Two directions. Boom! Boom! Nothing to come but gold. Piles of it, and no end in sight. Go. Go up to the house, whispered Mary reverently. But wait until after lunch. 
Who are you to say? asked Kay sternly, then regretted it immediately. Mr. Footer, I will broach the subject with Lord Carvey, for he is my brother, as you have doubtless guessed. Lady, said Adam with his bow, I am eternally in your debt, but I would be a liar if I didn't broach one small hesitation. What is that? Adam frowned and pulled his cap a few inches forward. You are a worthy lady, lovely as spring and smart as summer, but I am indeed called a fair seller and would be most happy to be given the opportunity to state my case and reasons in person. For though you are marked with intelligence, you lack the knowledge to answer all possible questions. That is my livelihood, as it were, and for the betterment of all, I should appreciate the chance to exercise it. Yes, perhaps, but and though I would welcome nothing more than a world where you alone had the power of purchase, such a world must be won by bounty, and if such a world appeals to you as well, you will let me aid you in this way. Kay smiled. Mary, what do you think? I think, said Mary, that your brother will thank you greatly if you let Mr. Footer speak to him. And it would more than make up for the shoes, murmured Kay. All right, Mr. Footer, come mid-afternoon, and I shall guarantee you an audience with my brother. Adam smiled, rolling up his paper. Then you are indeed a worthy lady, and if I might trouble you for a few syllables more, I would ask if there is not a pleasant spot near here to drink and nap where the sun is mild. Kay smiled. Of course, if you follow this path for a half-mile more, you will see a smaller one going towards the west. Follow it for a hundred yards or so, and you will come to a swimming hole. Just take care to thrash around as you approach, for some of our maids have been known to swim there on such a day as this. I shall be doubly careful, said Adam. Good day, then. He nodded, touched his cap, and walked off down the road. Insects drifted around his head like dandelions. Shadows shifted over his creasing shirt as he walked away. You shouldn't be so obvious, you know, said Kay. And it felt strange to talk to Mary in this way, almost as a comrade and she suddenly felt the absence of a female friend, of things whispered, and a pang ran through her heart. Was I obvious? asked Mary dreamily. Kay saw in a glance that the depth of her vision indicated a starvation of friendship that she would scarcely have believed possible. Perhaps obvious is not the right word, she commented. Fanatic may be more apt. Oh, there are so few of them, these good souls. Have you ever noticed? Come to one of my dances sometime, laughed Kay, then swallowed. Never mind. The thing to do is to find you a place to stay until Lawrence and I can change Mother's mind. Mary shuddered, shaking her head. Please don't suggest the jiggers. No. Is there anyone else you remember? Mary frowned, as if struck by a sudden memory. Tell me, is Knotted Bob still alive? Knotted Bob? Who's that? He's a cripple, a rheumatic. Ancient. Oh, I didn't know that was his name. He used to work at the Jiggers, yes? Yes. He has a little cottage. Lawrence gives him some money on occasion. He's up the road a ways, towards the village, where the Mondays used to live. You know the way? Can you make it alone? Oh, yes, replied Mary. Listen. I want to thank you. I had no idea that such a wild scheme would meet with such luck, such goodness. 
Don't thank me, smiled Kay. I plan to put you to good use, but you're welcome anyway. I have the feeling that we may become some sort of friend to each other, said Mary, blushing. As far as that is possible. Kay clasped her hand warmly. Mary turned her head, overcome. I am sure of it, Mary, said Kay. Call on me tomorrow morning. We will try to make some arrangements. Thank you, Kay, whispered Mary. After they parted, Kay turned for a moment to watch Mary's thin form walking towards the bright haze of high summer. She felt a sudden rush of pity and found herself quite sick at heart when she finally mounted the steps to her own home. Chapter 6 A Meeting of Memories Knotted Bob was not shocked when the door of his cottage opened and he saw Mary standing in the doorway. He was not jaded, of course, nor senile, but he had lived quite long enough to realize that the number of coincidences in one life should never be underestimated. Mary stood in the doorway, thin, erect, her eyes blank and impenetrable. Knotted Bob sat in his chair, the steam of fresh tea rising before him, obscuring his view of her. Come in, Mary O'Donnell, he said. Thank you, she said, entering and taking the only available seat. The room was the whole cottage. The floor was hard earth, the cracks in the walls had been covered with mud, and there were soot stains around the hole in the roof over the fire. An iron pot stood on an old table in the corner next to a pile of straw on the floor, covered with a tattered blanket, whose brown color did not suggest aesthetic choice. Few people ever came to visit Knotted Bob, but those who did inevitably flinched as they entered, some sixth sense telling them his walls were unlikely to survive a violent sneeze. The tiny window was crowded by tree branches, in a manner that suggested subtle threat rather than pleasant view. Nature seemed to be waging war in inches. Under the threatening embrace of the trees, the cottage was changing from proud shelter to shrinking hostage. The crushing intimacy of nature was also evident in the scurrying of beetles and flies in the narrow room. Creatures so used to indifferent liberty that they turned beady eyes to Mary's entrance only for a moment, before returning their scant attentions back to the incessant quest for food. "'Good afternoon, nodded Bob,' said Mary finally. The old man nodded. "'And fair after ye, Mary O'Donnell. "'How have you been?' "'Creaking over the horizon. And ye?' "'Well,' laughed Mary. "'Well.' "'Why have ye returned?' asked nodded Bob. For good, replied Mary. To offer my services to Lord Carvey. Aye, he said, holding her gaze. What services? I am here to show him a better path. As you remember, he offered me aid when I last saw him. I remember, said the old man. I also remember that ye swore bloody vengeance. Is that a concern of yours, even if it were still true? 
I do not believe that such spears as you raised that night can ever be lowered. Why is it your concern? Because we be doing very nicely here, thank ye. He is kind enough to give me a little, and the reforms he is master of have given the villagers enough leftovers to toss me a few scraps. And if ye hain't noticed, they'll be plenty better off now than four year ago. All because of Lord Carvey, so I ask ye again. Do ye plan vengeance? Mary shook her head slightly. <laughs> what possible threat could I be? A little orphan girl. Knotted Bob scowled. Don't be dark. We both know there is more to the world than just what can be seen. Will I destroy his fortune, rend his family, and rule in his nest? Poor Bob. Is it not enough that I am willing to take any position that will allow my mind some spread? Knotted Bob clasped his hands and looked at her evenly. Nay, he said finally. I do not believe for a moment that ye can limit yourself to what is only possible. And I also believe that if ye applied yourself fully, ye would be able to devise a terrible vengeance, a vengeance in which ye would also destroy yourself if need be. There was a tiny creak as Mary took his ancient hand in hers. Do you remember? She said softly, searching his eyes. I was an angry child. But I swear upon God that I have made my peace with my fate. Please accept my word of honor, for I swear by all the intelligence I possess that I intend no evil here. He looked at her for a long moment, then nodded. Thank you, said Mary. You spoke of patience. At our last meeting, I have taken what you said to heart, and I intend to apply it fully. Soon I hope to have secured a place in the Carvey household. If I can stay with you for a short time, I will be forever in your debt. The old man looked at her for a long moment. Her eyes were clear. Sunlight streamed past him from the tiny window, brightening his white hair. Then he whispered involuntarily, God help him. Mary smiled and dropped his hand. He had his chance. Chapter 7 A Capital Seduction Lawrence grumbled aloud as he rode towards home. Water obsessed him. Water and the mold it always bred. Damn it! he thought, repeatedly grinding his teeth. We have so much bounty. We have wrestled nature to the ground. Now we stand back and wipe her spittle from our face, for she is having the last laugh. The word, progress, had begun to jeer at him in a strange way, and he began to realize what complexities accompany any forward thrusting of human possibilities. If only we had better roads, he thought. If only we had faster horses or richer neighbors, then none of this would be happening. Piles of wheat and barley, twice as much of the latter for Lawrence's county, was a hard-drinking one, lay in the fields, each grain, a jewel, a possible barrier between life and death, all lay in heaps emitting the kind of odor that caused even the pigs to turn up their noses and waddle off. Yet the cows had become so stuffed with forage crops that they walked about on unsteady legs and lowed so plaintively that one feared that 
If they stumbled, they would burst. Geese no longer had to have their wings clipped, for all laws of airborne physics bowed to their immense girth. Sows had to be regularly felt to discover pregnancy, for they gave evidence of piglets only by dropping them in the dirt. Even the cursed scavengers of agriculture, the crows, jackdaws, and sparrows, found it laborious to make the journey from their creaking nests to the full fields of wasting plenty. Yet what is to be done? muttered Lawrence for the thousandth time, shading his unprotected eyes from the blinding sun. Half of England may be starving by next Lent, he thought, grinding his teeth in frustration. And here is food enough for a thousand, rotting away for lack of transport. It is enough to drive a man mad. Through the trees, he caught a signal of sorts, a reminder of one of nature's kinder profiles. The gleam of sunlight on water rippled through the hanging branches, and Lawrence found himself smiling at the memory of a hundred bathes. Well, why not? he muttered, swinging his horse off the path and heading towards the swimming pond. There is no more to be done today. Lawrence was quite surprised at the sight of the man. The last nearby residence had died years before, and since that time he had never seen another soul near the pond. Lady Barbara had forbidden the maids to bathe there, hinting at dark conspiracies of peeping village boys. Thus he did not expect to see a naked man lying beside it, fast asleep, his feet immersed in the cool water, his head resting on a little backpack. Lawrence was startled, but this did not shake his sense of proportion or of ownership. "'Excuse me!' he cried, in no mood for trespassers. The man opened his eyes lazily, obviously struggling to remember where he was. He sat up, propping himself on his elbows, squinting towards the voice. "'Excuse me, this is private property, my man, and it would be best if you took yourself off immediately,' ordered Lawrence. "'Oh, uh, excuse me, sir,' said the man, standing up with neither haste nor modesty. Lawrence could not help but admire the leanness of his form. "'You are a traveller? he asked. "'Yes, sir,' said the man, putting on a pair of trousers. He leant over the water and splashed his face vigorously. "'I'm sorry if I've caused any inconvenience. The young lady of the house suggested this spot.' "'Did she?' asked Lawrence. He didn't think that Kay even remembered the pond it had been so many years since she had used it. "'And what business did you have talking with the lady of the house?' She was kind enough to promise me an appointment with the master of these lands, the young Lawrence Carvey. To what end? Why, to both our ends, to be sure, said the man, shaking his wet head violently and fitting his cap over his ears. Ah, she's a lovely temperature, good sir, he said with a grin, indicating the rippling water. I hope you enjoy your bathe. Wait just a moment, said Lawrence. I am Lord Carvey. If you have business with me, state it now. The man stared at him for a moment, then struck his head comically, almost knocking his cap off. "'Bless me, sir!' he cried. "'What a misfortune! Here I was thinking how lucky I was to have a good bathe before meeting you. 
I was thinking, here, my good Adam, here's a chance the like of which you're not like to see twice. Here's your chance to talk with a man who half agrees with you already, who is of a like mind about the beauty of this world, who is wise enough to take no offense when you point out a better way. I was thinking all this and more, too, sir, when I happened to drop off. The next thing, oh, what else? I wake up without even my skivvies between myself and the object of my quest, and a trespasser to boot, and... I don't even know enough to think whose land this stranger might be ordering me off of. Damn me for an unthinking fool, sir, and don't hold it against me. This is the first leisure I've had this last month. Lawrence stared at him for a moment. Unless you are more than your appearance suggests, I think it best if you take whatever goods you have in your bag and be off, for I have no time for peddlers. Adam lowered his head and shook it slowly. Then I have really shown my lesser side, for if I leave now... We shall both be left the poorer. For I couldn't help but notice an odd odour in the air as I walked here this morning, my lord. What odour? snapped Lawrence. Why, the stench of lost crops, sir, said Adam, as if surprised at the question. Certain that is the scent of death for most communities, for it means that they will have only empty hands for seed crops come spring. But here I thought it may well be the scent of overabundant life, the scent of a productivity whose planning has been of great concern and whose disposal very little. What, and you, you plan to rid me of such results? You, you, you plan to wave a wand and transport my crops? demanded Lawrence. No, sir. If you have a better solution, out with it, and quickly, too. It's not I who can help with your loss, sir, said Adam, making a small bow. But a device I would desire to acquaint you with. And what might that be? I keep it in a bag, sir, grinned Adam, opening his knapsack and pulling out the sheaf of drawings. A power loom is what it's called, and it may be the answer to what seems to be irritating you so greatly. Lawrence scowled. I'm not unaware of this device. In fact, I've seen one myself at a fair in Coventry. It interests me not at all. Certainly, said Adam easily, smoothing the drawings over a dry patch of earth. I saw the same version myself, and I thought... That's an exhibit for some future museum, for sure as God, that'll be the only use it will ever have in this world. Makes the wool a little straighter, and if you're making it for export alone, it might be a little helpful. But for those seeking to improve the earth they walk on, it's little more than extra wood to dry clothes on. But this treasure is worlds apart from that device. Look here. He pointed. Lawrence leaned forward. The wool comes in here, and you don't need anyone to feed it or keep it straight. You can change shuttles without stopping the loom. Here, these devices stop the loom if the warp or weft breaks, or the shuttle don't make it all the way across. Built solid, you can see the iron reinforcements here, here, and the market is fresh and ripe for the taking. America is still shy of these devices, and with Holland back to Spain, they're gone as major competitors. Strike one for the English merchants. Care of God Almighty. This is the future, Lord Carvey. This is the grace of God opening the door of plenty a crack, just enough to wedge our way through. You want a glimpse of the new world? Who needs to go to America? Here it is, lying on the ground in front of you. How many does it take to operate it? One, sir, cried Adam. Just one. And at the end of the day, you have a pretty pile of cloth lying at your feet, fit to clothe the cold and comfort the humble ten times the amount hands alone could make. Ten. And if that isn't magic, I am a pagan. Save in Scotland, sheep have never known such love. I can help you 
In many areas, Lord Carvey, you need shearers, scissors, dips, or transportation. I can help you. Who do you represent? asked Lawrence, his mind racing madly. Adam straightened slowly. Represent? I represent myself, sir. Perhaps you don't understand, said Lawrence slowly. Which firm do you represent? What is your market? The firm of Adam Footer, sir. There's none I report to save my own ambition. I have my own contacts. Uh, it was a friend of my father's who first came up with such a device, or the idea, at least. Sir, I said, you hold the salvation of poverty in your hand, but if it sits there untended, you may as well have been born an idiot. I made the first model, tested it, and rendered it sound. I journeyed to London to discover if there was a market for such a device, and discovered that I needn't consult anyone. I saw the whole market in London. I was there in January of this year. I saw them huddled in old doorways, warming their babies' toes over little ash pots and burning the hair of the dead to stay warm, their poor bodies trembling under torn blankets. And I thought to myself, why do I need to consult experts in trade? I can sell my woolens to these poor souls. I can sell them for the price of a loaf for two hours' labor and give them the strength to earn much more. The market, sir, the market is wherever the wretched have a penny to their name or arms willing to work. I can give a man a coat if he's willing to push the shuttle for a week, and there's more than enough of them. He doesn't have to be strong, he doesn't have to hoist forty-pound sheaves of wheat or wrestle sows to the ground. All I ask is a steady hand and the ability to stay awake. That's all. And in return, I can give him warmth enough to last a lifetime." Adam's eyes were aglow, and all merriment had left his face. Lawrence watched him carefully, trying to determine if the man was a gifted entrepreneur or hopelessly insane. The former is probably contained in the latter, he thought. I find your claims outlandish, Mr. Footer, he said finally, but I can find no structural faults in your design. If it works, it is a most remarkable device. Yet the fact that you have shown me its workings, workings that are more a leap of intuition than engineering genius, along with the admission that you are working alone, leads me to suspect that you are having great difficulty selling your device. This puts me in a certain position, a position I want to make very clear. If you are looking for an investor, you will have to look elsewhere. The majority of my family's funds, and here you will note that I am being exceedingly open, are tied up in the agricultural improvements that no doubt drew you to me first. Yet the question arises, why have you not gone to one of the great merchants with this idea? They have capital enough to fund you to your heart's content. Yes, sir, that is true, nodded Adam. Yet they are competitive men and have competitive concerns. A few were willing to buy a few of my machines as long as I agreed to build no more. Others feel that their most noble course is to earn enough to put their mercantile past behind them and become members of the aristocracy. They fund enough ships to obtain titles and retire to the country to ape their betters. The rest are not enthusiastic about the possibilities of the poor having liberty to think about greater things than poverty. Lawrence smiled. I can imagine that. Thus, I would be in the position of privileged buyer. I am perhaps the only man in this part of England open-minded enough to see the value of your device. Adam closed his eyes. That was my hope, sir. Tell me, how long does it take to make one of these contraptions? Two men? Three days, sir. Four, if you want to add the iron supports, which you need if you want to transport them safely. How many do you have? One, sir. 
One? Only one? It has been an uphill struggle, sir, admitted Adam. I don't have the means to commission more. I see, said Lawrence. I'm sure you understand that I cannot act alone in such a decision. Mine is a family concern, and if I decide to look further into this opportunity, it will have to be approved of by my mother and sister. Yes, your sister, said Adam with a grin. A most worthy lady. She was quite a tyrant with your time. Lawrence smiled. I can imagine. And what strategy did you use to pass her vigilance? I'm not sure, sir, said Adam, although she did mention shoes, the relevance of which escaped me. <laughs> shoes, oh yes, said Lawrence, laughing despite himself. Well, that would explain it. All right, secure yourself a place in town, Mr. Footer, and call on me tomorrow afternoon. I want you to present your case to my mother. Certainly, sir. I would be glad to. I assume a more appropriate dress would be in order, for if there is anything I have heard about your venerable mother, it is that she is the heart and soul of correctness. Quite true. Assuming that you have no means to procure such finery, unless these are only your traveling clothes, which, judging from the size of your sack, they are not, I will have some clothing sent to you tomorrow morning, care of the inn. Thank you, sir, said Adam, putting his drawings away and picking up his knapsack. He slung it over his shoulder, bowed, and strode off towards the path. Lawrence watched him go, his mind racing. "'Oh, sir,' called Adam from the far side of the still pond. "'One other thing, just for personal curiosity. "'What is the ratio of yield to seed on your lands?' Eight to one,' replied Lawrence proudly. Eight to one.' The sum struck Adam like a blow. He stared at the young lord, his eyes burning. Eight to one! Yes, that's a pretty sum to be sure. Though the hordes that feed on the poor may bar our way. Yours for the future, my lord! He cried, then waved and disappeared through the trees. Lawrence sat down on a span of bare earth, rubbing his beard and staring out over the water. Tiny mites sprang on delicate legs over the surface tension, chasing, circling, their movements radiating in tiny ripples of water. From the murky world of lilies came the guttural bleating of frogs. He picked up a stone and flung it high over the water, then leaned back his head and laughed loudly. <laughs> For heaven's sake, he cried, privileged fire, from what recesses did that spring from? Well, from whatever recesses, let it spring, for better or for worse. The stone fell with a throaty splash. The mites panicked, then scurried off to worship it. Chapter 8 A Frowning Temple Kay waited until the civility of family breakfast before broaching the subject of Mary again. The image of the girl had kept her up all night. Drifting through the endless corridors of considered dreaming, she kept bumping into Mary's face, a face that was wild and pleading, pleading because it knew no other way, wild, because it had to plead. She sat down for breakfast with a strange sort of certainty, a certainty that Mary would never find peace in this life. "'You seem uncommonly absorbed this morning, Lawrence.' commented Lady Barbara, thinly buttering a slice of toast. Her ability to exist on toast and tea was a source of constant amazement for her family. 
both, Kay and Lawrence often exhorted her to expand her culinary horizons, but she still regarded fruit as an exotic titbit best reserved for visitors and refused meat to protest her late husband's penchant for a good hunt. The breakfast table was in the sunroom. To keep me in touch with the land, Lawrence's father used to say. But that morning's view was of a land one would be better off keeping a civilized distance from. The ancient trellis sagged like the broken bones of an old crossword, and the faint drizzle seemed determined to erase all memories of sunlight from the world. Lady Barbara had little time for gardens. She considered anything to do with the earth quite undignified, and since Lawrence had fired the last gardener for uprooting what he thought was garbage, but was, in fact, an experimental dandelion mulch, the garden had fallen into a state of rather depressing disrepair. "'I had a right old scare at the Jigger Farm yesterday,' said Lawrence reluctantly, in answer to his mother's comment. "'We are producing too much, as I warned you last year, if you recall,' said Lady Barbara. "'Yes, as you did. Thank you,' he said. "'It's all going to waste out in the field.' Damn, but I wish we had some decent roads. I've been racking my brains all night, but I can't wish it from here to anywhere, so it will just have to rot where it lies. Yet you are still absorbed, despite your obvious failure in this matter, commented his mother. Again, thank you, mother, but I'm absorbed because I was pitched to yesterday, and a most unusual pitch it was, too. Oh, exclaimed Kay, her face reddening. Was that Mr. Footer? I, I, I forgot to tell you. Lawrence waved a hand and turned to his mother. No matter. He's quite a salesman, mother. Uh, Seems all afire with a sort of mission. He's got a new kind of loom, one that requires only one person to operate it, and, so he claims, can produce ten times what can be made by hand. Given the sorry state of our harvest, he set me to thinking. And so? asked Lady Barbara. Well, I was thinking that... What if we turn some of our lands over to sheep... We have more than enough to feed our inhabitants with, say, half the land we now use, and if we turned the other half over to sheep, we would, with this new loom, have scads of wool to process. Perhaps we could even set up a factory here, somewhere on the lands, perhaps out by the Mundys. The road that way is quite good. Or send it to Wharton. It's only ten miles as the crow flies. We could extend the road and ship it overseas. But I don't think that will be necessary, for there is demand enough right here in England, in London, and the other major towns. Yes, yes interrupted Lady Barbara. Very expensive. And what, pray, were you planning to use as capital for these expenses? As I see it, you've listed off a king's ransom of improvements. The sheep, the factory, the roads, extra horses and carts for transportation, insurance, and all rights, said Lawrence, raising a hand. All right. They're just ideas. For now. Well, if it's ideas you're after, she said suddenly, I have a far better one. Let things be. Lawrence blinked. Um, sorry? Yes, I thought you might have trouble with that one, said his mother. Let me explain slowly. Observe that your initial reforms have led you to require more. Observe that the excess crops you worked so hard to achieve have now filled you with visions of being the grand shepherd of all kingdom come, and if there's a dirtier, smellier beast, I have yet to encounter it. To be fair, I have shown a great deal of patience with this idea of progress, though to be truthful, I expected such an outcome. But some time, all of this has got to stop, else the whole world will wear itself out running after a future with faster feet. 
Lady Barbara put down her knife with a slight clatter. Look at you. When was the last time you opened a book with something other than turnips in the title? Your father spent a small fortune on a good education for you, if you recall. What is the Greek word for culture? You've forgotten, of course. Lady Barbara's eyes were like twin drills boring into her son. Lawrence, I have seen this fantasy of yours through a certain distance, but if you do not see, and soon, that there is more to life than more and more, I shall be forced to cancel the allowance I have released for your experiments. You have produced more food. Well, good. Now people have enough to eat. Last time I looked, they also had clothes on their backs, yet now you want to give them better clothes, and that means disturbing their certainty of a good meal at the end of the day. Well, I, for one, say that there is more to man than a desire for better clothes. There are such things as art, culture, beauty, even for your farmers. The last play was staged over a year ago. No. Now they are restless and reading that damnable Mr. Payne, and I don't know what nonsense. If we have more, they say, why didn't we have more before? How much more can we have? Why does my neighbor have more, and how can I get it? Mother, started Lawrence, his face pale. Kay watched him, fascinated. Not just yet, young man, interrupted Lady Barbara. I have held my peace for four years. You will listen to me for five minutes. Father Jones was here yesterday afternoon in quite an agitated state. He was here to talk with you, but you had forgotten his appointment in your haste for business. Have you ever given thought to the fact that while you are stuffing your farmers full of all sorts of goodies, their souls may well be wasting away? But of course not. That doesn't show up on your ledgers. Please, mother, for heaven's sake, cried Lawrence. Well, you might say, exclaimed Lady Barbara, although not in vain. Listen well. The conceit of wisdom is in your generation, in both of you. Man does not live by bread or wool alone. Have you looked at the parish register lately, or does that ledger leave you unmoved as well? Church attendance has plummeted since the beginning of your reforms. Why is that? Is this not the lure of Satan, that Christ should have the world for his dominion? No, he made the right choice. He gave loaves and fishes so that people may sit and hear a truth which contains something greater than more loaves and fishes. Yet that has no meaning for you. You say that to have more is to have enough that it is all a matter of quantity, not quality, that man is all belly and no soul, and has no need to strive for something beyond this world, no need to care for his immortal soul. And that belief shall be your downfall. Mark my words. That belief shall overturn the world, over from the regard of heaven to the grasping actions of this earth, and none shall be the happier or wiser. All shall be discontent, all shall clamor for the satiation of physical desires and wonder why nothing they consume feeds their deepest hunger, their hunger for beauty and truth and a meaning for this life. Is this what you have to offer? I say, enough. Enough dreams of more sheep and roads and ships and factories. Leave it be. Leave it be. Lady Barbara finished her speech, a speech delivered with the passion of long and silent deliberation. Her children sat, dumbfounded, staring at her, their tea long gone cold before them. Kay suddenly glanced at Lawrence, and was astounded to see a glimmer of doubt in his eyes. She felt a dark thrill in her belly, <gasps> that he of all people should doubt. This, about the church, is it true? He asked. I do not argue for argument's sake, 
snapped his mother. Father Jones has shown me the figures. Less than half, if you have a mind to hear. Half! Tell me, why is that? Lawrence rubbed his beard. That is quite unexpected. It shouldn't be, if you had a smattering of intelligence about something other than crops. And what sort of example are you offering? When was the last time your able frame darkened the chapel door? Two years ago? Three? I am forced to go on my own and say, Oh no, my son is praying hard on his own, hard for the knowledge that keeps your congregation from their rightful place. And what of this strange irritation that has become your habit of late, hmm? To what do you ascribe that? Have I been bad-tempered lately? asked Lawrence. Lady Barbara snorted, and this breach of etiquette impressed on her children the true depth of her feeling. Bad-tempered, irritable, and downright rude. But you know the answer to this far better than I. It's true, murmured Lawrence. I have been feeling strangely uneasy of late. It's funny, I didn't even think about it until you brought it up. But over the last few weeks, one thing after another has kept me up at night, almost as if I were afraid of going to sleep. Kay raised a hand tentatively. I think you were overworked, and you have taken on a great deal of worries that, to me at least, would be quite unmanageable. Strangely enough, they didn't seem to hear her. Lady Barbara stared at her son, but the harshness in her eyes was fading. This... That you can admit your trouble so openly shows your nobility well, and your path to redemption clear. Redemption? exclaimed Lawrence. Redemption? For what sin? For the sin of this world, replied his mother. For the sin of living for this world. Here is where we part ways, replied Lawrence. For I have never believed in a God who demands suffering from his flock. Yet you are suffering said Lady Barbara. I can see it in your eyes. No, not a lot, not yet. But it will come. It matters little what you believe now. It will come. Lawrence rose and walked over to the window, staring out at the faint rain. He stood for a long time, and Kay felt an utter stranger to the currents passing between her brother and their mother's watchful gaze. Lawrence suddenly shook his head as if trying to clear water from his ears and turned around. There is a man coming here this afternoon, he said quietly. I was originally going to have him speak to us, even you, Kay, this Mr. Footer. But I find myself at a sort of crossroads. Yes, I understand you, Mother. Yet, we are two different people, and I have never believed in your God. I think there is a value to the wisdom of this world. I think that God gives a vision to certain souls out of love for the rest. Souls which are able to create a faint vision of heaven in the here and now. Of course, you will call it a blasphemy. And I also think it is a blasphemy to live a life of luxury in a land of want, and to give no thoughts to the lives of those without our natural advantages. I believe that people went to church partly to escape the horrors of their lives, and now they have left God behind in the joys of the present. But I think the time will come when they turn from fearful worship to worshipful love. Yeah. We are enthusiasts of plenty, and we turn to this earth to wrestle more from its bosom, and perhaps in the process we forget many higher things. But, but that is only now. Only for now. You honestly believe 
I give no thought to the lives of the poor, demanded Lady Barbara. Yes, I know you do, but... The poor should not pray because they have been starved to their knees, replied Lawrence, standing before the window, his face framed by the drizzle beyond the glass. The idea of more... I don't know where it will lead. And yes, perhaps my soul, for want of a better word, has languished in my concern for the things of this world. But I will still speak with this man. With reservations. That is as you see fit, son, said Lady Barbara, rising and patting her cheeks with a napkin. But have a care for the future, Lawrence. For distance from God is also distance from reverence of many things. Privilege nobility, morality, and yes, perhaps, aristocracy as well. Have a care for the future, and for your children who will have to live there. Will, said Lawrence. Lady Barbara looked at him for a long time, then nodded and left the room. Lawrence, said Kay. Lawrence, what? That woman, um, Mary O'Donnell, she, she, she came here yesterday. Yes. She is the woman you wronged years ago. Lawrence turned to her, his face, still. Mother wouldn't let her stay. I asked, I, I was, I was quite firm, but sometimes I think that she doesn't hold me in the same regard as you. She got really vicious, Larry, said Kay, her voice faltering. I wish I had the certainty you do. No, you don't. Trust me, he replied. It's not the secret you're after. What? What What? What do you mean? Never mind. What did she want? She wanted to, uh, to help you, she said. She, she was quick to point out the absurdity of that, of course. She seems to know her place. She also seems religious, though in an odd way. What do you mean? She spoke of being possessed by a kind of devil when she last spoke to you. I asked her if she was superstitious. I was quite surprised. And she said, No, not in the way you mean. Then Mother threw her out, and I, I, I never got a chance to ask her what she meant. Well, I ran after her, but I, <laughs> I forgot about it. That was when we met Mr. Footer. How odd, mused Lawrence. She's very well spoken. She knows all about your agricultural reforms. Intelligent? Very intelligent. Or a little unbalanced. Kay shivered and laughed. I got such a sense of vastness from her, as if she were regarding me from a great distance, at the same time as talking quite intimately. Lawrence ran his fingers through his hair. I don't know if I can take on another. I would say, talk to her. It will do no harm. He hesitated, then nodded slowly. Yes, he said, turning back to face the rain again. I can do that much, at least. Chapter 9 A Sunrise Lord Serbs was a city man. He was so much of a city man that all thoughts of his lineage seemed vaguely anachronistic, for it was utterly unimaginable that his ancestors should have done anything other than live fashionably in the heart of London. Their profiles before the invention of beaver hats were unimaginable, and their conversations before the age of reason unfathomable. 
It was supposed that the ancestors of Lord Serbs had spent the entire Middle Ages in complete silence, waiting for the dry weight of theological scholasticism to surrender to the civilized pleasures of rational discourse. Lord Serbs was also a man of his age, an age of individualism, of skepticism, of endless questioning and deep self-reliance. No longer was a man's height measured only by the stretch of ears he could command at the king's court. European man had stumbled over the corpse of Greek antiquity, and the part of him that had fallen was the part that had formerly drawn him upwards to guard and king and murderously fashionable favor. What remained was the often perplexed but rarely vanquished faculty of reason, a faculty that relished stripping the gilded cloth from habitual certainty, that answered every yes with a why, and had little patience for the stern scowlings of tradition. It was an age of paradoxes, of contradictions and conundrums so complex that philosophers rose above them like balloons over a frenzy of warring armies. It was an age of clarity and myth. Clarity attempted to encircle myth, blocking off the avenues of miracles and magical favors. Myth spat back the poisons of sin and mortal indifference. God was cast from his seat of miracles to a distant watchmaker's bench, the spectator of a machine set in motion and cast aside. Wealthy philosophers viewed the distant horizons of nature with impartial and confident eyes, evicting from the clogged recesses of cause and effect the fairies and goblins they saw as the messy tenants in an ordered house. "'Down with superstition!' they cried through their lofty trumpets, never questioning the source of their volume. "'Down with the subjugation of man!' they cried, forgetting the piles of poor who gave them such height. "'Down with religion!' they cried, unheedful of the necessary myths of appropriated wealth. Such were the times, and such was the person of Lord Serbs. He was a tall man, slender and well-formed. His cheekbones, jawline, and chin all spoke of a passionate asceticism, a commitment to knowledge and life that broke all divisions between thought and action. Of his youth, it could be said that all was struggle, but that would be a patronizing view of his efforts. His early teachers found their desire to develop fresh minds sorely tested by the young lord, for he was rabid in his pursuit of truth, and did not take kindly to the ticklish prodding of his masters. He grew into a veteran dabbler. In this he was lucky, for his was one of the last generations able to vault specialization with genius. Most fields of knowledge were so new that a man could race through them at a sprint, casting suppositions and conclusions like wild seeds, and be sure that at least some of them would take root. Astronomy, geology, physics, economics, chemistry, art, all these and more flew through Lord Serb's acute vision, and he wrote and published books that strained even the generalist nature of the age. He was deemed a wonderful writer, and his faculty of expression often gave him a wider readership than the integrity of his reason. 
a fact that left several ploddingly logical thinkers quite embittered. Yet, he replied easily, was this not the natural result of the best of all possible worlds? This theory, of which he was not the only author, was quite an astounding shift from the prior religion of the future. Heaven is not for death, they cried. Heaven is in the here and now. How admirably it has all been ordered. Note how the Thames rises just enough to allow modern ships to enter. How that must have been foreseen by the venerable old watchmaker. Note how each animal is admirably designed to eat and be eaten. Note how the presence of stars aids navigation, how the earth holds treasures expressly designed for our use, coal, iron, and gold. Note how the severity of storms in the North Sea has taxed the ingenuity of our shipwrights, as if it were expressly designed to test them. Note how for every problem there is a solution. What more can we ask for? Problems enough to solve, reason enough to solve them. Thus, reason ever the handmaid of reality, was turned into its abject slave, its purpose not to identify, but to worship. In the century-long Christmas of this newest toy, was it surprising that such liberated perceptions should make an altar of every nuance? Just as a youngster's first toy is the best of all possible toys, the world, newly identified by man, released such a wave of benevolent relief that reason became a sort of Epileptic Midas. And yet, it was natural that those viewing life from the summit of force found the world an easy thing to praise. As their carriages swept through the streets, racing from this recital to that debate, the poor who shouted from cellars seemed to pass by like beasts from another world. None of the rich were so naive as to believe that poverty in itself was a virtue, save for an inconsequential group of white-lipped fanatics who acted more from loathing for their station than love for the poor. Yet a few did recognize that what is often called evil is usually nothing less than a rebellion against a world gone mad. The poor's obsession with drink, they argued, was perhaps the result of the need to stumble through the demands of a harshly mechanical life that required nothing but obedience and silence, silence before tyrants whose only claim to power was the difference between ancient blood spilled or saved. The very instability of this claim was what required, they said, the savagery of privilege. To crush a man, to rob him of his future for the sake of ancient history, and then, when he lies gasping and bloody in the mud, to hack off his hand for reaching for a trifle, a shilling, or a loaf of bread, that is the weakest sham of morality that ever was, and also the most potent. To drive a man mad requires very little tell him to dig a hole and fill it over and over. Who could survive such torture? The mindlessness of repetition, of striving as hard for the next bite as for the last forever, and to raise one's children without a hope that they will have a lesser struggle. This is the means to madness. And madness was precisely what the privileged required. The eccentricity they feasted on. The madness of this best of all possible worlds. Such was the sprawling madness of London. 
none of the nobility could escape the knowledge that they danced and drank on a boiler, whose bursting steam kept their feet flying and their throats parched. Yet they continued regardless, because, dragged by the mantra that all that is, is right, they found themselves far from the reality of their times. And like drugged puppets flew blindly on, in the hopes that some miracle would allow them to dance their way to eternity, never believing that many of them would indeed do so, but at the end of a stout rope. For there were two eruptions in their world, two silent explosions that churned across the wide and narrow waters, unhinging all expectations and thoughts of the future. One was a piece of paper called America, the other a volcano called France. On the piece of paper were certain scrawls that had reshaped the soul of man and the body of man. The shapers of these thoughts had known that the quintessence of man is not open to the vain scribblings of idealists, and that most societies which spring from mad desires for a different sort of creature would rather see man dead than man himself. Man has an essence, they said, the essence of rationality, and the proper role of the state is to protect that freedom. France disagreed and vented her disapproval by violating the physiques of many of her luckless citizens. All is the state, cried the French revolutionaries. All are atoms of the social body. The leaders of the state are the arbitrators of the general health. The essence of man is subservience, subservience to ideology, to the needs and desires of others. And so the world was pulled in two directions. Man free or men unified. And throughout Europe, many countries teetered on the edge of either camp. On the one hand lay tradition and the twitching sword fingers of the elite. On the other lay the reasoned beliefs of a few philosophers and the shining portrait of their rationality, America. Thus, it was not strange that those Londoners who called themselves philosophers, and who did not, were ablaze with the sudden ferment that even in the parlours of the most refined, teacups often trembled before the force of argument. Rarely does it happen that the visible results of theory elevate thought to the centre of civilised discourse. Such were the times, and the times were not soon seen again. To Lord Serbs, all this made for a rather heady life. All his ingredients heralded the attainment of high stature. He married young and was widowed early, and his chaste devotion to his late wife gave him that thrilling combination of fidelity and unavailability that has won the hearts of young girls since the dawn of the teenage race. Lydia Serbs was, in many ways, a sign of a more potent awakening than her father. Her mind found little to shrink from in conversation, and her agility in discourse was so powerful that some men actually wandered away from her without even knowing the color of her eyes or the texture of her hair. Not that she was wanting in either regard, she was by any standard a beautiful woman, but the ridiculous appellations that usually accompanied female beauty in the circles she moved, exquisite creature, 
picture of loveliness, etc., seemed utterly inapplicable. She was, quite simply, neither picture nor creature. Like her father, she was famous for both desirability and unavailability. Unlike him, she was also known for her scorn. No, not scorn, perhaps. Disappointment would be a more accurate term. Raised by a man so completely in his time that he was far ahead of its general application, so trained in rationality that breaches of integrity were like leprosy to her, so studied in art that a harsh voice or sagging shoulders were signs of spiritual deformity, Lydia measured all men by a yardstick beyond their comprehension, and found them wanting in almost all regards. The feeling Lydia left in her wake was a strange combination of resentment and worship. Every ugly man holds in his heart the belief that controlling a beautiful woman will control his own ugliness. Homely young men followed Lydia around like dogs chasing carriages, and with the same intent, which is to chase but never catch. This rather unnerving bunch even formed an unofficial club that tracked her movements. They met in dismal clubs and discussed her life as penniless men discuss auctions. The Serbs lived in a sumptuous mansion on the Finchley edge of London. It was a three-story home, broad, glittering, and almost completely rectangular. Inside, the house was immaculate. Ornaments were sparse but exquisitely chosen. Corridors flowed in many directions towards rooms emitting faint chemical odours and the occasional flares of magnesium. At the centre of the house was the doorway to an immense library, with a small inscription over it, a humble shrine to Alexandria. Lord Serbs was most often found in this room, making notes and calculations. His daughter would be practicing scales on the piano in the corner, or studying Italian nuances. It was a picture of purpose, and visitors had been known to stand at the doorway for upwards of five minutes, both afraid to disturb such mutual concentration, and finding rare pleasure in such a civilized portrait. One morning, Lord Serbs was buried deep in Newton's Principia. His visitor had stood for a quarter of an hour in the doorway to the library before venturing to clear his throat. He stood another ten minutes before repeating the sound, and with a reluctant sigh, Lord Serbs slowly drew his head up from Newton's brilliant mazes. Seeing a rather earnest-looking young man in the doorway, he gestured for him to approach. "'Your business, sir?' he asked. "'Good morning, Lord Serbs,' said the young man, removing his hat with a sudden blush. He hesitated for a moment, obviously hoping for a glimmer of recognition to cross the Lord's face. It did not. "'Were you expected?' asked Lord Serbs, rising. "'I don't recall, if you will forgive me. No, sir, not expected.' said the young man, blushing so fiercely that it looked as if he had sneezed a nosebleed backwards. We last spoke two years ago. I answered your advertisement in the paper, and you sent me to manage your lands in— Ah! cried Lord Serbs, snapping his fingers. You are Thomas— Thomas Dovset, sir. Yes, I apologize for coming in here in a rush, but the mail must have been held up. Oh, he said, 
glancing at a pile of unopened letters on Lord Serb's desk. That is, I assumed my letters had been held up, but uh, it appears that... Have you been away, sir? Away? No. No. You are from my lands, yes, I, I recall now. You have been writing to me, and I have not read your letters. To have forced you to make such a journey? Criminal. Please accept my apologies. No, sir, that's no matter, replied Thomas. He stared fixedly in front of him, standing so still that he looked as if he'd been stapled to the air. Please, unlock yourself and uh, sit down, said Lord Serbs, gesturing. Would you like a sherry? No, thank you, said Thomas, taking a hesitant step towards a chair. And what is so crucial that you have been forced to supersede my appalling correspondence? asked Lord Serbs, pulling up a chair for the young man. Um, said the young man, sitting down. He shook his head. I wanted leave of a certain sort, sir, to... Well, that is... Your lands are very good, sir, good soil and good people, and the sheep are multiplying like flies, so that we have a right shortage of land on which to keep them. Are they? said Lord Serbs. Oh, yes, sir. And since we last met, I have taught myself to read. Better, sir. And, well, it come to my attention that if it were desirable, in a way, that the border of your arable lands, what they call the Glenfens, that, that they could be, well, drained, sir. What's that? Drained? The young man swallowed, then nodded. Yes, sir. It's after the experiments written about in the low country, sir. It's a certain procedure. You, you dig... A long ditch, well, very long, actually, or quite a deep hole, quite wide. It's like a process of de-irrigation, uh, if I make myself clear, and the water drains off the fens or the marshes and collects itself in a sort of man-made lake or river. This you can channel to the sea, sir, if you have the manpower, and I think we do. I've made the calculation, sir. The flustered young man pulled out a long sheet of paper from a satchel and laid them on the table. Here you can say, sir, that the ditch, if, if we want, need only be two miles long, and if we did it, dig it nine or, or, or ten feet deep, or, or likewise we can dig a shallower hole about a quarter mile round, but then we have to drain the water further off towards the sea, which is uh, twelve miles from the fence, and we won't have to till much, the ground is so waterlogged that planting alone should air it enough. These... <laughs> Who taught you these calculations? Quite remarkable, said Lord Serbs, peering at the document. It's a plain geometry calculation, sir. There are books even there, and some of the men, the farmers, have made a sort of hobby out of the mathematics. They they bring it to dances, sir, and sit in the corners while everyone flies about, and they, they argue about the new ideas, the calculus and differentials. They even tried a new kind of windmill, uh, an experimental one, of course, but you'll be pleased to hear that it works quite well. Jim Croydon, he's the local bright spark in these matters. Quite a wonder, sir, he can multiply three figures in his head. I kept him close by while drawing these up, that's for certain. He's the one who thought of this draining business. Lord Serbs laughed suddenly, gazing at Thomas. Far from the heart, the mind still beats, he murmured in a kind of wonder. Tell me, are there many up there like this Jim fellow? Many, sir! cried Thomas with great spirit. Scads, if I may. There's Clem's Weather Society, the astronomy stars of Mr. Blinks, the chemical formulae's up at the Edgewell Farm. Oh, that's just the tip of it, too. Harry Jenkins, he's called himself the animal doctor, and he can whip out a calf like a fifth ace from a card sharp. Jenny Cutter, she's a rare midwife, sir. She's got a brew that'll loosen the muscles of a straining lass so the babies will shoot out like a rocket straight into her hands. Astounding, said Lord Serbs, rubbing his hands. But... Where do they get their information? Information? frowned Thomas. 
I'm not sure as I follow you, sir. Information, as in, where do they get these ideas from? Well, we all live in the same world, sir. All's have got eyes and a mind, sir. All the more, it would seem, murmured Lord Serbs. All the more than we guessed. By heaven, what an age we live in, Mr. Thomas. Yes, an age it is, <laughs> and then some, sir, agreed the young man, wiping his brow. Lord Serbs folded his hands under his chin and gazed at his immense bookshelves for a moment, lost in speculation. Then he gestured at the sheet of paper. These plans, or what have you, they're not my specialty. What would you call it, geology or geography? I shall consult a friend or two and find out if your plan is truly feasible. If it is, then we shall calculate the cost, dust off a few account books, and see if we can't muster the funds to do it right. Yes, sir, the worth of the lands, well, that is of no concern to me said Lord Serbs. They could be on the North Pole for all I care about their value. The thing is, is it possible? That is all. Yes, sir, said Thomas. Now, be of good cheer. Have you seen London before? Not properly, sir. You require funds? I have brought... Uh, never mind. Here, said Lord Serbs, taking a wad of notes from his cash box and passing them to the startled young man. Find a room in town and spend yourself silly, if you have a mind. Consider it pay for a journey that you should never have had to make, but one that I'm very glad that you did. Come back in two days, prepared to burn the midnight oil. Yes, thank you, sir, said the young man, almost somersaulting in his haste to bow and exit at the same time. By God, reflected Lord Serbs when Thomas had left, but you are a wretched excuse for a writer if you cannot even read. He picked up the thick pile of letters and began leafing through them. No. No. Oh, no. Squire Pounder, of course. No. Hello? Who's this? Sounds familiar, he muttered, tearing open a letter dated three weeks before. An invitation to the country. How quaint. Lord Lawrence Carvey. Lawrence. Larry? Not that reformist! Lord Serbs laughed as his daughter came into the library. He tossed the letter on the table. I think this one is more for you than for me, Lydia. Chapter 10 Strange Pursuits It seems strange, thought Lydia. How I am given to such fits of lassitude. She lay in a hammock half asleep, feeling too lazy to even criticize herself with any seriousness. The blessed laziness of resting had taken hold of her since her singing tutor's stern command to let her voice return from the froggy depths it now inhabited. She had indeed overdone it at the previous night's recital. It was funny how, how possessed she had felt. Lydia had been raised in an atmosphere wherein to feel competitive was tantamount to failure. But the woman she had sung with last night, what a grim battle it had become. The madrigals they had sung were not terribly arduous. Moreover, the kind of interpretation they had thrust upon them was not viewed as terribly civilized among the listeners. Quite strenuous, was the general verdict, and most of the company had patted her on the arm, as if she were an amateur who had strained a muscle racing a seasoned athlete. 
But that is the galling thing, thought Lydia, shifting in the hammock. This Penelope woman was far from a seasoned veteran. She was an upstart. There was no nicer word for it. Of course, the madrigal had been about lost love, and Penelope was a legendary, if temporary, conqueror of aristocratic hearts, while Lydia could only draw on imagination and tonal acrobatics. But still, her own technique had been flawless at first, but that showy woman had begun scaling up and up in such a crudely dramatic manner. What could Lydia do but try wrestling the stratosphere from her powerful voice? And, of course, Penelope was singing again tonight, while Lydia was forced to speak in a whisper and pendulum in a hammock. She shifted again and felt a sharp poke in her waist. Frowning, she pulled the offending object from her pocket. Reclining in trousers was one of her lesser-known habits, and stared at the letter, trying to remember. Oh, yes, the letter her father had smiled so broadly at. Lydia opened it and read, Dear Lord Serbs, You may recall that we spoke at your daughter's recital in March, pursuing a lively conversation about the agricultural reforms that your lordship was kind enough to have noticed. I found your observations very astute and your offer of mutual visitations most enticing. I have instituted several changes in my land since we spoke, which I think would interest you immensely. If your lordship pleases, I would be greatly honoured if you would consider accepting my hospitality this August. I also extend the same offer to your daughter, who, as I recall, is a musician of some talent. With your help, perhaps we can persuade her to sing at our church, which, though no Westminster, is noted for its history and unique acoustics. I look forward to your reply. Yours most sincerely, Lawrence Carvey, Defender of the Realm, Lord of Dorset, etc. Glancing at the postmark, Lydia saw that the letter had been sent in July. Visiting Dorset late in the summer season is quite a ridiculous prospect, she thought, turning the letter over and over in her hand. Her maid's voice startled her. Asquith, often chastised for interrupting, had developed the art of creeping around so completely that Lydia sometimes expected to see her slithering under the carpets. Visitor, madam? said Asquith, with a hesitant curtsy, a difficult motion which required the balance of a gymnast. Yes, who? croaked Lydia, turning on her side in the hammock. Squire Pounder, madam, says it's very urgent. Isn't it always, though? asked Lydia. <clears throat> Give me ten minutes with him, then interrupt us to remind me of a recital. No, no not a recital. A piano lesson, then. No, Mr. Rebecca's away. That's common knowledge. <laughs> Think of something, but, but ten minutes, no more. Yes, madam. I have to change, she said, trying to extricate herself from the hammock, but succeeding in only sort of spilling herself on her feet. <clears throat> Tell him I will be with him shortly. Yes, milady, said Asquith, turning and slinking on lowered legs back toward the house. Squire Pounder is an unequivocal nuisance, thought Lydia for the thousandth time as she dressed. Such an ungainly man, so obvious in his emotions. Yet he saved my father's life, so I cannot be too unkind. 
The establishment of Mr. Pounder in the bosom of the Carvey household was a strange tale. Lord Carvey had been seriously compromised while travelling through France during the Reign of Terror. He was compiling a book of political observations and had been revealed to the authorities by an unknown enemy. Trumped-up espionage charges had been levelled against him, and Lydia had spent the winter in utter agony before deciding to venture to France and plead for his release. To ransom her father was utterly out of the question, as he had repeatedly stressed in his letters. On the morning of her departure, a letter had arrived from her father reporting that he had landed safely in Dover. Through her tears of relief, Lydia read that a certain Mr. Pounder had secured his release, but it wasn't until Lord Serbs had arrived home that she had received the full story. Mr. Kevin Pounder was an inveterate opportunist who, reading of the appalling state of Gallic agriculture, quickly surmised that a tidy profit could be made out of providing the provisional government with a steady supply of wheat. He had travelled to France and offered his services. The government, desperate to supply even its own tables, had agreed rapidly, and Mr. Pounder was given the contract to supply them with a hundred tons of grain annually. A small part of this bounty was reserved for the needs of their more illustrious prisoners, whose immense ransoms were integral to their fiscal plans, and so Mr. Pounder had access to some of the French prisons. It was while he was delivering a shipment to the Bastille that he first heard of Lord Serbs. Struck by a sudden desire, he had promptly transferred the majority of his bounty to the willing hands of a prison official, who promptly sold it and vanished to America, in return for Lord Serbs' release. They had travelled together towards Calais, with Lord Serbs disguised as Mr. Pounder's accountant. After several close and rather nasty brushes with the authorities, which they had only survived by strewing good English gold about them, which the various officials had plunged after like famished dogs, they stole a small vessel and navigated their way to Dover, Lord Serbs, at the helm. Such was the story, a story which did not have as clean an ending as Lydia would have liked, due to Mr. Pounder's absolute refusal of remuneration for his efforts. The regard of such an illustrious family was his only motive, he insisted, mixed with a smattering of good old-fashioned patriotism. It also transpired that the merchant had read some of Lord Serb's writings, and considered himself a saviour of honest scholasticism, as he put it. The result was that Mr. Pounder had lost a lucrative business and gained the endless obligation of Lord Serbs. This troubled the good lord not at all. What cost his obligation when the alternative was nothing at all, he said, and set about providing Mr. Pounder with all the education the merchant desired. He tutored him both in abstract science and the physics of correctness that suited the social heights to which the ex-merchant so obviously aspired. Squire Pounder was his preferred term of reference, as Lord Serbs had also bought him a minor title. Squire Pounder was quite a young man, slightly shy of thirty, who had started his life as a manual labourer. He spoke well, and his knowledge was sound, but his odd gestures and inflections, along with his slightly desperate air, betrayed his origins as surely as if he had handed out his mauled and scrawled parish record. He strove mightily, and this very striving was strong evidence of his perceived inability. His hair had a habit 
of rising in odd directions when he argued. And his practice of keeping his hands in blinding motion could not hide the fact that they were of a breadth and texture that spoke of rough labor in the not-too-distant past. His lack of invitations did not deter him in the least, and it quickly became known that a request for Lord Serb's presence would often bring Squire Pounder in tow. This did not diminish the demand for the good lord. Squire Pounder was accepted, much as a close friend's unkempt lover is overlooked. But it often brought a certain uneasiness to social occasions, for he had not mastered the art of subtle penetration sufficiently to avoid becoming an unwelcome centre of attention at social gatherings. Lydia finished dressing, flicked her hair off her forehead, and made her way downstairs. Squire Pounder was waiting for her in the sitting-room. The sitting-room was a monument to the preferences of Lord Serb's late wife, whose tastes ran so lavish that they made the Baroque look positively Spartan. Space was meant to be used, was her constant refrain, and she had set about using it in a manner that seemed designed to stretch the unity of time and space to the breaking point. Every shelf, every mantelpiece, there were seven, and every small table was laden with an amount of ornamentation that, if sensibly distributed, would have been adequate for four houses, two churches, and a good portion of a major cathedral. Lamps were the late Lady Serb's special fetish, and if all the wicks in the room had been lit at once, sailors lost in the North Sea could have breathed a solid sigh of relief. Even the ceiling had not escaped her desire to turn the art of decorating into a kind of kaleidoscopic assault. The paintings adorning its bracketed surfaces seemed to have used enough brushes to have consumed the hides of a small herd of camels. Occupants of the room were usually identified by the fact that, unlike its aggressive contents, they were found huddling in a corner, their eyes averted in horror. Usually, but not always. When Lydia came into the room, she saw Squire Pounder studiously regarding the paintings on the ceiling, his hands clasped behind his back. Quite a remarkable education in these, he said, turning as she entered. Do you know, I cannot recall a single Greek myth that does not find expression in these small squares. Well, perhaps one, but taste forbids its description, he said with a sudden laugh. How are you, Squire Pounder? said Lydia in a rather gravelly voice. Quite well, he said, rubbing his hands. Invigorated, actually. I heard a most pleasant bird in song last night. Not the usual kind of bird, for they sing for their mates, or so I'm told, while this bird was singing for a purpose quite magically her own. I have come to compliment that bird on its efforts. Yet I hear from its voice this morning that it would perhaps have been better off singing for a mate in soft and lilting tones than abusing its tender throat in such a manner. He finished with a wink. If that is a compliment, I appreciate the sentiment she said, reminding her teeth that it was impolite to grind in the presence of a guest. "'And your mother,' continued Squire Pounder, gesturing at the room, "'she seemed another kind of bird, a magpie or crow, such was her predilection for collecting shiny articles. What a nest this should make for future students of the past! One glimpse would be like a tour through the aesthetic history of the past few centuries. It should be opened as a sort of museum for the more artistic accumulators of these sorts of eggshells.' 
though I am sure that those with the eye for eggs would be far more interested in the hatchling your good mother left behind in her pretty nest. Yes, <clears throat> well, don't tread the metaphor to death, Squire Pounder, sighed Lydia, hoping he was only in a good mood. You gave a very inspiring recital last night, he said slowly, abandoning his merry appraisal, and staring at her with strange, penetrating openness. Thank you. And this conflict between you and Penelope was also most inspiring, he continued. I have often thought that you and I were mere acquaintances of Lord Serb's misfortune, with little more in common than witnesses to a bank robbery. But just as spectators to an event sometimes find a certain familiarity in the similarity of their reactions, I thought last night that this striving side of your nature had a happy concordance with my own personality, and I vowed that I should spend just a little time finding out more about it. For surely you have observed my inability to penetrate this aristocratic aquarium that you swim in so nimbly, said Squire Pounder, standing stiffly and holding his hands behind his back. And I am cursed if I can see the point of pursuing such a course, were it not for the promise wrung from me by my dying mother. Yeah, such things do occur beyond the bounds of the stage, Lady Serbs. Died she did in what? The imagination of your poets calls a garret, and what the majority of the fleas in our fair city called home. Died with her hands on my cheeks, her face wasted and pleading. Have no daughters, she cried, dear Lydia, and swear you shall have no sons until we are free of this dog-like life. And I swore, I, I swore in good faith, because I believed that England was the land of hope, because, because I saw men lying in the lap of luxury all around me like babes stuck to honey. So I worked, I, I slaved and swore and bent my back to the wheel, I, I sold good food to murderers and prayed every day for forgiveness. But it mattered little what came into my hands, the king took some, the church more, and I was swindled of the rest, and, and God helped the man who tries to find justice in our modern courts. So I, I helped your father, from the goodness of my art, from, from my childish belief that from gratitude would spring security. But it wasn't so, my lady he said, shaking his head. It wasn't so. That's not true, cried Lydia. My father has done more to help you than most would ever dream of. Squire Pounder held up his hand. Now, please, I, I hold no quarrel with Lord Serbs. Indeed, I hold him to be the most generous of men, bar none, and will forever honour his name and those who bear it. But he is not all the world, and, and for the rest I see nothing but scorn when I speak my mind. Yet I am assuming that as his daughter, you are prone to hold the same values as he does, and will be free of prejudices. Yes, I was raised a rational woman, said Lydia, and I hold no man more or less worthy for the accidents of station. He nodded silently, staring at her. The suddenness of his movement caught her quite by surprise, and it wasn't until his minty lips impacted on her own and his arms snaked around her back that she found herself able to step back. The first slap was more of a shocked reaction. The second slap, far harder, came from genuine rage. Leave at once! she shouted in shock, feeling a spasm of pain in her throat. Yes, he muttered, taking a step back. Quite rational. 
yet a young lord with golden gifts would find more than your lips at his disposal. Ugly man! she cried. I'm sorry, he said, his eyes suddenly widening. I'm sorry, I meant no offence. Meant or not, offence was given, now leave! I have slaved for my position, paltry though it is, he said. I, I am an honourable man in my own way. Why am I always treated with such contempt? That is not for me to answer. It is nothing but prejudice, he cried. Why should a man be derided for earning his livelihood by those who've never lifted a finger for theirs? Yet, last night, he said softly, when I saw you striving for a certain note, I felt closer to you than anyone. I felt that we were one and the same. I can understand that, she said, swallowing painfully. But all attractions are not formed on such a basis. It is not mere prejudice to desire common ground. Yeah, I suppose, replied Squire Pounder, lowering his head. I will take my leave now. She stepped aside to let him pass, but he remained where he was. One foot on the pier, one in the boat, he muttered, cracking his knuckles. Raising his eyes to hers, he grinned. If such is to be my fate, I will not go quietly. Lydia blinked, and finding no response, she turned and left the room. She found Asquith lurking in the library with a duster, told her to make sure Squire Pounder left quietly, then went up to her room and sat on the bed. Well, she said with a sudden smile, standing and walking to her writing desk, a sojourn in Dorset. What a pleasant prospect. Chapter 11 Two Salvations A strange thing passed between Lawrence and Mary when they first laid eyes on each other again. It was strange because the incident of four years past seemed so innocuous in a way, just a small, ugly incident. But there are people in this world who have insight enough to recognize pivotal moments, no matter how trivially expressed, and remember them for the rest of their lives. There are also people who form such natural opposites that, if they ever come into contact, they have the power to shake certainty to its all-too-habitual core. Lawrence felt this the instant that Mary came into the room. She was preceded by his sister, who looked for his reaction with an odd fascination. He felt it only for an instant, because Mary seemed to shudder slightly in a certain Concentration came into her eyes and body, rendering her as taut as a bowstring. Lord Carvey, she said softly, bowing. Miss O'Donnell, he said with an expansive gesture, his rehearsed apology drying on his lips. She raised her eyes to him, and he suddenly felt as if he were the only thing she had regarded for a long, long time. My sister reports that you have come to me not for charity, but for a lawful exchange of uh, values, so to speak. Mary nodded. That is true. Frowning, Lawrence indicated for her to take a seat. She hesitated. 
Is your mother at home? She asked. No, he replied. The dragon has gone to feed on sunshine and fresh air. Mary took a seat, then turned to gaze at him with a sinuous sway of her neck. Kay mentioned that you seem to know a good deal about agriculture, said Lawrence, feeling a shiver run down his spine. I know a good many things, Lord Carvey, said Mary. I read of agriculture at first, but it was always a means to a greater end. We have spoken of that a little, said Kay excitedly. She has a great many interesting things to say, Larry, a great many Interesting ideas are always welcome in this household, and are often the only rent required, said Lawrence, thinking, why am I being so pompous? I want to put your mind at ease, Miss O'Donnell, he continued, unable to shake his lofty tone. There are no prejudices here. Station waits on practicality, for we live by Benjamin Franklin's admirable doctrine, call to reason's court every thought, every opinion, every observation, and let her judgment be final or something to that effect. I believe that education is not secured in university alone, and if you have taught yourself all you know, that shall not be held against you. Mary smiled. It is, <clears throat> she said, clearing her throat, it is against practicality that I have come to speak, she said. I'm sorry? asked Lawrence. Did you hear that, Larry? Against it! cried Kay. Hush up, he said, waving his hand and watching Mary. I don't understand. May I stand? asked Mary. Don't be... Uh, please. Mary rose, and Lawrence saw two faint red blotches moving across her cheeks like creeping sunsets. I have spent the last two days walking your lands, Lord Carvey. You must... <laughs> Lawrence, please, he said. That, that there are no, no prejudices. Mary smiled quite dazzlingly, and Lawrence felt slightly dizzy at her shift of mood. Then Mary will also do, Lawrence. She gestured at the window. Your land's here. Your achievement is quite remarkable. No, more than remarkable. It is a kind of renaissance, a renaissance of this world. Your people are unlike any I have ever seen. They walk about with their heads high. This time of year as well, in, in the places I have been, the end of summer is a sick time, a, a time when grains are counted like miser's gold and figures are scratched on bark to determine how many will live to see spring. Mary looked straight at him. There is none of that here. Here you have excess, the kind of excess that makes the journey through this world more than the bitter fording of an endless river. As you have been submerged in this change, you may have missed its true significance, but I want to tell you, Lawrence, you have done good, more good than you can possibly imagine. I applaud you for that. He stared at her, realizing in his emotion that the simple praise of good work had been too scarce in his house. Thank you, he murmured. She stared at him. For a moment he almost seemed to hear an echo. That is only the beginning, she continued. What you have created, the application of intelligence to the problems of this world, is not just full of bellies, but a twisting of the perspective of man from empty heaven to the gifts of this earth. Materialism, if you like, 
the art of consumption for the sake of consumption for the pleasure of the body alone. I applaud that too, for I think this kind of materialism is an insult only to those who hate this world in their hearts. Yes, she said that too, interrupted Kay, taking a seat quickly and leaning towards Lawrence. Don't you think that could be true? Doesn't that remind you of, for God's sake, Kay, said Lawrence, let the girl speak. Mary cast an apologetic look at Kay, who smiled bitterly and averted her eyes, leaning back in her seat. Lawrence, said Mary slowly, to love this world should not be to disregard any other. I shall not say God, for that means many things to many people. I shall say ethics, for that is something one can discuss in rational terms. She took a deep breath. There is a hunger in men that cannot be silenced by bread alone. A hunger for goodness, for a life that leaves the world a kinder place than it finds. To have excess is also to have leisure. And I think that this is the most important change that you have brought about, the possibility of rest from endless scrabbling. But what are men to do with their leisure? One of two things, I think. They either follow the demands of the flesh into drunken oblivion, groping and dicing their lives away, or they turn the tide of history from want to goodness. They either worship this world as it appears, or they make their own appearances, bending it to the good, to kindness and charity. You have created excess, Lord Carvey. Now the time has come to ask what is to be done with that excess. Lawrence leaned forward, his heart pounding. Go on, he said. I have nothing more to say, said Mary, taking a seat. Lawrence stared at her for a moment, then smiled suddenly. I don't believe that for an instant. Mary returned his smile. I don't want to snare the whole conversation. What do you think? These are just thoughts that have flitted through my mind. But they lead somewhere, he murmured. They certainly lead somewhere. Yes, insisted Kay. Where do they lead? Lawrence nodded slowly. My mother spoke of something like this at breakfast. If I didn't know better, I'd think you two were in league. This drinking, yes, I've noticed it. I, I didn't think it would last very long, but it may. It may be that there are these two possibilities. Heavens, he said, rubbing his eyes. It's all so new. I didn't expect any of this. It is rare that only one door opens at a time, commented Mary. Perhaps, said Lawrence. Yet I am ill-equipped to act on any of this. I only know agriculture and crops. I know people, said Mary softly, leaning towards him. I know how they will change. He shook his head as if to escape her perceptiveness. How? However you want them to. They are drifting on their excess, Lawrence. They have been too used to scarcity to use their surplus rightly. A tribe dying of thirst will drink the oasis dry if they can reach it, but we are not there yet. We are a group of thirsty travellers who have spied an oasis in the distance. It is not enough for all, but it is more than we had before. Those with strong legs will race forward to drink, but the stragglers, the old and the helpless, will falter and die of thirst in the dunes. You have made the oasis, but only the strong are sated. What you have done is only the beginning. There is enough to go around, finally, provided it is managed intelligently. Managed? 
he said, suddenly raising his eyes. Yes, managed, cried Kay. Managed! Kay has had the right approach, said Mary, smiling at her. But she wanted to manage the effect, not the cause. Goods are the effect. Leisure is the cause. It is in your power to distribute this leisure, Lord Carvey. Spread it more or less evenly, and the poor shall not want for shoes. Give them the leisure to make their own, and you shall not have to go running to London for more. Lawrence frowned. How am I supposed to give this leisure? Ah, there it is. Mary nodded her head and rose. She walked over to the window and gazed out, tapping her fingernails on the glass, the sunlight streaming over her. She turned to them. I will do something unusual. In the midst of reason, I will speak of a dream. A dream I had last night after I saw your lands. I saw all the poor in a desert, all standing in an endless line. And they were passing an object between them, and I saw that this object changed its appearance every time it came to a new pair of hands. Sometimes it was a child, sometimes it was a painting, sometimes it was a book. And each time a poor man held this object in his hands, he became transformed with joy, and his shoulders burst into wings, and he loved his life. But every time he held the object, it was only for an instant, for his neighbor, seeing his joy, tore the object from his hands, and then he turned into a kind of plaster, and his wings dried and crumbled his sorrow all the more horrible for the joy that had preceded it. And suddenly I was standing in the line, and the object was passed into my hand, but it didn't turn into a child or a painting, for there was a wide light, and every man suddenly had his own wings, and the desert bloomed with flowers, and there was such rejoicing that I thought my ears would burst. But the woman next to me grabbed the object from me, and suddenly all was as it was before, and the object was snatched from her as it was from me, and suddenly I understood that the object was dreams, and dreams came from a kind of excess, and without that excess there are no children, no paintings, no books, no joy, and everyone is destined to stand in line and taste the happiness of life for only a moment, for there is not enough to go around. Mary shook her head sadly. And I also thought, when I awoke, that where we are in history is a turning point. We have the chance to end the dependence of man on nature, and if we allow this to continue uncontrolled, we will have missed an opportunity that will never come again. The able will become rich, the sad will remain poor, and all we will have done with the greatest opportunity is make the oldest divide a lot wider. There was a silence in the room that seemed terrible. Terrible because of the thoughts it contained. Terrible because they demanded an answer. Terrible because no answers were forthcoming. And terrible because the thoughts were that a life lived rationally was not enough. That the answer of more does not answer the questions of how much and to whom. And whether it was now possible to question such questions, to uncover the premises that gave them life, 
after such a skeletal millennium of want, were questions that held little weight against the luminosity of Mary's dream. I have no more answers, said Mary quietly. Well, I do, said Kay loudly, and if anyone tells me to be quiet, I shall smack them sharply on the head. Lawrence turned to her slowly, as if in a daze. Kay smiled. Mary, you are brilliant, she said, blowing her a kiss, but you live too much in the world of dreams to make them real. The solution is really very simple. It's as if God were throwing opportunities our way. Here's what I propose. Larry, you have about a hundred tons of food rotting in the fields. Mr. Footerer is hovering around with looms that require willing hands. Lawrence started up from his chair, almost knocking it over. Of course, he cried. By God, Kay, all sins are redeemed. Kay's face flushed. Thank you, but let me finish. All we have to do is invest in Mr. Footer's looms, give the poor the food to get their strength up and work properly, and somehow work a few thousand sheep in. Leave the sheep to me, said Lawrence, pacing the room and tugging at his beard. God, Lord Serbs has plenty of sheep and problems enough keeping them all. I will go to London and arrange for three thousand to be brought down. Damn, but it will take a lot of money. We're so tied up in agricultural investments. Uh, but we can make arrangements to pay over a period of time, hopefully overlapping with the profits from the poor. If they produce decently, we can turn the excess crops into good, clean gold. And God, we can think about processing the wool here, turning it into clothing, taking a ship or two. Oh, the possibilities are endless. If I may, said Mary. What? What? said Lawrence, looking at her almost fearfully. We must remember their leisure a little. It may be quite cruel to turn them from drudges of poverty into drudges of looms. Make a profit by all means, but try to ensure that they have a little leisure, that they are not completely consumed by the progress of capital. Yes, yes, of course, said Lawrence. I was a little carried away, if you'll excuse me. By all means, we shall ensure that they get good wages for their work. It will encourage them. Yes. God Almighty, did you know I was beginning to feel rusty? I thought... I had run out of challenges larger than the ledger. Your problems are just beginning, smiled Mary. But I have no doubt you shall rise to every challenge, for you are a decent person. It was your very decency that drew me here. And good for us that it did, said Kay. Otherwise, who knows how long we might have blundered about in a muddle. Oh no, said Mary, staring at Lawrence, her eyes lit by a strange joy. There is to be no muddling now. Adam Footer was quite surprised at his reception when he arrived a few minutes later. He had expected black looks from the maid, scant minutes with a very distracted Lord Carvey, and no small share of disappointment. As it was, he was met personally by the good Lord, almost pulled into a room by two very excited women, thrust into a chair, and barraged with questions. Had he slept well? Yes, with great thanks. Was he serious about his proposals? Why, yes, of course. Had he troubled himself to make calculations based on the best possible scenario? Uh, he wasn't sure he understood. What if the demand were for a hundred looms within a month? Well, sir, those calculations were a little beyond his expectations, but with the pen and paper... Pen and paper were brought, and Mr. Footer was surrounded by three glittering points of a triangle as he worked. It seemed as if the logistics of such rapid manufacturing depended on the availability of certain resources, especially wood, 
Given the rash of shipbuilding lately, the price was quite high. But most of all, it was the labor to build them that was in question. Hiring a man for a month and training him to build looms was a premium business, it seemed, unless one was willing to keep him on as a loom operator. What level of woodcraft was required? Nothing religious, sir, just the ability to measure thrice and cut once, some knowledge of planing and sanding, how to apply lacquer evenly, and so forth. Could it be taught to novices in two weeks? Uh, Perhaps, for some of it could be deemed common handiwork. And could one undertake to teach a group of untutored men such skills? What level of ignorance are we talking about, sir? The very lowest, put in Mary, beggars, vagabonds, and even some women. That's quite a task of education, if you've had any experience with such folks, sir. Adam was becoming quite bewildered at this point, and he would prefer those that have a little work netted into their hands, so to speak. No, apparently that was not the point. The meek were to inherit the looms, or something to that effect. Mr. Footer was instructed to look into the matter very thoroughly, and given a credit note for the wood and other materials. He was to take up residence in the village and hire some lads to speak of the opportunities outlined, stressing that only the poorest need apply. His various objections were quite openly ignored, and, in short, he found himself hurried out of the house while his wits still lingered in the drawing-room. "'Well, that's quite a business,' Adam muttered, staring at the closed door in confusion. "'A very hasty business, but an opportunity not likely to come twice. "'They want a hundred looms and scavengers to work them, then, by... God, that's what they'll get. All the stranger in my mind, but they're paying the bills, and they shall be the ones to find value in it. Shrugging his coat a little higher, Adam walked down the path towards the front gate. When he reached it, he turned for a last look at the house. Through distant, latticed windows, he saw Lawrence and Kay gesticulating frantically. Mary stood before them, looking out at the merchant. She waved, and if Mr. Footer had had the eyes of an eagle, he might have spied a wink that would have given him some pause. But he did not, and turned to the gate and laid a hand on its latch, his mind churning with facts and figures and speculations, and the idea that this was all a sort of mad dream. Chapter 12. The Hard Ride of Nature's Night No, no, my dear, it's quite impossible that you should travel alone, said Lord Serbs, plucking an enormous tomato from the vine. The roads alone make it out of the question, let alone the fact that Lord Carvey is an attractive young man whose interest in you goes quite beyond the aesthetics of your voice. You shall have to take a companion— to drag some woman to this man's house as if we were bidding on the merchandise— "'That would look utterly ridiculous,' replied Lydia, pulling back a branch so he could dig for the potatoes. "'The interpretations of the world are not my concern,' replied her father. "'It is unsafe to travel alone, and we know little about your host. "'That is the problem. Solve it as you see fit. "'Though why you cannot wait a fortnight is still beyond me. "'My business in Yorkshire will be done by then.' "'Look at that,' he said, holding up a twisted and bulging potato. "'Thrice the size, but quite unappealing.' Would you eat that? Lydia wrinkled her nose. I'd have someone mash it first. Not if you were hungry enough. What about Jonathan? His family is about to disown him again, so you might as well tow him along until they calm down. He's a bit of a fop, isn't he? He's always preferred his sweat to glisten, not smell. 
Lord Serbs smiled and shook his head. No, 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 no. Now he has discovered Rousseau, and you couldn't get him to bathe at sword point. Not that you'd want to get that close. He's quite interesting, but one tires of him rapidly. Take him out there. You won't see him for days, said Lord Serbs, digging another vegetable out of the earth. He'll be too busy trying to throw off the veneer of civilization by lurking in the undergrowth in his undergarments. Lydia laughed. <laughs> That's quite a picture. Uh, he's lost a good deal of weight since his Epicurean days. She smiled. All right, I'll take him. And what is this? asked her father, holding up a strangely bloated monstrosity. He stared at it, clucking his tongue. Ah, oh, well, science marches on. Ah, uh, nature, sighed the young man in question, leaning against a tree trunk, shivering at the knotty tingle that ran up his spine and gazing at the wildness before him. Nature stared back at him with corseted malevolence, as if she were a chained barbarian gazing at a taunting child, thinking only, You can taunt me now, but in time, young one, in time. Jonathan flexed his chest mightily, an action possible only to those who believe that manhood is a grim fire one must swell by squeezing one's muscles like a pair of bellows. He felt a terrible sensuality running through his veins, an elemental connection with the dangerous days of yore. Do not think I esteem you lightly, my goddess, he murmured, running his hands up the bark. I see you lying in wait behind our roads and windmills, that such upstart children should take your power of terror and turn it to their own comfort, what your desire for vengeance must taste like. He sank down from the trunk and squatted, thrusting his hands into the earth. But recall, he said softly, recall that there are sons of civilization who scorn the comforts you have so begrudged them, who stare at your harsh face without fear who wish for nothing less than the chance to face you on your terms, far from towns and cries for help, and who will wrestle you with nothing more than will, and win. Nature beheld the latest embodiment of Mr. Jonathan Edsworth, prior aspirant to the title of gourmand, craftsman, artist, and decadent, to mention only a few. If nature felt any qualms at all about him, it was only confusion— in the face of his rapid reincarnations, for his soul was like a bloodhound in a slaughterhouse, sniffing infinite trails of true sense, forgetting each prior aroma as the breeze brought a new one its way. His concentration was like a compass in an electrical storm, quivering in its random certainty. Every way he pointed was absolute in its transience, and his friends and family found in his shifting certainties, new proofs for the revolutions of Galileo, that a body was prone to movement unless impeded. Only some proof, alas, for he fulfilled only half the equation. Movement he had. Inertia, none at all. Jonathan Edsworth was a hero to the rebellious dreams of underutilized youths. In his childhood at boarding school, oh, how he had wormed his way into the hearts of those wayward rebels, dying to fight the wealth that placed them there. The brief time of youth when justice is the only obsession, how it coalesced around the person of Jonathan Edsworth. He was the one who dropped inkwells on attendance books and made 
rude noises during mass. He faced his endless punishments with fearless bravado, wearing a white scarf to his canings, which he flicked jauntily as he winked past the silent rows of admiring boys. His brilliance allowed him to scorn his studies, and he laughed as duller boys crashed in shallow flames trying to follow his example. He posted lavish drawings of naked women in the water closets, then defended his actions by stating that he was a biologist and had the marks to prove it. Momentum being his only motion, he flew on through the barriers of adulthood like a runner whose every finish line is a starting block. He flew through the continent, flew through the rooms of intellectuals and priests like a mad devil, scorning others for their contemplative inaction, crying that to do was to be, and proceeding to even greater speed through the spinning doors of cultural whims, always plunging into the latest, always a step ahead of the horde, always turning his head to scorn them, and in the turning finding a new direction and sprinting in new pursuit. Greyhounds with great futures, have been shot for lesser transgressions, for ignoring the hare in favor of the sunset. But Jonathan was no greyhound. He was a romantic. Passion was his only hare. And if it led to the sunset, there he would go, though he fell past the edge of the world in hot pursuit. He scorned Aeschylus for failing to substitute will for wax. For will, he said, was a greater substitute than any pale law of blind reality. He was no hypocrite in this view, for he lived what he spoke. Various mentors told him that to follow passion is to follow the residue of thought, and in that he was a greyhound whose only hair was its own tail, but he scorned that view as utterly bloodless, blood being the only justification for action, a justification he invoked constantly whenever his motives were questioned. For the blood! For the blood! He cried repeatedly like a visitor to Transylvania, quite taken by the local customs. His parents were not only driven to distraction, they were pushed quite past it. The elder, Mr. Edsworth, deemed creation a library so impressive that one's highest tribute was to sit in a large chair and peruse it quietly. A little cognac, a yellowed page, and the serenity of contemplation undisturbed by interpretation or action. What greater pleasure could a man ask for? His complexion had gone the way of the tallow candle, as if his skin had reflected so many amber pages that it had become one. His wife matched him perfectly. She was a sublime knitter and presser of leaves, who considered her post-reproductive duty to consist of quieting the excitements of nature to the point of, in Jonathan's eyes, near catatonia. Such families are stiff portraits that many a frantic life has been spent escaping. The magical ability to accept leisure without complaint seemed to have utterly died out within the span of a single generation, leaving Jonathan's parents quite confused. Believing that the waning of life was a time of hard-earned quietness, they faced the tumults of their offspring with the deeply offended gaze of rudely awoken afternoon nappers. They found Jonathan's life utterly incomprehensible and had odd visions of strapping him down and sedating him 
into serenity. Yet such serenity was never to be their lot. Neither Jonathan nor the Times would allow it. Everything that had gone before was wrenched from often dusty trunks and exposed to the kind of light that finds the slightest tarnish cause enough for the rubbish heap. You believe that the planets fly in perfect circles? How quaint! It is not so. You believe our lords and masters are placed in palaces by a preferential deity? Interesting. Let us see if it is so. Illness is an imbalance of humors. Prove it. We are all born slaves of an ancient crime? How so? Station? Ridiculous. Faith? Laughable. All the accumulated lies and inertia of history? Out with it! Out with it, and out with you too, if you do not correspond, for we are all open to change if we so desire. Jonathan was strongly built, in the knotty manner of one who has recently escaped the bulbous straitjacket of corpulence. He drilled his body endlessly, wheezing through gritted teeth, whipping himself into the image of his new perfection, the natural man. The natural man, naturally, disdained all civilized softness. He was a rugged engine of primordial passions, an avid consumer of barely warmed meats and harsh native breads. All his readings pertained to the miraculous ability of the body to survive hardships. All its movements exulted in its capacity of healing, if not health. All mirrors were records of sinewy strength carefully cultivated. Jonathan's thick hair was allowed to go natural and rose in long and carefully untended knots on his head. His face was clean-shaven, for the natural man could only stake his claim as lord of all creation by maintaining a prominent jawline, and he perfected the art of the piercing stare so completely that mothers flocked to shield their daughters when his eyes started carving through their blushing cheeks. Yet those who called him a mere creature of the flesh maligned him in their ignorance, for Jonathan was strangely chaste. When he met with a lady after midnight, he was given more to rhapsodizing about the stars than earthy groping. Such women rarely had stars on their mind, and often left him strangely wounded. His reputation, marred by his aborted encounters, left him shorn of the fairer sex almost completely, for those who dallied in the wee hours soon learned of his blood. One even asked him why his cry for blood could not flow in a more productive direction, and those that did not were alienated by his strange talk. Lydia was an exception to this rule. She was originally quite fascinated by her cousin, Jonathan's odd combination of strenuous manhood and piercing dreaminess. They spent a good deal of time together, but she soon found his endless stream of words quite tiring. She considered him very intelligent, but his perceptiveness was disordered, to the point of chaos. Like many gifted with both observation and eloquence, what he most required was an audience, and Lydia did not have the patience to play such a role for long. She also found herself concerned about his future to the point where further involvement in such mad plunging seemed only a recipe for a purposeless pain. 
Jonathan's soliloquy to the earth goddess was cut short by a trampling in the undergrowth that thrilled his heart. He spun around just in time to see Lydia draw back from a branch that had wrapped her smartly on the cheek. Lydia! he cried, stepping forward. No sweaty hugs, for heaven's sakes! she snapped, gesturing at the tiny garden. I asked your mother to send for you, but she only sighed and said that she didn't want to lose any more maids to the undergrowth. What have you been doing with them, sacrificing them to the druids? What are you doing here? he said carelessly, throwing on a shirt. I thought I'd lost you. Lost me? To them, to the city. You have avoided me lately. Have I offended you? No, laughed Lydia. I was worried about you. What of it? If I had a farthing for every busybody who considered my life a personal affront to their universe, I would be the Lord of Copper. Yet has it ever occurred to any of you that I might in fact be happy with my situation? Or, to go further, that I may in fact be bursting with joy? Please contain yourself, she smiled. I have come with an offer to see the country. Which country? Here. England. No, no, he said, leaping up and hanging off a low branch. Which country? The country of little inns and pleasant fields, or the country of dark trees and hungry beasts? Well, there is an inn, I believe, remarked Lydia, but I hear that it has a dog that doesn't eat as regularly as it would like, but that too. Where is it? he asked, twisting slowly in midair. Dorset, close to the sea. Why, where are you going? A father met a man at a party. You may have heard of him, Lord Lawrence Carvey. Oh, nature's venerable jailer, Mr. Carvey. Of course I've heard of him. I think I argued with him once. Yes, but that's true of everyone. No, it was a matter close to both our hearts. It's not often that such palpable enemies come one's way. He was my dream opponent. I remember him well. Oh, I suppose because he's chaining poor nature to man's softer needs, said Lydia. Christ, no, I applaud that. It's just that he was doing it so kindly. By not fighting, he never gave nature a fighting chance. What do you think? Would you rather die in battle or be taken prisoner in your sleep? Never mind that, interrupted Lydia. I'll be open with you. I have to take a companion. Father suggested you. Now, you are a wearying beast, but I've always enjoyed you in small doses. I'm leaving in the morning. Are you coming? Jonathan turned, hanging from the branch, his feet trailing on the ground. "'And we shall become reacquainted on the way?' he asked, turning his head over his shoulder to look at her. "'As much as you like, provided I get a word in edgeways. "'For how long?' "'Not long. Um, a week, maybe two. He dropped from the branch suddenly and rose, shaking his hands. "'I have been languishing a little, you know. Most shameful. "'It seems as if everyone and their aunt has been barking at me to be more useful. "'To whom?' I ask. "'But I have been thinking, for you know I believe you have more than a few pence of sense jingling in your pockets. "'I would like to talk to Mr. Carvey, for it has struck me of late that my observations have been somewhat dulled by the repetition around me. "'Do you know that he is the most interesting man of our age?' I have often wondered how he lives with his benevolence. It is the most dangerous trait. More men have fallen on their own swords that way than have ever been skewered by a tangible enemy. It shan't do any harm to ask. If you could distill such ramblings into a simple yes or no, observed Lydia shortly, you would be a far more pleasant companion. Some are put on earth to desire companions, some to escape it by being them. I am neither, I think said Jonathan lazily. "'Tomorrow morning, seven, 
Yes or no? Oh, all right. But thank you. Are you, are you going now? Small doses, if you remember, she said, turning to leave. A week, you say? Though I think it shall be a lot longer. We shall discover each other, you and I. You shall always be open to me, for you have so much to hide, said Lydia. And you to me, returned Jonathan, for you perceive all openness as artifice. And mark my words, I shall live to see you in love. In Dorset. Ah, oh, if only you knew what drove me there. You shall find love in Dorset, repeated Jonathan, suddenly serious. And that will be a most interesting thing to see. You are greater than your father, and so will forever remain in his shadow. Lydia stared at him, and they both laughed suddenly. I've missed you, but not that much, she grinned. Tomorrow morning, seven o'clock, be ready, she said, and walked off. Readiness is all, he murmured to himself, turning back to the glade. A crow suddenly propelled itself at him, and he threw up his arms. Chapter 13. A Friendship Tested Happily, Jonathan didn't sleep much that night. Such was his custom, for he believed that waking reality was dulled by satisfying dreams. Far better to face the world with one's recesses clamoring for softer colors, he thought, a world one can repaint at will with the driving laziness of fatigue. He packed sparingly and was out by the back lane fifteen minutes before Lydia arrived in her carriage, a span of time he filled by trying to command various birds with piercing whistles. "'Good morning,' cried Lydia, leaning her head out of the window as the horses snorted to a stop. "'And a very pretty one it is, too,' replied Jonathan, stepping on the rail and hoisting himself up. "'And pretty in here, too,' he continued, gesturing at the bulging cushions. "'They look like fat silk faces with one missing eye.' "'I slept well,' she said, "'and so have no need of such wayward observations. "'Walk on!' she cried, rapping the ceiling. The carriage lurched forwards. Some day all roads will be smooth, muttered Jonathan, rubbing his face with his hands, and men will grow sick of motion, for the last trace of hard travel will be lost. How have you been? she asked, watching him. I did not sleep well since you ask, he replied. Why? He shrugged and looked out the window. Tell me, do you think all youth must decay into the solemn gravity of staring wisdom? It's impolite to answer a question with a question. Exactly that sort of staring, do you think? If what you're asking, replied Lydia, grabbing at her hat as a pothole yanked the carriage's wheels from under it, is whether your mad emotional experimentation must give way to a more rational approach to life, then I would answer in the affirmative, though more in hope than expectation. That's what has been nagging at me, putting me to sleep at night, he answered. Rationally speaking, I hate the idea. Of what, that passion should not be destined to be your sole responsibility? I hate this reason business, said Jonathan suddenly. I feel as though I am infected by it. Lydia blinked. What? Of late, I've begun to feel sort of staggered and stretched, my... 
My feelings are becoming more like the salvos of blind archers than the pleasurable darts I used to feel. You're lonely, she said quietly. He shook his head and grimaced. Oh, I am not the company to myself that I once was. Yet why should that be? Why should that not be? You should have paid more attention to your lectures in school. Oh, this is a lost age, said Jonathan. An age where feelings are seen as the poetry of a mad servant. What is the capital sin? Enthusiasm. No, no, say the philosophers. Feelings will only hamper my objective view of the world, so they disown their souls in the calm pursuit of this or that cure, without realizing that their approach is a case of the cure being worse than the disease. You know, I, I saw a friend die of cholera a few weeks ago. He died with his cheeks thin and stretched, but but he met his death completely, with all his soul, without regrets. Yet these scientists, these, these merchants, they may have added to the knowledge of this world, but only at the cost of never having fully lived within it. It's too early to tell what death will do to these rational souls, but I believe they will not go quietly. They will rail against their endings, because in the most essential way they never began. And would you say the same of me, of my father? asked Lydia. You are rather mutant exceptions, replied Jonathan. But yes, even you. Where are the rational artists? Where are the objective poets? There is no answer to that question, for to answer the question of beauty with objectivity is to call the sunset dust in the air and the rotation of certain orbs. But to feel the sunset is to see it totally differently as a celebration of the essence of beauty, of truth, of life. Yet only to feel it is to be alone, said Lydia. That is not for emotion alone, said Jonathan, staring past the swaying curtains. Look at all these rational houses, he said, nodding at the grim brick shapes beyond the little window. Each stone, each doorway, positioned for the precise needs of its inhabitants. Lives are lived within three feet of each other, yet none know their neighbors. Children are made and born within spitting distance, children whose waking wails are nothing more than an irritant to the ordered lives of their neighbors. Of course that is right, for rational men need peace and quiet to pursue their thoughts. But they never congregate to worship sunsets, for each is studying his own calculations of beauty, alone and undisturbed in his study. And what would you have them do? asked Lydia with a smile. Eat together and embrace in tears over their pork chops. Pork chops, smiles Jonathan. Yes, that is ever the way with rational people. They always attach the shadow of petty things to beautiful images, and one wonders why. They are not poets. Pork chops. Yes, men must eat them, but only as food. Embracing together over black bread may make men happier than nibbling pork chops alone in their studies. This objectivity is another excuse for the observation of life, so favoured by our priests, rather than the risk of actually living it. I know, I can weigh my alternatives sensibly and logically conclude that to profit from the flow of the world I must invest in knowledge and facts rather than experience and life. But this 
Dry profit. Have you noticed how little there is between modern men but dry calculations of mutual utility? I see them at the market, for the market is a fascinating place to watch. There are so many spectators. And in each of their eyes, beneath the bright lights of haggling and argument, lies a squalid form of grasping, as if, as if they have surrendered their desire for intimacy in the hopes that profit can take its place. Profit for what? More coins? But they don't unleash their profits on life, they only invest them in more profit. And the heaviest at the end is the winner. But what have they won? Profit! Not life, I loathe the leeches! Jonathan's face was unnaturally heavy, his breathing sounded laboured. Lydia regarded him almost in horror, and it was only with an effort that she remembered him laughing. This is a terrible sort of intimacy, she said involuntarily. Why? he asked, raising his eyes to her. Because it is real? She shook her head, attempting to smile. No, because there is no profit in it. He laughed, but it was a harsh sound. I understand. I am not as reactionary as that. There are no answers in it. No, but that's what you have always championed, isn't it? This business of life, he said slowly, is a devilishly drawn-out affair. That's... I, I don't understand that. No, said Jonathan softly, and I suspect you never will. "'because I have a purpose. "'And what is your purpose? "'I will be a singer, a great singer. "'Yes, and when you are not singing, "'you shall be a human being. "'And what will you be then?' "'When I am not singing, I shall be practicing. "'And when I am not practicing, "'I shall be enjoying the fruits of my labors, "'happy and content in the warm bath of earned reward.' "'Purpose for others,' said Jonathan. "'Reward from others.' "'No.' "'replied Lydia shortly. "'For myself.' "'Then you plan to sing alone in the Scottish hills?' "'No. "'You seem to despise the fact that success in this world "'requires interaction with human beings, Jonathan. "'Why is that?' "'He grinned, "'and the heaviness of the conversation suddenly vanished. "'Ah, oh, because there is too much of profit in it,' he said. "'But that matters little, if anything. "'Tell me,' I hear you surprise the local nestlings with your startling impersonation of a bird protesting the bandaging of its broken wing. What review did you pluck that from? she asked. Oh, such tortured prose can only be found in the Times and in those who read it. What did it say? Incalculably demonstrative, quoted Jonathan. What, the prose or my style? Both. My favorite phrase pertained more to social analysis than aesthetic criticism. The reviewer seemed quite slighted at the air of competition he sniffed between you and Penelope. How unseemly, he wrote, that one of our fairest daughters should find it necessary to mutilate several perfectly innocent madrigals to prove her superiority over a member of the lower classes, almost as if she did not believe in it herself. Then he went off on a slight rampage about the rising insouciance of the lower orders, the end of all distinction and privilege, and rounded it off by portraying your concert— as a metaphor for the coming destruction of all social order. He didn't title it The Sopranist Manifesto, but I think he should have. <laughs> Father laughed about it, said Lydia, shifting in her seat. Good for you to be challenged by her as well as anyone, he said. Damnable free-thinking, laughed Jonathan, imitating the martyred tone of injured aristocracy. You know, your father has fascinated me for quite a long time. 
Yet you have rarely spoken with him, smiled Lydia. Been observing him from your study? He waved off the comment. Perfectly acceptable to study souls from a distance. There is life in that. Do you know, I think he'll go to his grave, convinced he's right. I'm not sure whether to call that petty resistance or blind ignorance. Well, as long as there's a good opinion somewhere, said Lydia. I don't think you fascinate him. No, I suppose not. Yet that is because I am far closer to understanding him than he is to me. Not true. He already understands you. Does he? Ah, the modern disease. Understanding. Nature is hard enough, but a human being? You posit a dichotomy. Never mind, said Lydia. What does he understand about me? asked Jonathan, leaning forward. This should be interesting. Not really, retorted Lydia. He says you are an emotionalist, and that's about all. Yes, but the connotations, murmured the young man. What does it mean? It means that you have the habit of exploring your inner life at the expense of achieving things in the real world, and that such exploration is a way of avoiding the dangers of tangible achievement and so criticism. Interesting, murmured Jonathan, steepling his fingertips under his chin. He also said that if I were ever to tell you this, you would steeple your fingers under your chin and say, Interesting, smiled Lydia. Jonathan's fingers twitched but remained, and his cheeks reddened. No doubt that it is because he believes me to follow the same structures of cause and effect as himself, he said. As all men do, and women, said Lydia. But if he's so wrong, tell me, what are you planning to achieve with your life? Oh, dear! Have I strummed a sensitive nerve? Refused to order my life to your father's off-the-cuff wisdom? remarked Jonathan. Have I? demanded Lydia, for you are not answering the question. Well, to put it simply, what I wish to achieve from my life is the living of it, he said, to experience every moment as if it were my last, and taste all the fruits this world has to offer, without regrets, reservations, or prior calculations. And at the end to become what? <laughs> oh, child, laughed Jonathan. To become is precisely what I reject. To be is all I desire. Don't you think, religious matters aside, that the fantastic improbability of matter rising, walking, regarding, and thinking is so incredible that to regard the chemicality of mood and impulse alone does it scant justice? For... It may be that our thoughts are the initiators of passion, and that to regard the effect at the expense of the cause is to revel in the habitual, the preconceived, the banal. Yes, replied Jonathan, to regard passion and beauty as the chemical residue of life would be to see any intensity as a rather unpalatable dreg of noble thought. How easy that is! Shakespeare wasn't a genius of the soul, he was just a good chemist— Yet Shakespeare did not regard his soul alone, retorted Lydia. He wanted to write and act. My God, he did. He didn't stare myopically around him and say, It's all in the soul, folks. I'm regarding the sunset, so don't bother me with your explanations. He planned, thought, felt, and acted. Jonathan stared at her. Are you trying to imply that I have ever failed to act? Yes, you have done things. You have reacted, but acted? No. Then what have I been doing? Running after 
The starting block, said Lydia. Jonathan paused for a moment, his eyes narrowing. That's a decent metaphor for a rationalist, he said with a sudden smile, settling back into his seat. And now, if you'll excuse me, I will take a nap in the hopes of achieving something beyond criticism. As he settled his head against a cushion, Lydia stared out the window. Going to be a long fortnight, she muttered. What's that? asked Jonathan, opening one eye. But she didn't answer. Chapter 14 The Poor Feed When they came, they seemed weighed by chains forged from the very depths of their histories. There could be biologists who would be hard-pressed to call them members of the same species, so different did they appear from those they staggered towards. Yet there would be little risk of such ambiguities, for those with the education to classify had won their knowledge at the expense of a certain set of eyes, eyes which saw legless beggars sitting by the road or mothers with dry breasts and unmoving bundles wandering the fields. Such blind spots rendered the dissection of mute abstractions far easier than the recognition of simple human misery. And in the slow dawn of the modern world, the amount of misery would quite have buried any who dared stare at it openly. The vast tribe of the forgotten who have left no footprint in history or men's minds, where should they show up in the chronicles of the age? The privileged skimmed the surface of their comfortable existence, unable to see beyond the powder of their noses. Unable, not unwilling. For if there is a soul that can look upon the gaunt face of poverty and survive the insanity of such suffering, it has yet to see the light of this earth. The poor were ghosts treading the uneasy halls of speculation. The poor were invoked in many an erudite speech as if there existed a vast group of humanity with no substance save four letters and two legs. What is to be done? was asked in profound boudoirs and sun-washed parlor rooms. What is to be done? was asked by tender ancient souls and bitter young minds. What is to be done? was asked by those who breathed cherry fumes and those who renounced them in blind protest. What is to be done? was the central question of the age, but it was an interrogation that could not be answered through the blinkered habits of the questioners. A new age, or none at all, seemed the only possible answer. When they came, on the morning of that clear day, it seemed as if the earth had opened wide and spat out its most bitter seeds, seeds wretched forth for their failure to bloom. The trails of these seeds, these poor, were littered with unnameable losses, as if they cursed their movements by dropping all limbs that might propel them. Here a man rises from drinking and stumbles out into the street. He tries to scratch his nose but raises his stump, in vain for his hands have remained clinging to the bottle. There a woman rises from a thickly companioned bed and tries to walk, but falls on the floor. Her legs have remained between the covers, the mobility they offered, amputated by the growing seed in her belly. Here, 
The child rises from the wreckage of a sunken family, tries to grasp the light he projects before him, but his eyes are gone, sold for respite from horror and memory, and he gropes alone in the dark. So many limbs. It should surprise the world to cross the street without tripping, without falling and regarding the right angles of human destruction through the corner of a propped elbow. All the avenues of escape, all stripped from the hapless poor like the uniform of a cowardly soldier, stripped by the sergeant of choice in circumstance. His sword finds the seam binding hope to effort and rip, they fly apart to be lost on the empty battlefield. The sergeant spits and says, No, salute boy, you are disgraced to your uniform. And what of the medals of labor, hope, and expectation? Off with them, throw them on the ground, and grind them to dust. This war was fought long before your time. Your father's father ran from the battlefield. These medals do not belong to you. This cap, what is this cap? Do I finger an inscription marked ambition? Ambition for what woman do you wish to become a queen? You are the daughter of a gambler, a thief, a drunkard, a poor man. No, no. You shall walk bareheaded and fall by the road under a hard sun. Your hair shall fly in your face when the winds of adversity strike, and your flesh shall chill on your bones. For you have been part of the darkness at the corner of men's eyes. And if they see you, they shall see your trail, see where you came from, and shall be blind no longer. Compassion, girl, have compassion for those a little less unfortunate than you. And whether the haughty sergeant who hacked the ranks of life was appointed by God, by society, or by the poor themselves, was of little consequence to the age. The effect was clear. Four letters, two legs, and entirely too much of the whole business. Something should be done. But what? Ah, an interesting question. Very complex. Compassion, yes. Generosity, naturally. But not too much wouldn't want the unwashed getting lazy, hmm? Perhaps also a sprinkling of legislation, for what better way to undercut the dictatorship of the sergeant than with good old-fashioned political clout? Tell them how long to work, where to work, what pay to receive, what to eat and where to sleep, disciplined by God! Get them to see the link between work and food! Yank them from their habits away from this damnable humility, this lack of faith that keeps them down. Show them a better way, our way, for they are poor! and must no longer be poor if we are to sleep peacefully in the afternoon. Lawrence watched them come, this skeletal army, and some of these thoughts, half-remembered scraps of heated arguments, floated through his mind. He stood in a field south of his house. Kay, Mary, and Adam stood beside him. Tables of food were laid before them, and a few stout lads stood ready to quell any disorder. The autumn day was blazingly hot, and the lightly rolling hills, the distant smoke of the village, the far trees sawing between the lawful divisions of land, the sparrows being shooed from the trays of food, the wheat and heat and shimmering blue sky, all this seemed to be a sumptuous table laid for a feast of beasts, for as Lawrence saw them coming, he could scarcely think of them as human. By God, he whispered, for he was not an unimaginative man. His lands were no longer poor, and the distance between himself and his poorest subject could still be reckoned in a degree of sorts. But these, 
God, he thought, where are these coming from? The meek are not among us, for the meek are self-bowed, and these wrecks before me have not even the shy dignity of meekness. There were less than two hundred, and they walked on stiff legs that seemed to have forgotten even the pain of motion. Their eyes were fixed on the ground, as if they expected the sun to strike them down for defiling its vision. Their arms hung thin and useless by their sides. The effects of true starvation had never been fully apparent to Lawrence. He blessed their rags in fearful relief, for when their tatters passed aside, they revealed bodies that seemed a child's sketch of life. Muscle, the food of toil, had itself been consumed in their desperate attempt to cling to life, and the hopeless habits of their existence appeared nothing more than a brutal joke. What keeps them going? wondered Lawrence. What keeps them from ending it all? He imagined himself briefly, in the prone position of abject poverty, shorn of education, of health, of opportunity, each day less than the one before, the future, a dark descent into more want, more horror, more self-peeling and self-erasure. He stood there watching, then the sight overwhelmed him, and he averted his eyes. Send them, God, let them have the food now, he cried. One of the lads looked up at him. Not the right idea, sir he said, hefting his stick. Let them have it, let them have it all. They'll go wild, sir, none of us will be able to hold them. I don't care. People, he shouted suddenly, standing tall on his podium. People, th th this food is for you. Eat, eat, come, come and eat it all. The march of the poor stopped all of a sudden. Heads were raised, scabrous faces and red eyes regarded the tables of bread and cheese, the pitchers of cider and mead, and the impact of such a sight seemed to strike the crowd like a silent fist. This slow blow could be seen from afar as though a rock had been dropped at the far end of a deep, dark pool. A few at the front began edging forward. Some scrambled from the middle, and, and suddenly everything was in motion. Lawrence was startled by the silence of the charge. People leapt and crawled over one another, thrust and kicked their way to the front, and the sudden advance of the mass was like the charge of an army too panicked to flee. Lawrence took a step backwards, almost falling off his podium, as the horde rushed forward. The charge seemed like an unstoppable tide, a rush that would bury him in a madness of trampling. The lads jumped back, the tables were overturned, the cider and mead sprayed beyond the reach of scrabbling hands, and the crowd turned into a squirming mass of cloaked beasts, digging and burrowing, chasing a crumb or a drop, tearing and gouging into whatever came its way, earth, food, neighbor. It was a mad sight. And Lawrence turned his eyes to his sister, sickened as the stout lads advanced with their sticks. It was not long before the food was gone hands raised and stuffed faces mechanically, and then the communal bellies seemed to feel the impact of food all at once, and the poor fell to the ground and lay their faces on the torn earth. Such ecstasy radiating from their closing eyes that they looked like a rapturous congregation of satisfied addicts. Lord, the sight of it, whispered Adam. They'll never work for it, sir. 
he said, turning his pale face to Lawrence. They'll see it and eat it, but they'll never work for it. It's not in their bones. That's a lie, said Mary, walking past the podium. They will work harder than any to escape the savagery of such an existence. You there, she said, kneeling and touching a prostrate form with her fingertips. You there. Look at me. A red-bearded face turned to her from the ground. Leave me alone, it hissed. I will not leave you alone, she said. Ever been a leader? The man croaked an abysmal laugh, clutching at his belly. <laughs> leader, sure. We've all led at one time or another. Meself, I've been queen of the Tartars, and a damn good time I had it too. My left eye's a real <coughs> diamond. Get up, you fool, said Mary. The man twisted around and stared up at her. What do you want? Thanks. I thank ye. The food was good. Not as good as the Tartars can cook, but not scratching bad. He scowled, gripping his belly. Oh, God. You know where it came from? Asked Mary. Kay stood a few feet behind her, fascinated. Eh? And you know where it came from? Most of mine came from the odd claw of a woman, he said with a savage grin. Wrestled it free and clear, did I, Mavis? He said, laughing at the woman who cowered beside him, feeding a baby. The food came from the hands of men well-fed, men able to put a roof over their heads and food in their children's bellies, said Mary slowly. Men the likes of whom you have never known. Men who would spit at you if you passed them in the street. Yeah, go on. Good for them, glared the bearded man. Would you like to be such a man? Who says I ain't? I've spat at a few in my time, he said, proving it by performing said action at Mary's feet. Ever dreamt of being a man? asked Mary, leaning over his face. Who are you to ask? I am someone who can offer you that chance. Oh, you need a model for a pretty picture? mocked the bearded man, turning his face and touching his filthy locks. I has counted a fair lad in my youth. You want to use those hands? asked Mary, leaning deeper. You want to use those hands for something other than pilfering and grabbing? You want to use them to put a roof over your head and take a wife? What, and give up me freedom? I've seen the guts of the poor house and have no use for such do-gooders. Thank you kindly, though. Mary reached down and grabbed his ragged coat. The cloth parted like butter both in ease and consistency. I am offering you honest work. Say what you like, this is no life. You have a little courage, a little anger, because your belly is full and you've been cheated all of your life. But I am an honest woman. I am offering you, she said, straightening and raising her voice. I am offering to all of you, to every man, woman and child here, gainful work. I don't care who you are, where you've come from, or what you've done. If you can sit straight for a few hours and move your hands a little, just, just as if you were begging, then you will have meat and shelter every day for the rest of your lives. Other heads began turning towards her, faces lank with the heavy weight of suspicion and despair, yet... Underneath, beneath, the hooded vacuum of the eyes lay a deeper gleam, a half-forgotten gleam, a gleam of what it meant to be human. Don't listen, shouted the bearded man hoarsely, struggling to his feet. 
This life's a beggar's life, and they're the fools that say we'll get our reward. Spat on since day one, and here we'd be dropped scraps of labour and, and, and bend your back and be a man. He turned to Lawrence. Well, I say to hell with us. My manhood was several lives past. His voice rose hysterically, and Kay stepped back, her heart pounding. My manhood is in the gutter. You're a fine lot to say, well, goddamn, but we've forgotten something. Let's throw him a scrap or two. You want to give me summit? Well, I'll tell you summit. I was never even robbed, you scurvy bastards. So I say to hell with you, to hell. He screamed the last word, his face contorted with rage, and spat at Lawrence, striking him on the cheek with a thick splat of spittle. Lawrence stared at the man, his face turning dead white. He strode forward and raised his hand. Kay cried out, staring at Mary, and in the sudden silence, another sound arose, a sound that froze motion and stilled hearts. From the woman at the bearded man's feet, an infant's cry rose, shrill and shivering in the still air, trembling, tenuous, infinitely mournful. It cut through the sudden spasm of violence like a lost cry from another world, a world that was to be the world of the future. It was an awful cry. It sounded as if the infant suddenly saw the choice before its elders, the lives that hung in the balance. The woman rose from the mass, clutching the wailing infant to her breast. Stop, please, she whispered. Her face was streaked with grime, tears ran down her cheek. Please, please, I will work. The infant took a shuddering breath, and then another thin cry rose from its tiny lungs. Please, let, let me work, repeated the woman. She began stepping forward over the bodies, holding her baby tightly, her blue eyes supplicating. Lawrence let loose a long sigh. The crying continued, the only sound. Who else? He called, stepping back from the bearded man. A few women rose, then another man. The red-bearded man raised his hands. Don't listen, who is this man? Is he the law? Are we to be bound in chains for stealing his food? I am Lord Lawrence Carvey, said Lawrence, stepping forward. I stand behind what she says. Not for long, muttered Atom, but no one heard him. We ask for no charity, said a man walking forward. Behind him, someone burped. All right, no more charity. Who's talking about charity? asked Lawrence. Mary turned to watch him, deeply excited. I have no time for charity. I want to put your muscles to work, for pay. How? demanded a man. Making cloth. On a new loom. An easy loom. Why us? demanded another. Because you are poor, said Kay suddenly. Because we have a responsibility. No, whispered Mary, shaking her head quickly. The bearded man scowled, averting his face. Damn right, time to find it, he muttered with infinite bitterness. Who cares that you're poor? asked Mary, suddenly turning to them. Forget that, that's gone. Already you speak like civilized people. Take it. Take more. Work for it. Take it all. What I plan is this, said Lawrence, holding up his hand. I want two hundred more or less able bodies. 
I'm willing to pay 10 shillings a week for 10 hours work a day. Room and board shall be found for you and taken from your pay at the rate of three shillings a week. What's 10 shillings? asked a young boy. Well, uh, it's what you pay for a side of beef about four or five pounds, said Lawrence. Or a decent cask of beer. Beer, muttered several voices in awe. A few more men stood up. What about the children? asked another woman. Those five and up can work. Those under will have enough to eat until they're old enough, replied Lawrence. Are you gonna preach at us? asked an old man, shaking his head. I can't abide preaching. Your lives are your own. There's a church if you want it. Mr. Footer, said Lawrence, stepping aside. Perhaps there are a few questions you want to ask these people. Surely, scowled Adam. Why are we doing this? Never mind that. Go on. Adam shook his head. Well, if that's the shape of things, so be it, he muttered, turning to the crowd. Listen, any of you lot ever held a hammer? Yes. Hello? What about a saw? Ever hefted a saw? File? Plane? Hands up. Ever sanded wood? Ever seen wood? You know, grows on trees? Come on, you must have been beaten with it once or twice. Mr. Footer, warned Lawrence. Well, sir, I can't see the sense of shaping the future with such a shabby lot, he said. You give me a week and I can dig up a hundred fine souls who know more about wood than which end receives it. We are using these people, said Kay angrily, or not at all. Damn it, muttered Adam, turning to the crowd. All right, he cried. Please and thank you. Raise your right arms. The faces stared at him blankly. Sighing, he turned around and raised his right hand. Like this, he said over his shoulder. Now move your hands up and down, like so. Yeah, that's it. Good. That's called sanding. Now bend your elbows, like this. Wonderful. Now straighten them. Again and again, that's that's hammering. Well, a little faster anyway. Lower your hands. Watch me. Don't get confused. And keep the motion going. Oh, put, put, put a little shoulder in it. No, no, the other shoulder. Yeah, that's the kind of sawing that'll make for splendidly sturdy looms. Oh, yes, sir. We got a fine lot here. Born carpenters, all of them, in about a thousand years. Mr. Footer, said Lawrence, you are free to find other investors if you have a mind. Adam held the Lord's eyes for a moment, then turned away. His face flushed. All right. Next time we try it with tools, he called to the crowd, his voice tight. Try to remember this part. Chapter 15. Risable Women Speak. On returning home, Lawrence found two events had occurred that threw considerable spanners in the works. First, his mother had discovered that Mary had not been banished, and second, she held a letter that made him regret his plans for more than a moment. You stay, snapped Lady Barbara, staring at Kay as Lawrence entered the drawing room. You into the sunroom. Kay started speaking, but Lawrence cut her off with a wave of his hand following his mother. Sit down, commanded Lady Barbara. Lawrence sat. She turned her back to him and stared out the window. 
I would ask for explanations if I thought there was anything more than willful disobedience on your part, she said, flicking her fingers behind her back. However, since you have declared yourself in action, I have no choice but to simply say, this will not be. She turned to him, and he almost flinched at the depth of anger in her grey eyes. One raises children sternly in the hopes that they will recognize sensible limitations to their actions. One watches them grow and slowly loosens one's command in the hopes that they will find the maturity to behave in a responsible manner. One expects mistakes. One expects disobedience. But one does not expect them to act like unprincipled madmen at the age of 24. However, this has been your decision. And as such, I shall reply to it as I would to any wayward child. This will not be. This merry creature will leave our lands. Mr. Footer will depart at once, and you and Kay shall spend the winter deprived of income in the hopes that you shall, in your leisure, come to understand the sin of disobedience. That is all, she said, turning to go. A harsh fate, said Lawrence, standing slowly. Considering that tomorrow is my birthday. His mother hesitated for an instant. That should have been considered prior to action, she said. Who says it wasn't? asked Lawrence. Lady Barbara stopped short and turned to him. Excuse me, she asked, her jaw set. Father knew a good deal about you, mother, he said. Being married to someone for twenty-eight years gives even scholars some wisdom in human affairs. And my childhood was not only spent learning how to obey you, it was also spent nurturing certain dreams, dreams that I often told father about. He, too, had an aspiring side, though I shouldn't have expected you to have noticed that, since you spent most of your time avoiding his company. He listened quite attentively as I outlined my plans. Good for you, he said, though I don't expect it will get past your mother. Well, I said, what can we do about that? And do you know, we came up with something. You two conspired against me, whispered Lady Barbara, her cheeks like white lava. Such are the perils of living in a dictatorship, replied Lawrence. That is enough. I want you out of my house, she cried. You have about six hours to enforce that order, mother, he said, for after midnight you will have to learn how to persuade rather than command, for that is when I turn twenty-five, and the title, the lands, and the money all pass into my name. Lady Barbara stared at him, eyes narrowed, and took a deep breath. I am well aware of your birthday, yet you must be married for that to occur, and since you have chosen to spend your time running after peasants in the fields, that is unlikely to occur, unless you are willing to marry one. No, not married mother, said Lawrence. Father understood my plans very well. I explained to him that marriage would have to wait until they are well underway. That clause was changed the day before he died. Without prior notification, that will never stand. Unfortunately, it was signed, sealed, and delivered. You were busy receiving visitors. It escaped your attention. We'll look for it tomorrow. Lady Barbara stood against the window stiffly, her willpower straining, adamant. She stared at her son, and he could see bitter flashes scurrying deep in her eyes. They strove to find mastery, but against the wall of law, scrabbled in vain. Their color seemed to fade slowly, as if 
A cloud passed over the room. Then it has all been ironed out, hasn't it? She said slowly. And you are aglow with pride at having outwitted your mother. Yes, I know little about the law. I, I trusted in openness and was rewarded with deceit. Such were your underhanded plans. Such was the respect you showed to me. It is no matter. It is you who will have to live with it, not I. Such noble soundings ill befit one who has controlled her family with her husband's money, said Lawrence. Lady Barbara pursed her lips, nodding slowly. That is exceedingly harsh. There are scant recourses to my sex, even in this modern age. We were born privileged, and the maintenance of our position has been the driving force of my life. You are of another generation, and today it has been my rude awakening to discover that family loyalty means very little in the face of such differences. You have your ideas. I have mine. If you believe that deceiving me puts you in the right, I cannot dispute you. Lawrence frowned. Yet you, you, you drove me to this. Yes, and I was also driven to certain things, replied his mother. Due to your father's spending habits, I have had to resort to petty manipulations of money and discipline because that is the only language my children understand. Like their father, they care little for the implorings of culture or honor, history or, or tradition. It has been a losing battle, of course, for your generation seeks creation only in rejection. We are wrong, you say, for we do not toil for our wealth. But wealth is the least important factor in our lives. The retention of nobility is the essence of what we are, Lawrence. Take that away, and, and we are nothing, and the world has lost a great treasure besides. What treasure? he asked. Your merchants are wealthy, replied his mother, but they have no soul. They betray their station and ape their betters by wearing gold. But the only gold is in the soul, Lawrence. Tamper with that and you debase humanity. Uh, what can I say to convince you? Nothing, for to you I am a parasite. And you'd like me to think that is true. But I swear to you on my eternal soul that you will in time learn that there are many kinds of parasites. There are parasites who hoard uh, knowledge and, and culture and pass on graciousness and civility to their children. And there are parasites who reject such gifts and slave to burn wealth in the bellies of the ignorant. We live on the backs of the poor, you say, yet you also ride them in your own way. And in the rush to fill their bellies, you turn from the world you were born to enrich. You have turned from golden souls to ragged backs, and the time may come when you will rue what you have lost. Lawrence stared at her for a moment, then shook his head. Never. Then there are no more lessons to be taught, replied his mother, only to be learned. She nodded once, very slowly, then turned and left the room. Lawrence exhaled mightily, thanking his stars once again, that unlike Kay, his presence of mind did not desert him in moments of crisis. He sank into a chair and rubbed his face, his head spinning. He blew out the candles and sat in the dark for a very long time.
Eventually, the door to the sunroom opened carefully, and Lawrence turned his head. Kay stood in the doorway, her hands closed on a piece of paper. Larry, she said hesitantly, Mother told me to give this to you. What is it? he asked. A letter for you, sealed by one uh, Lady Serbs. Do, do, do you know her? The name seemed to galvanize the young man. He stood up quickly as if shaking off a great weight and ran his fingers through his hair. Lydia, why is she writing to me? Are, are you sure it's not from her father? No, it's from her. Do, do you know her? By God, yes, he said, taking the letter from her unwilling hands. He tore it open and read. Dear Lord Carvey, Thank you for your kind invitation. Please excuse my penmanship. Never my greatest virtue. It lies utterly dormant in moments of haste. And this letter is compelled to such brevity that it borders on the rude. Father sends his best wishes and has asked me to inform you that he will gratefully accept your hospitality for the last week of September. For myself, I am both writing and posting this note hastily in the hopes that it will reach you before I do. I hope the suddenness of my visit is not an absolute breach of decorum, but Father mentioned that his invitation extended to myself as well, for which I thank you. We had planned to come earlier, but something arose on our lands in Yorkshire, and he is compelled to go and straighten the matter out. I should be arriving on the afternoon of the 20th, and please, if this is not to your convenience, I shall not be offended. I look forward to singing in your little church, and, hospitality permitting, gazing firsthand on the All Saints' Eve celebrations, rumoured to be rather legendary in your lands. Yours with many apologies and much anticipation. Sincerely, Lady Lydia Serbs. Lawrence stared in wonder at the letter, his heart racing. By God, he muttered, at such a time. What, what, what is it? asked Kay. She's coming. Dear Lord, tomorrow, he cried, clapping his head. Who, 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 this Lydia person? Who, who is she? Oh, only one of the most talented artists of this or any other realm, said Lawrence in a kind of panic, not to mention a learned lady not, not wanting in beauty. Though perhaps wanting in tact, remarked his sister, giving as she does so little notice. There, there's some reason. Oh, but never mind that. It's, it's enough that she's coming, said Lawrence. He started for the door, then stopped, lost in thought. If I can intrude on your frenzy for a moment, said Kay, taking a slow step towards him. You have to travel with Mr. Footer to Dover tomorrow to buy wood, and you had also planned to talk to the Jiggers about using their barn for the moment, and there was that business of training. You were going to use Knotted Bob to train them in carpentry while Mr. Footer was gone. Lawrence, remember? We talked about this all afternoon. Mary is coming later to help us organize things. Lawrence stared at her then, sat down heavily, clutching his head in his hands again. Well... "'Some of that will have to wait,' he cried. "'No, don't look at me like that. "'You don't know what it means. "'Mr. Footer knows, knows what to buy. Um, "'I'll give him access to funds. Oh, "'That'll mean going to the bank, curse it. "'Mary can... "'I'll write her a note. Uh, uh, that, "'That should... "'And what about the fifty-odd poor souls "'sitting in a field tonight?' asked Kay. "'Don't worry yourself. I'll, "'I'll just tell them that you are very sorry "'for getting their hopes up.' But their new lives will have to wait, because you want to woo a singer. Oh, they'll understand. I'm sure many of them have been in the same predicament. Oh, damn it all, cried Lawrence, rising and pacing again. Of all the times. Should be perfect. If it's mostly in, the cattle away. But no, I had to go play crusader. Give me a moment, Kay. Don't interrupt. He clucked his tongue rapidly. 
Here, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you and Mary n know what to do. Damn, damn, you just told me. I I'll write it all down. Uh, Mary is sharp enough. She'll understand. It's only for a day or so. If Lydia is who I think she is, she'll appreciate what I I'm doing. But she doesn't look or sound like the kind of woman who appreciates arriving at an empty house with mother in it. For heaven's sake, Larry, cried Kay, listen to yourself, if you can hear your conscience over your nerves. Write and tell her to delay for a few weeks. That will be all right. I can't, cried Lawrence. She's on her way. That's her lookout, not yours. It's just so unexpected. I, I, I didn't even expect her to come at all, and, and, and here she is coming alone. One's only chance to make a first impression. No, 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 no. I will simply have to wait. I, I, I have my own life, after all. Lawrence, I'm not sure that giving Mary free reign is such a good idea, said Kay, edging closer to him. What? Why? I, I don't trust her, she whispered. What? Why, why are you whispering? Hold on a moment. I know it sounds insane, given all she's trying to do, but... When she was looking at you, when, when that man spat in your face, I saw a look in her eyes that I hoped to never see again. There was a kind of relish in it. Yeah, I know it's just a kind of intuition, but you did wrong her once long ago, and it's quite possible that she intends you harm. That's just my instinct. Instinct, snorted Lawrence, shaking his head. And were I to haul you in front of a jury, what evidence would you give? None, none at all, replied Kay. It's just a feeling. Don't tell me I know the bane of the age. But have you ever asked yourself just what her motives are? Oh, of course. An orphan who has experienced blinding poverty comes to the only man of power who owes her a debt and convinces him to take uh, a little responsibility for the poor and make a pretty penny to boot. Yes, yes, she's obviously out to ruin me unquestionably. No, there's something in her that I can't explain, persisted Kay, and maybe never will, but... There's a terrible intensity to her, and, and I believe that everything she does, everything she says, has more than one purpose. Yes, well, perhaps you're right, said Lawrence. I'll be sure to keep my eyes open. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have about 10,000 things to do. Kay sat down after he left and stared out the window, twirling a strand of hair. That was utterly out of proportion, she said to herself. Yet I cannot but wonder if there's not a grain of truth in it. Chapter 16 Two Swans, One Fluttering Grains of truth have little weight in a strong wind, and the span between Kay's misgivings and Lady Serb's arrival was torn with such gales of preparation that all grains went right out the window. Lawrence roused the maids long before dawn, commanding them to apply every energy to making the house a paradise. Every cottage within three miles found its garden suddenly stripped of its brightest flowers, their owners staring stupidly at the pile of silver in their hands, as Lawrence's carriage churned away six horses at the fore. The rooms of the Carvey mansion were aired, dusted, festooned with flowers. The carpets were beaten with inquisitional fanaticism. Even door frames and the tops of picture frames were wiped clean. The garden was stripped of all errant weeds and cluttering plants, and great bonfires erupted to consume the endless succession of prunings and evicted undergrowth. Lady Barbara kept to her room during the upheaval, writing streams of letters intended to bring the full weight of conformity back to her household. 
feeling both spy and prisoner in her own home. Lawrence issued streams of directives and commands. Mary found herself invested with the kind of latitude that she had only dreamed of, and spent the morning in a kind of daze, her mind racing with mad plans. Adam was dispatched to Dover with a promissory note to procure the necessary lumber, and Kay went to negotiate with the Jiggers about the use of an extra barn. It was about four o'clock when the outermost scouts raced back to report that Lydia's carriage was about two miles from the house. Lawrence quickly gave orders to conclude all cleaning and dismissed the barber who had been snipping and perfuming him for the past hour. After the man left, his watering eyes convinced him that it would be wise to wait for Lydia's carriage on the front porch in the hopes that the evening breeze would strip some of the extremities of scent from his skin. Lawrence fidgeted on the front steps as the carriage came up the front path, the servants lined up behind him. He took off his hat as Lydia descended, her radiance quite undimmed by the rigors of her journey. The light was fading fast, and she untied her bonnet and held it out. Oh, she's expecting a servant, dear God, why didn't I bring one? thought Lawrence, then took the cap himself, bowing deeply. Too much cologne, my eyes, they sting. Lady Serbs, welcome, he said, then blushed at the pretension in his voice. Good evening, Lord Carvey, she smiled, then stood to one side as a young man stepped down from the carriage and stretched expansively, yawning. Lawrence blinked, staring at him. The young man's eyes were oddly merry, and Lawrence found himself calculating the distance between the stranger and Lydia, trying to determine... "'Lord Carvey, this is my cousin, Mr. Jonathan Edsworth Esquire,' said Lydia, as if discerning his thoughts. "'I hope you don't mind the presumption, but my father was concerned about my travelling alone.' "'No, no, no,' said Lawrence, grinning in relief and shaking the young man's hand. "'You are more than welcome, Mr. Edsworth.' "'I'm sure,' grinned Jonathan, glancing about. "'I must say, Lord Carvey, that when I agreed to come with Lydia, I expected to find the house abuzz with primal agriculture.' Yet this all looks very civilized, he smiled at Lawrence. Although perhaps we have not discovered you in your truest lair, for unless I miss my guess, much of what we perceive is in honor of us. Oh, but what am I saying? He laughed with a bow. You had no idea I was coming. The honor is yours alone, Lydia. Oh, do be quiet, said Lydia. Where are we to put our carriage, Lord Carvey? Oh, um, just, uh, <laughs> wait, uh, coachman, uh, uh, take it around back, uh, to, to the left. Please, please, servants will show you to the stables. A driver touched his cap, grinning at Lawrence's blushing face. Ho, hop, he cried, cracking his whip. As the carriage trundled away, a kind of strangled silence descended on the trio. Lawrence's brain raced, imagining all sorts of fascinating openings, but... His tongue seemed frozen in his mouth. He noticed Jonathan grinning at him and almost scowled. "'Shall we uh, retire to to the house?' he said, waving his hand. "'Let's,' said Lydia. They stood still a moment longer until Lawrence realized they were waiting for his lead. Crimsoning frantically, he turned and walked towards the house, imagining for a moment that they would stand where they were and giggle, but they followed close on his heels." He slowed for a moment to walk beside Lydia, opening his mouth for a riveting introduction to his brilliance. 
I say, old man, cried Jonathan, don't drag it in the dirt. Lawrence frowned, then glanced down, and saw Lydia's bonnet hanging from a strap. Oh, excuse me, he muttered, snatching it up. I shall clean it up. Have it cleaned. Here, let me, said Lydia, taking it from his hand. The touch of her fingers was shocking. His heart failed him. You said, uh, your father would, would be here in five days, he said. Yes, he's taking care of some business in Yorkshire and will come down directly afterwards. That's a shame, said Lawrence. I wanted to contact him before that. Why? I wanted to buy some sheep. Well, talk to him about it anyway. There are, uh, are there a good deal of sheep? Uh, up, up there. Uh, 3,722, last count replied Lydia. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's most I interesting. I shall have to, um, re re revise my estimates, said Lawrence, wondering at the fool who had his tongue. Y you see, I, I've started a most interesting experiment in the last few days. Um, you shall see some of it, I'm sure, if you, if you have a mind. What sort of experiment, said Jonathan, it's to do uh, with the re redemption of poverty, uh, though redemption may be too strong a term. Uh, to take the lowest and give them a chance, that's the object. And sheep are involved, asked Jonathan. Teaching the poor to ride them before you give them horses and trim. No, replied Lawrence. It it it's a long story, and not one I want to embark on first thing. We, we can talk about it uh, at dinner if you like. They had reached the front door. You are welcome to rest before dinner, said Lawrence, opening it and allowing them to enter, and change if you like. We eat in, in one hour. Edith? he called. There was a moment's pause, and a maid appeared at the head of the stairs. Excuse me, sir, she said, but Edith is waiting on Lady Barbara and will not come down. Uh-oh. Uh, well, uh, please show our guests to their rooms, Joyce, said Lawrence. Yes, sir? fidgeted Joyce, who was not exactly constructed to impress visitors. But uh, which which ones exactly? Uh, top two, first at the left on the landing. Give the lady the first one, Joyce blinked. Um, uh, uh, only one room is made up, sir. Yes, uh, well, we'll take off the covers and, and plump the cushions in the first and make up the second. It's your job, you know, replied Lawrence shortly, acutely aware of the impropriety of the reception. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, 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 please come this way, she stammered, curtsying to Lydia and Jonathan so abruptly that they all flinched, expecting her to topple down the stairs. Our clothes are in the stable. Would you, would you like us to change there? asked Jonathan. Yes, well, I, I will have them sent to your rooms, said Lawrence, impaling him with many mental spears. And I will see you at dinner, he finished. I'm going out for a smoke until my room is ready said Jonathan. With your permission, please, said Lawrence. Lydia ascended the stairs as Jonathan went outside. Alone, Lawrence turned and pressed his forehead into the coolness of the wall. Come on, he muttered, you're an aristocrat, act like one. He felt unaccountably fearful and strove mightily to master himself. The tension I feel with Lydia is quite foolish, he told himself sternly. She is an attractive and accomplished woman, but I am an intelligent and ambitious man. But still, something nagged at him. 
Being spat at by beggars one day and entertaining a pearl of the nobility the next was a ragged transition. His mother's warnings hung in him like a jangling set of chandeliers. I have nothing to hide, he told himself sternly, yet the statement itself admitted a subterfuge of sorts. The wall felt smooth on his forehead, and the onset of a dreamy lassitude kept his head pressed there. It was only with a twist of will that he eventually raised his head and closed the front door. You are experiencing what it means to act consistently, he lectured himself sternly. You wanted to help people, and Mary showed you how. You have sown souls, and if that frightens you when sowing crops did not, that is because you have much to learn, child of privilege. Thus collecting himself, he went upstairs and knocked on his mother's door. Edith answered it, opening the door only slightly. Yes, she asked. I want to speak to my mother, if you don't mind, said Lawrence. She has asked not to be disturbed. But surely she will attend dinner. No, she is dining in her rooms. And she's asked me to tell you that she will not trouble you as long as there are guests in the house. She has asked me to inform you that she is an unwanted tenant here by your own declaration, and she will not soil the dinner table with her unwanted presence. What? cried Lawrence. Let me in. Edith firmly blocked the doorway. No, sir, she is not to be disturbed. Damn it! Well, tell her that I expect her to fulfill her obligations as a member of this family at least. She will come to dinner tomorrow. I will relay your message, sir, said Edith, looking him up and down distastefully. Excuse me, what is that look? demanded Lawrence. You would be wise to remember my mother's words. I run this house now, and I will not take kindly to any insubordination. Yes, sir. Excuse me, sir, replied Edith. Lawrence turned on his heels and strode down the stairs. He tore open one of the back doors and went out onto the veranda. The sun was halfway to the horizon. The crimson light hung lazily in the ragged nets of clouds. The breeze was soft and cool. Lawrence closed his eyes, enjoying the tickling of his beard. The back gate closed with a clang, jerking his eyes open. A distant figure leaned against it, obviously exhausted. Lawrence squinted and walked down the steps. Kay walked towards him stiffly, her head erect, her fists clenched. Kay, good ev evening, how are you? he said. His sister walked right past him and up the steps, her eyes fixed on the ground. Oh, Lord, he said, closing his eyes. Well, come on, then, she snapped, opening the back door. You've made your point. What point? he asked, turning around. I have been thoroughly humiliated and shoved neatly back into the slot my sex was designed for. I apologize for having required the lesson. Lawrence followed her up the steps. What happened? Strange to say, but the road to charity is not paved with gratitude. Farmer Jigger is very angry. He has a bone to pick with you. What? Why? Well, you know, he's a funny creature, said Kay. Seems that losing three prize pigs and half a barn rubs him the wrong way. What? Come in, he said, holding the door open, and tell me exactly what happened. All right, said Kay, but if I catch the least gleam of satisfaction in your eyes, I shall thrash you senseless. Lawrence led Kay into the drawing room. She plunked down on a sofa and folded her hands on her lap with the significant slowness of cold anger. So, 
said Lawrence, leaning against the edge of a table. Tell me. I arrived a little afternoon, said Kay. Mary hadn't shown up yet. It was just me and them. The meal we gave them had quite renewed them. They had procured a good supply of beer from somewhere and were in a very chipper mood. I, I didn't re really know what to say, so I began talking to them of the need for self-discipline now that they were to be saved. It didn't go over like a kettle of roses, I can tell you. They jeered at me. I tried taking their beer away, and I can honestly say that I empathize with your desire to skewer that red-bearded man. If we is to be working folk, he said, pushing me away, we is to be allowed working vices. Then they started teasing me quite brutally, offering me beer and dance lessons. There was no reasoning with them. I fled and took refuge in the Jigger's kitchen. After about an hour, I commented to wife Jigger that she may be overcooking something. No, Lady Carvey, there's no cooking going on here, she said, quite perplexed. Just then one of the farmhands came bursting through the door and shouted something about a fire. We rushed out and saw great gouts of smoke pouring from the barn. I got shoved aside, and there was a good deal of running and flinging of water and hissing of steam, and when the smoke cleared, so to speak, it was discovered that some of our more enterprising subjects had stolen three prize pigs and tried to roast them on a fire they started, using wood torn from the wall of the barn. Good deal of straw in there, of course. It, it caught them and smoked them all out. They all put the blame on the ones who'd run away, jabbering and pointing incessantly. Farmer Jigger left two men to guard what was left of the barn, and told me in, in no uncertain terms that our poor souls would kindly leave his land or face the consequences. "'Where should they go?' I asked him. "'You want them, you keep them,' he replied in no uncertain terms. Not having the strength to argue, I told them to come here. "'Here!' exclaimed Lawrence, turning pale. "'Yes, here!' snapped Kay. Of course, you and your infinite wisdom would have found a better solution, but since it was only me, I told them to come here. But Kay, we have guests, I know. So I thought another fifty or so wouldn't make much of a difference. We can put them in the greenhouse, she paused, calculating, and shed. This is awful, cried Lawrence. Mother's tournament plants are in the greenhouse. What are they going to do, eat them too? Glass walls are harder to burn, though, said Kay. Oh, that will never do, will we? We'll, we'll put them in the stables. Lawrence stood quickly, then sat and took a deep breath. He spread his hands and gazed at his sister. Look, I know you're angry. I understand that. But I want you to know I think you did the right thing. And I also apologize for having put you in such an awful spot. I don't think I could have handled it better. Really? demanded Kay. You're not just patronizing me? Lawrence smiled. We're both new to this. We have only our instincts to go on, and I'm sure yours are as good as mine. Don't think I want to delegate you to the fringes. Would you say the same if everything had gone swimmingly? Of course. Look, we're both enthusiastic about this. We've had a setback, but we can learn from it. We must solve this together. We must be as one. Um, I had a terrible row with Mother this morning. She is now our declared enemy. Really? Kay's back sagged, a distant look coming into her eyes. She could make things very difficult for us, said Lawrence. You're not joking. We can't feed them with good intentions. Don't worry about that. The finances are taken care of, but she will use every weapon she has to bring us back in line. We really need each other's support to survive that. What weapons does she have, other than the purse strings? Asked Kay, the distant look leaving her eyes in a flash. I have said that money is no longer the issue. There is no choice to it. We must survive our respect for her if we are to do the right thing. How? 
How are the finances taken care of? demanded Kay, sitting up. Lawrence tugged at his beard. It is my birthday tomorrow, you know. I hadn't forgotten, though. I, I, I don't have a present. I Never mind that, he said, taking a deep breath. Father and I arranged his will so that the entire estate reverts to me on my 25th birthday. Kay paused. But you're not married. That clause was struck just before he died. What? You heard me. So you have it all now? exclaimed Kay, leaping to her feet. All? Yes, except for mother's allowance and your portion when you marry. Kay started for the door, then stopped in her tracks and turned around. She frowned, scowled, then smiled in sudden hope. My God, Larry, that's wonderful, she cried, clapping her hands. He blinked. I'm glad you think so. No, it's more than wonderful. It's amazing. What we can do, you and I, with the fortune at our disposal. Lawrence studied his sister's face for a moment. There shall be virtually no limits, that's true. That has always been her strength, and now she is. And you control it all? In a, in a few hours, yes. And we are to be equal partners in this? Equal, for, for we, replied Lawrence, then stopped abruptly. Equal, echoed Kay. Or is it to be in words alone? What, what, what do you mean? What you have already surmised, judging from your hesitation, said Kay, placing her hands on the table and staring at him. That w will take some time to, to, to think on. What thoughts are required? asked Kay. The thought that an offer made to pacify should never be made real? The thought that I am your equal in rhetoric only? The thought that you trust me enough to be your partner in this, but not enough to let me control any money? How much do you want? he asked, dread in his heart. Oh, what a horrible way of putting it, cried Kay. We are not grasping merchants. We're family. Larry, I cannot help you in any real manner unless I have some say in how our funds are to be used. But I won't nag you into doing the honorable thing, she said, turning away. Let your own heart decide how far you wish to take this revolution. I have stated my reasons. You know my aims. The rest is up to you. You have... Stated it very nobly, said Lawrence. Please, I've no wish to appear ungenerous, but so much has happened today that I fear my mind is clouded. Give me until tomorrow. Come with me to Mr. Stelson's office. I, I have to go anyway to arrange my new accounts. Take as much time as you need, smiled Kay. I'm going into the garden to try and rescue some of Mother's plants before the grateful horde descends. She kissed him and touched his cheek. You are a good man, Larry, she murmured. Remember that? She held his gaze for a moment, then turned and left the room. After his smoke, Jonathan went upstairs and knocked on Lydia's door. I know you're not changing since we don't have our clothes yet, he said, opening the door and striding in. You did not wait for my permission, said Lydia evenly. Do that again, and our relationship is over. Oh, sorry, sorry. 
I tell you, if this were a hotel, pliers couldn't get me to pay the bill. This is not a hotel, replied Lydia, turning from her examination of the pictures on the mantelpiece. Though that would be the only place where your rudeness would be tolerated. I almost think you are envious. Of him? snorted Jonathan. Oh, yes, to be a scattered provincial has always been my secret goal. He's obviously not used to guess, and we did come at a moment's notice, replied Lydia. And if you think it is amusing to throw a host's efforts at hospitality in his face, you have a rather sad sense of humor. Well, it's just the dishonesty of the whole business, said Jonathan, flopping into an armchair. These ums and errs, and how many sheep do you have? Much more pleasant when a man simply bonked his mate on the head and carried her off on the back of a horse. Believe it or not, Jonathan, I'm sure one or two men exist for purposes other than carting me off on a horse. Perhaps in Abyssinia, he replied. Those that are here and have seen you, I think not. Yourself included? Oh, don't be ridiculous. You know you're safe from me, because if I had a mind to win you, I wouldn't drag your bonnet around like a broken doll. I'd have you on my horse in no time. That is so disgusting, said Lydia. You'll notice I smiled when I said that. Your smile is your broken doll. <laughs> Easy, laughed Jonathan. Let's take a moment off from uprooting each other's souls. I just wanted to say that if things don't pick up around here, I'll be off before the end of the week. As you like. Father will take me back. Jonathan pursed his lips, then smiled. You know, I think I am kind of a bully. You are. Give me a moment to revel in my revelation, please. Because I am free of so many prejudices, I feel I have the right to rub others' faces in their conformity. He wanted to tear my throat out downstairs, you know. I saw it in his eyes. But he smiled and gave me a room instead. Let him find his feet and he will surprise you. I feel that, replied Lydia. Even English hosts have their limits. Only you can surprise me, dear Lydia, said Jonathan, flinging his leg over the arm of the chair and clasping his hands behind his head. How so? Listen to you. You normally scorn this sort of fawning vine. This is interesting. I have always had the highest regard for your instincts. They're always so authentic. He was unable to conceal his confusion, said Lydia, which puts him a notch above you if authenticity is what you value. Jonathan stared at her for a moment. You know, I think that if we ever, even for a moment, were to take each other seriously, our friendship would end. We would offend each other too much. A knock sounded at the door. Our clothes are here, said Lydia. Go and change, Mr. Edsworth. I said I would see you fall in love in Dorset, he said, getting up from his chair. But I think I was wrong. He is a different man than I expected. Then he, too, has surprised you, replied Lydia. Chapter 17 A Feast Lawrence felt much better by dinner time. By then he had washed off the perfume, changed into his formal dinnerware, and felt in full command of his faculties. He had made arrangements with the stable hands to convey the expected crowd to the stables, providing them with stout sticks and few illusions. 
The atmosphere in the dining room helped, of course. The shining silver, rich mahogany table and snowy linen napkins banished all thoughts of rank spittle from his mind. He sat at the head of the table, aglow with the benevolent strength of generous hospitality. Lydia entered the room quietly, and Lawrence rose, regarding her for a brief moment of mute appreciation. She wore an empress gown, and the lace hung across her pale shoulders like a fine web. Her delicate neck lifted like an ivory pillar into the dark swirls of her hair, and her eyes were bright and lively. You know, she smiled, touching a crystal goblet, I wonder when it was that this table was last at full capacity. Uh, we, we, we shall all be sort of huddled at this end, said Lawrence, pulling out a chair, then taking her hand. Please, beside me. Jonathan will be down shortly, she said, sitting. I hope he has not rubbed you irrevocably the wrong way. He expected a Rousseauian paradise with all the servants in loincloths. He's actually a good sport when he remembers that other people have feelings too. If a person has a good side, this countryside brings it out. Your mother is not joining us? He shook his head. She sends both welcome and regrets. Lydia nodded and took the time to look around the room carefully. It's not often one sees bookshelves in a dining room, she commented. A legacy of a restrained English marriage, smiled Lawrence. Father read and took notes, mother lectured the children. I can't tell you the number of times I used his inkwell as a condiment in my haste to go out and play. Lydia laughed. Your father was a writer? Oh, yes. You may have heard of his most famous work, Mysteries of the East. Quite a glossy tome, lots of illustrations, not much mystery. That was your father? exclaimed Lydia. Of course I know the book. I should... Like to have complimented him on his prose, though I didn't actually get round to reading much of the actual text. Oh, mother thought we would be excommunicated, Lawrence admitted. Oh, the endless rounds of clergy who came so earnestly to talk him out of his sins, though his book was by no means autobiographical. Have you actually read the good book? He always asked, offering it. The conversations always halted there. Oh, you could see their rabid fascination, their yearning to see, vying with their mustard indignation. He laughed. They never stayed long. Even my own father was hesitant to let me take a good look, but I got a hold of it once or twice when he left it in his study overnight. Confusing, but not so confusing as to dampen the... interest. Why do you think we are so tantalized by all that? asked Lydia. She turned her goblet, the light from the candles shifted over her face. Lawrence blinked. By matters of the flesh? he asked. I suppose because it flies in the face of other worlds. Not much of God in it, despite what the Catholics feel. No, I suppose not, she said slowly. But I wonder. We sit in expectation of a wonderful meal, not not to suppose, of course. And that is a matter of the flesh. Not much of God in that either. Yes, but meals are civilized institutions full of... "'Arid eloquence and good manners,' replied Lawrence. "'Were we to shout in ecstasy while eating eclairs, "'you could be sure dessert would be a taboo topic in England. "'Passion unmasks, and all manners are a kind of mask. 
Ah, then we are not to use cutlery tonight, just dunk our heads in the soup and slurp. Lawrence laughed. That might be Rousseau enough for Mr. Edsworth. Perhaps I should amend my statement. Social intercourse is a mating of the minds, and as such requires conversation. Thus cutlery is to be our lot. For now. He suddenly realized the audacity of his comment, though it was meant quite innocently, and blushed. Ah, smiled Lydia, you see how difficult it is to talk of these matters? Perhaps they shall forever remain a mystery, for we are all so shy. Lawrence cleared his throat. Uh, I know that this will seem like obvious steering, he said, but I wrote to our pastor this afternoon about the possibility of your singing at his church, if you're agreeable. What would be a good day? Any day. Do you have a copy of your father's famous book here? He frowned. She smiled. What's the matter? Ouch, I think I have a sliver in my finger. The helm was wrenched from me so abruptly. Our level of comfort should not always be dictated by tradition, don't you think? Asked Lydia. Lawrence smiled. Do you know, I've often wondered what it would be like to have been raised by the beliefs I now hold. Rationality, open-mindedness, unencumbered questioning. Yet I meet such a product and find myself somewhat at a loss. You owe your father a great deal. I know it. He often told me that I would meet a good deal of people who are embarrassed by what I take for granted. Do not despise them, he said, but study them well, for your ease has risen from their discomfort. Admirably put. Should I stick a pin through my chest and spread my arms like a butterfly? Lydia leaned forward, suddenly earnest. Yet in the face of what we see, of what we would like to discover, we should feel no shyness. And if we find ourselves shy, it should be the heel that spurs us on, for we are never shy of anything but our truest selves. Lawrence stared at her silently for a moment. Do you think that's true? I can prove it, said Lydia, sitting back. When we met this afternoon, what did you feel? Lawrence swallowed. What I thought was that you were beautiful and I was a liar. Why? Because uh, I wanted to say it, but I, I thought it would be wrong. Why? Because it's not something one says so soon. Why? Lawrence thought for a moment. Because it aligns the moment of meeting into a kind of state that, that must either be rejected or accepted, and I don't like being rejected on first appearances. That is false, replied Lydia. What you offered was an appreciation of appearance. For me to accept or reject you on that alone, I would have to value appearance over reality, and that would be against my deepest beliefs. What you are saying now, that is real. I cannot reject that. I can disapprove or take offense, but I cannot reject it. I can only reject you if you reject yourself first. And now, asked Lawrence, unable to meet her eyes, do you take offense? One is never offended by truth, smiled Lydia, unless one prefers illusion. Lawrence took a deep breath, then laughed.
rubbing his beard. Then I am very glad you have come and I look forward to your stay. I am glad I came as well, said Lydia, leaning back in her chair and regarding him with pleasure. The intimate silence was broken by Kay's sudden entrance. Compared to Lydia, and despite her best efforts, she looked quite shabby. Kay stared at the table, curtsied, and went straight to her seat. Lawrence rose. Lady Serbs, my sister Kay. Lydia shook Kay's outstretched hand. Excuse me for being late, said Kay, but I'm famished. When will dinner be served? Dinner is waiting for Jonathan's arrival. And yours, said Lawrence. Kay frowned. Jonathan, who is that? Mr. Edsworth, a friend of Lady Serbs. Not to worry, he is, apparently, very informal and will not mind your attire. Kay glared at him, then rose. Oh, I will go and change. No, no, never mind, said Lawrence. We'll never get started if everyone keeps coming and going. Kay hesitated, then sat again. And they sat, the three of them, and a silence arose that seemed insurmountable. Kay slumped, aware of her shabby silhouette. Lydia leaned back unapologetically, and Lawrence felt a sudden surge of resentment towards his sister. "'Are you hungry?' he asked her finally. "'We are expecting more company later tonight, Lady Serbs. Have you heard?' "'No.' "'Well, we have embarked on a programme,' said Kay, her eyes bright, "'which was suggested by a woman Lawrence wronged a long time ago. Oh, he seems quite taken with her.' She has opened our eyes to the plight of the poor. Not your run-of-the-mill kind, either real cases. Mary O'Donnell, her name is. Oh, I hope you will meet her. She has many interesting things to say. She has opened our eyes, I think. Don't you think, Larry? Lawrence stared at his napkin, unfolding it with a grim slowness. Yes, she is interesting. Interesting? Now that's an understatement. She had Larry leaping about a field a few weeks past, and almost being struck, sad to say. We've had quite a time, you see. "'Almost struck?' asked Lydia, turning to him. "'Oh, yes,' said Kay. "'But he did not strike back. "'Did I commend you on that, Larry? "'There were hundreds of them on the ground. "'We are going into the business of saving souls, Lady Serbs.' "'A costly venture,' she commented, in many ways. "'No, I must disagree. "'It makes life worthwhile being in a position to help.' "'That may be so, but... "'Have you ever asked what puts you in such a position?' asked Lydia. Such questions, cried Kay. Altruism justifies privilege. It certainly does, given that altruism is the root of privilege. Excuse me? Language is a funny business, said Lydia, turning to Lawrence. It's odd that we so often think of altruism as kindness or generosity when those words exist already. This is an interesting exercise I set myself sometimes. Treat a word like a product and ask yourself, what demand does it satisfy? What differentiates it from related words? Well, that's a game to while away many empty hours, commented Kay. For instance, said Lydia, take the word altruism. Why don't we simply say kindness? Because altruism is more ethical imperative than charitable impulse. Lawrence replied uncomfortably, correct smiled Lydia. And what is the imperative? That we must help others at the expense of ourselves? 
If I understand the theory, said Lawrence, it is not a moral act unless it is, at least in part, at our own expense. Then the theory is that for an act to be moral, it must be self-destructive in some way, she asked. No, it must remain true to a hierarchy of values that states that the needs of others take precedence over our own needs, he replied. Yes, but what is the definition of others? asked Lydia. Does it include murderers? What is the definition of need? Is it whatever others want, regardless of the harm it may cause them or those around them? You see, without proper definition, altruism is merely a slave morality, an ethic of unquestioning subservience to the needs of others. <gasps> that is ridiculous, cried Kay, her cheeks coloring. The desire to help is not a confession of slavery. No, asked Lydia, turning to her. Then would you provide a murderer with a victim if he or she really needed to kill someone? Of course not. Then to help someone is to act in his or her best interests. Yet unless you are willing to say that there are no essential truths to human nature, you must admit that there is no conflict at all between one's own rational values and the rational values of others. I'm afraid you've lost me. Since we are all human, what is objectively good for one must be objectively good for all. Honesty is a universal value, therefore to lie to another is never a moral act. It can be, if that lie creates happiness for them, retorted Kay. Then you are saying that someone who prefers lies to truth is of greater value than someone who is completely honest. I have yet to meet such a creature, replied Kay. We are all liars of one sort or another. A contradictory theory, said Lydia. If it is true, then whoever says altruism is moral is lying. If it is false, then who benefits the most from believing we are all liars? Liars, of course, said Lawrence suddenly. Although it's not a real benefit at all, said Lydia, just a justification for further lies, for we are not all liars. Oh, no? asked Kay. Who, who, who paid for your dress, then? Excuse me? This dress you're wearing, you... you you chose it to highlight your beauty. It, it was well chosen, I applaud you. But but did you sweat for it in the fields? No. Your father bought it for you. Did he sweat for it in the fields? No. Yet yet you sit there and your whole demeanor cries out, Look how lovely I am. Yet it's all a lie if you didn't sweat for it. Kay, that's enough, cried Lawrence. No, said Lydia, that's all right. If it were true, Kay, that the absence of a perfect world damns all who act within it, then you were arguing against action of any kind. No, I argue against false morals. Are not all morals false, then, since injustice exists? All privileged claims to morality are false, replied Kay. Only the poor can claim goodness, for they alone remain uncorrupted. They heard a curse from the corridor, and the maid burst through the doors. Man, man to see you, sir, said Joyce hurriedly. She was pushed to one side, and the red-bearded man strode into the room. Oh, good! he said roughly. We ain't missed dessert. You'll need more places, though. There's more than four score of us. Lawrence rose, enraged. You were not invited into the house. There is food and shelter in the stables. Food and shelter in the stables, repeated the man, his eyes gleaming. Yet yeah, we've a taste for more than animals get. Delicacies and wallpaper are more on our minds, like this pretty cave here. You will get out, or I will throw you out, said Lawrence. Oh, spy the hero for the ladies, sneered the man. Full-fed how he snarls at the starved. There are more than willing enough, my man, 
said Lawrence. If you don't want to be helped, you are on the right path. Oh, but where's me manners? asked the bearded man. I should be bowing and scraping and saying, thank God for generous vermin like yourself. For vermin ye are, no mistaking it, for ye are a fire with a kindness ye never made. Lawrence strode forward. Larry, cried Kay, rising. The bearded man stood, outlined against the door, his face twisted in bitter spite. It was a portrait of sorts, a picture of loss as old as the world, a loss that goes far beyond poverty and opportunity, the kind of loss that makes circumstance the only sin. Lawrence stopped for a moment, arrested by the tone in his sister's voice, the pleading for recognition. As he looked at this man, with the eyes raised in a chaos of challenge and fear, he wondered at the possibility that a certain view might see all opportunities as a kind of death, a death of certainty about the world and one's place in it, and a deadly brand of empathy common to all who fail to draw the line between sympathy and judgment came to him, and he imagined what it must be like to be such a tortured soul, and the imagining entered his own soul. Larry, cried Kay, her hands trembling, we must do good, Yet indignation and anger seemed so certain, so easy. Lawrence took a deep breath, his heart pounding fast. To be in the position of being insulted is the most seductive substitute for morality. To throw off offense is to throw off the self so often. You have been hard done by, he whispered. And so I grant you one more chance. Go into the stables and eat, and sleep, and tomorrow we shall see if you can stare fortune in the face without snarling. Well, safe for us both, said the bearded man, obviously straining for a parting shot. Raging tears sprang to his eyes. They caught a diamond flash as he turned and lurched out of the door. Lawrence rang for Joyce. Have him escorted. See, he goes out quietly he said, taking a sudden breath, as if short of air. Larry, said Kay quietly, I am unutterably proud of you. He turned his head to look at her. His eyes swung past Lydia's face, where they paused for a moment, but there were too many honest questions in her eyes that he could not answer. And his eyes continued towards his sister, like starving twins. Chapter 18. The Earth Moves Mr. Stelson was a man of money. His skin looked as if banknotes were a sort of dust that had been ground into his pores from constant handling. He was the sort of banker who did not see money as an expression of sweat and dreams. To him, it was neat numbers in a column, a tidy pile in a vault, he enjoyed its presence and regretted its absence. Where it went, when it departed, interested him not at all, as long as some of it remained behind. Banking is savage on the aesthetics of dress. Whenever a youthful employee draped himself in a color which contradicted the fact that bankers must 
look either like undertakers or the master they serve, he was sternly admonished to appear more like Mr. Stelson. Those who entered his office for the first time were occasionally seen to rub their eyes in confusion, thinking themselves suddenly struck colorblind. The grayness of the office was relieved only by the piercing blackness of Mr. Stelson's suits, and the blackness of those suits was not relieved by any color in the banker's face, which could have set the discovery of circulation back several centuries had it been more widely observed. Of course, there was no guarantee that this had not already occurred, for he seemed so ancient that he could well have confused medieval physicians in his youth. Mr. Stelson had long given up surprise as a hopeless cause, but the visit paid to him by Lawrence and Kay that morning in late summer revised his opinion on the matter. They came in unexpectedly, jarring Mr. Stelson's concentration as he worked his way through a pile of figures. It would have struck several people stone dead to discover that Mr. Stelson was a revolutionary, but it was true. He so despised interruptions that he sometimes wished the whole aristocracy burned and buried, since they were the only ones able to enter his office unannounced. Lord Carvey, he said slowly, rising. Lawrence thought for a moment that Mr. Stelson really did want to kill him. He had forgotten that this was the banker's habitual expression. Mr. Stelson, said Lawrence as they all sat down, please welcome my sister Kay. We have come because I have decided to change the nature of my inheritance. The banker frowned. And which aspect do you wish to change? I assume you have consulted your solicitor. Of course, said Lawrence. I wish to place half of my fortune at my sister's disposal. Mr. Stelson leaned back in his chair and drummed his fingers rapidly in front of his nose, as if he were trying to hypnotize himself, or them, or both. Quite a shift, he said finally. May I be so bold as to inquire of the reason? Well, it's certainly not the case that we have to justify ourselves to you, said Kay. Lawrence stared at her for a moment. All right, Kay. Why should we? What is the point of explaining ourselves to you, Mr. Stelson? Well, quite simply, replied the banker, ascertaining the possibility of enacting your plans. Excuse me? Oh, your father was quite clear. Watch my son, he said. He will try to do strange things. Let him proceed, only if he listens to common sense and practices frugal fiscal habits. You realize, of course, that your stipend is in no danger, but access to the general balance of your funds is quite well guarded until— Yes, my twenty-fifth birthday, which is today, interrupted Lawrence. Mr. Stelson paused. His thoughts were almost visible. Ah, yes, of course, these strange human rituals. Of course, he said finally. Although still relatively sound, your family fortunes have ebbed considerably over the past three generations, he said with the authority of personal knowledge. Your father's great-grandfather held a good deal of capital in gold, which dropped in value sharply after the conquest of the New World. 
Your grandfather single-handedly created the squireship of the Quentins by lavishing a large proportion of the remaining funds on young Gwendolyn. Your own father travelled to the point of excess, a very costly habit. In short, your fortunes are not what they once were. Now that you plan to hand over control of half your fortune to a woman who is scarcely well informed of business— if you will forgive me, madam, it is well within my right to ask the reason why. How is it your right? cried Lawrence. You are a banker. Clarification, replied Mr. Stelson shortly. I am a successful banker, and I did not get that way by distorting facts. You, Lord Carvey, are to be commended for your agricultural ability. It has helped your family fortunes somewhat, though what the results of that shall be I cannot say. But there has been a not inconsequential drain on your reserves by a certain Adam Footer, who has been given free rein on your allowance by you, and has spent a good deal of it on lumber procured at absurdly high prices." Furthermore, it has come to my attention that you are planning a social experiment of a decidedly haphazard nature, for which you have drawn up neither criteria of success nor plans of finance. Now, I would appreciate it if you would inform me of the nature of this experiment, and the projected income from its completion, or withdraw your funds from this bank and take them elsewhere, for I will not have my reputation compromised. And I warn you, Few reputable bankers will oversee your funds if they find your plans have met with my disapproval. But this is insane, said Kay. You work for us. No, replied Mr. Stelson evenly. I work for the increase of capital. That is my reputation. The reason why twenty-two percent of the higher London nobility trust their fortunes to my care— if you wish to destroy your fortune, you will not do so at my bank. There was a short pause as the siblings stared at the banker. All right, said Lawrence finally. We shall try to reason with you. He pursed his lips for a moment. Would you say, Mr. Stelson, that there are two types of capital? No, just a moment. There are the numbers on the ledger, that is a record of sorts, but... What is it a record of? Profit and loss, of course. Of course. But the source of the profit. And, and you should listen less skeptically, because I have a great deal of experience in this matter. Is the ability of people to maximize the resources at their disposal. I inherited failing lands, declining productivity, and apathetic tenants. I taught them how to farm better, and that was important. Nothing would have happened if they had not listened to me. I made them listen by talking of the future, of the possibilities of a better life. They listened because they wanted that better life and were willing to work to achieve it. That is the essential source of profit, the belief in better things, and the desire and ability to work to achieve them. Do you agree? I must know the purpose of the argument before I can give my opinion, replied Mr. Stelson. Maximizing profit involves the liberation of desire and effort, said Lawrence. This is the goal we have set ourselves. We are taking the hopeless and giving them hope. We are taking those who drain society's resources and teaching them that they too have the ability to achieve more. 
and the means by which this is to be achieved? Asked the banker. There are two ways, replied Kay. My brother will oversee the finances, and I will manage the compassion. It is more than opportunity that these people need. They, they also need love and, and faith in themselves. Lawrence will ensure that the opportunities are created, and I will ensure that their souls are turned from bitterness to hope. Mr. Stelson stared at her. I would repeat my question to you, if I thought you could muster a rational reply. I just have, cried Kay. This is by its very nature an undecided approach. I, 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 I cannot outline how one best injects hope into a human soul. But I will tell you this, if we cannot achieve this, then all expenditures in the creation of opportunity will be utterly in vain. I agree, replied the banker. That is the root of my objection. I am not unaware of the matters of the soul. However, opportunities exist already for those with the ambition for something better, as you put it. And the presence of this desire in the soul has in my experience, little to do with prior circumstances. I've had men in here who came from backgrounds that would make even the most dissolute shudder, yet I have not hesitated to approve their request for loans, for they have the stamp of this ambition clearly branded on their foreheads. I have also denied loans to the wealthiest and best educated. Your grandfather was only one example— because they display an utter lack of this desire. It is in the sovereign consciousness that ambition is born, in the will of the individual, and if you believe that warm thoughts and free food can create what is essentially a personal integrity of the very highest order, you are gravely mistaken. Then what you're saying is that no one can ever truly help another human being, demanded Kay. Precisely. But I will say something more, which is that those with the most desire to help are always those in most need of help themselves. Kay's eyes narrowed. That is almost criminal. I have no desire to argue this. You have used a good portion of my valuable time as it is, said Mr. Selson, and you have made my choice all the clearer. I see that you are willfully committed to this course, a course which I predict will end in utter disaster, and since that is my evaluation of the outcome, you will close your accounts with me and go elsewhere. What? cried Lawrence. Your bank has managed our family's finances for eight generations. You swallowed the improprieties of my father's line without complaint. Not so, said Mr. Stelson slowly. Not without complaint. Nevertheless, we continued to, to bank here. We wish to simply divide our finances. You see that as just grounds for jettisoning us? That, that is incredible. Your ancestors wasted their capital on themselves, which is always a controllable disaster, being as it is limited by the individual's capacity for consumption. I know all about your plans, even what you have patently avoided telling me. To destroy capital for the sake of one's own foolish whims is one thing. It makes a banker shudder, but not lose sleep, for life is finite. 
but to pledge one's resources against the inequities of the whole world, against the personal choices of others, is to utterly destroy the limitations of loss. I know that you are young and want power over men's souls. You call this compassion, but it is not. And I also know that you will not listen to me for the very reason that you have not discovered this. Thus I know that... Were I to approve this plan and lend my support, I would be a mere spectator to the most gruesome kind of carnage, and I have neither the stomach nor the desire to partake in such cruelty. What? said Lawrence, his face pale. Why do you say that we desire power? Larry, how can you ask such a question? We shall do the right thing, said Kay, rising, though the skies fall. If the skies fall... "'Is it the right thing?' asked Mr. Stelson evenly, staring at her. At lunch, Lawrence was decidedly fidgety. His beard seemed to itch him, and he kept glancing at the door. Kay observed him sipping her thin soup. "'You are faltering, Larry,' she said. "'I feel uneasy,' he said, looking away. Oh, Larry, he's a banker. He knows nothing of the soul. Do you really think so? Is that a rhetorical question, or do you have something to say? She asked, putting her spoon down. Ever since we began this project, he said, I've had the feeling of being pushed. I felt pushed into the initial decision, and, and, and now I feel that I'm sort of coasting and... I'm losing the power to judge what is happening or, or, or where we are going. You believe that I pushed you into this? No, not at all. That's not it at all. It was something... Oh, it's so stupid to talk about it as if it were a kind of possession. It was as if I were being shoved from behind by an invisible hand, but every time I turned around, so to speak, I could see nothing behind me. It was your conscience, that's all said Kay. There's nothing strange in that. Actually, and, and this is the complicated part, it wasn't my conscience, which was itself striving against these impulses, but a sort of idea similar to what you expressed in Mr. Stelson's office, that we are doing the right thing though the sky should fall, and that to some degree we expect it to fall, and that doesn't concern us. You really listened to him, said his sister, shaking her head. I am a little disappointed, though I suppose I shouldn't be. Why not? Because you are a man, and men can only think of power as a means to personal gratification. Women, on the other hand, seek power in order to help others. And this helping has no personal gratification to you? Oh, I see, she said. If I answer yes, then I'm obviously in need of help, and if I answer no, I shall not be believed. Then which is it? asked Lawrence. It is something quite different, said Kay, spearing a sausage, though I wouldn't expect you to understand it. Please, tell me. Kay smiled. If we are to be dealing with souls, which is my end of the business, then my criteria for success shall be quite different from yours. You get the looms built, find a few buyers, keep everyone fed, and you have succeeded. For me, success is quite different. I wish to mould souls like a potter moulds his clay. Don't look so surprised, Larry. I've never talked about anything else. We are not the first to believe in love and charity. Religion has demanded the same thing for thousands of years. 
yet we look around the world and see precious little of it. What does this mean other than that the soul of man still needs a lot of work? Even with the absolute incentives of punishment and reward, religion has achieved less than nothing. There is still war and poverty, hatred and selfishness. Perhaps it is the deformity of original sin, but I, I don't think so. Larry frowned. You don't? No. Personally, I believe it is because people have not been forced to love each other. It's very sad, Larry. The soul in a state of freedom is a selfish, grasping thing, able to pass a starving man in a ditch because it is late for a card game. Freedom has not sufficed. The threats of religion were never really believed because death is a mystery and procrastination an inevitability. We have to try something else. We have to create a world where the soul is forced to adapt itself to goodness. This means rewarding selflessness and punishing selfishness. This means forcing men to live for the sake of others, to remind them and drive them and force them until they hold their own desires as illusory evils. And, of of course, this requires both power and the will to use it. Yet it cannot ever be said that I am acting for myself. I would prefer a nice husband and, and, and happy children. I do not desire anything for myself, as Mother constantly informs me. I just happen to believe that I have a responsibility. Kay smiled again and popped a piece of bread into her mouth, chewing vigorously. But then I'm just talking because you seem concerned. I, I hope I haven't upset you. No, replied Lawrence, breaking his last piece of bread. I understand. Power has been used before, but never for the good. It's nothing but an infernal prejudice. Perhaps you're right, a peculiar manifestation of male pride. I feel I have these doubts in order to be absolutely committed once I have mastered them. I have never doubted your need to be committed, Larry, replied Kay, putting down her napkin. Now, would you mind getting the bill? Chapter 19 A Confession Before Beauty It's just up here, said Lawrence, giving Lydia a last helping hand up the hill. Sorry it was such an arduous climb, but it's on the way to the church, and it's worth it. That much, I promise you. Lydia clambered over the final rocks and straightened her back, breathing deeply. Lifting her head, she gazed out at the view. Oh, my, she murmured. It was as if nature had laid out a banquet for the eyes to feast on. The hill dropped away steeply for a hundred yards or so, its base burrowing under the cloudy treetops. The small patch of wood stretched away, thinning slightly. Beyond it lay distant rows of green fields, neatly marked off by low stone walls. A winding road stretched between the occasional cottage, and on the horizon low clouds hung like enormous sheep grazing on the meeting of land and sky. A gentle breeze floated up the cliff, warming their faces. Lawrence watched Lydia, enjoying the view of her enjoying the view. It is unusual to see someone so unconscious of observation, he thought. So unusual that one almost feels ashamed for seeing such an absence of masks, as if one has crept up on a loved one while she sleeps, in order to find out if she whispers your name. He felt a sudden rush at the thought and stepped back from the ledge. 
How far do your land stretch? Lydia asked finally. From the base of this cliff to the horizon. Well, a little beyond, but but not much, replied Lawrence. Quite a stretch. Well, you know, looking at it, it seems quite large, but that's sort of an optical illusion. When you have to walk it end to end every week, you realize that it's actually endless, grinned Lawrence, sweeping the horizon with his hand. She smiled. In London, it's considered a good view if your window doesn't look under someone else's. I think that's quite sad. I mean, I recognize the economic necessity of hordes in close quarters, but I wouldn't live there for the world. That's because you value a certain physicality of view, said Lydia. Hmm? You stand here and say, ah, look how far I can see. But that's only your eyes. In London, you can see as far as intelligence can stretch, if you know the right people. And that is far beyond the horizon of sight. What was that like, growing up with such intellects at the dinner table? I ask because when I first traveled about four years ago, I I met such brilliant people that I felt I had a, a long way to go to even begin catching up. My intelligence still doesn't feel naturally acquired sometimes. How to begin after such a beginning, mused Lydia, staring at the view. Have you ever noticed that the traits you admire most in people are the very traits they seem most ashamed of? It's an odd thing when you think about it. At our table, food was often forgotten in the pursuit of truth. And philosophy, well, it should never be spoken in the parlor. The dining room is its best arena, for it is essential nutrition. Do you see that, Hawk? It's odd. Many times when I talk with people and the conversation drifts to principles or absolutes, they positively freeze. They get very tense and call me judgmental for believing that such and such is so and no other way. And it is quite interesting because I believe that one should never be unduly upset by self-evident things. Lydia glanced at Lawrence. But I've thought about it And I believe that, for most people, to believe that something, anything, is absolutely true is to accept the fact that they have been lied to for most of their lives, and that is a hard thing to accept. I also think that there is a natural division in mankind between the thinkers and the doers. I don't mean that making a cart requires no thought, but that it requires quite a rigorous process of abstraction to create the social or political conditions wherein making a cart is possible, or desirable, or achievable. A cart carries goods and people, of course, yet that requires such things as property rights and the right to freedom of movement. That's what I mean by the division. Some people build the carts, others build the conditions for carts. Lydia shook her head and laughed suddenly. (sighs) I'm sorry, where did we begin? I'm quite made fun of because I can't string two connected thoughts in a neat row. If it's chaos, it's pleasant chaos, smiled Lawrence. If only my Aristotelian tutor had believed that. So, tell me, where does the singing fit in? Here, have a seat. The rock should be warm and it won't stain. Lydia sat down. Ah, the singing. La, la, la. Yes, where does that fit in? Somewhere in the realm of amused tolerance, I would say. 
You see, everything in my circle centers around intelligence. Oh, that Lydia, they say. She's got herself a little hobby to rest her mind from the pursuit of knowledge, like hunting or, or fishing. Technically difficult opera they like because it shows skill, but if I were to sing a simple ballad with longing and passion, oh, that would be quite tawdry, quite too enthusiastic. It seems that they can only set their mind free by cutting it off from the heart, and I can't see the sense of that. Yet they can carry a thread of logic about a thousand miles longer than I can, so perhaps there's something in it. Don't think I haven't noticed you getting sleepy, she said suddenly, turning to look at him. His eyes flew open and he shook his head and stretched. You're quite wonderful to listen to. Very relaxing. So I talk and you nap. And what what if I want to nap? Will you talk me to sleep? I'm not feeling too talkative right now. I'm enjoying digesting your thoughts. I am surprised. Why? asked Lawrence. You think most interestingly. No, I'm surprised that you are not in a talkative mood. I often talk when something is bothering me. He pursed his lips and shook his head. What could be bothering me? That man, last night. Lawrence stiffened slightly. I'm... I'm sorry you had to see that. I'm even more sorry that you didn't, said Lydia softly. Lawrence glanced at her, and the intensity of her sympathy struck him like a blow, especially as she had just been so merry. Don't be ashamed, said Lydia, putting her hand on his forearm. I'm quite confused, he said. I don't blame you. Why? Lawrence stood suddenly, his eyes burning, and looked at her. I do have something on my mind, he said, taking a step back towards the cliff. But it it seems odd to tell you, he raised his hands. It's a, it's a breach of... I've only just met you. It's it's not right. She sat very still, watching him. There's something that has been preying on me, but it's so senseless. We have to help them. I know that. It, it, it's right. But I thought I was a good man before when I was helping them grow more crops. That That felt good. This doesn't. Why not? Because, oh... I suppose because I didn't earn my power to help them, because I am privileged. But you always had the power. Why is it different now? I've never considered my power in this way before. But even if your power is unfair, how many use their privilege in this way? Asked Lydia. Not many, of course. Your father, me. But there's a kind of suffering in the world. You can't stare it in the face and remain the same person. What I did before, the crops, can't touch that kind of suffering. But I've, I've seen it. I, I must do something. Oh, those faces. But I rebel, that's the truth. I rebel against it, and I don't know if that's right. He halted, agonized. Go on. I feel impure, Lydia, so help me God, I feel impure when I am spat in the face and cursed and humiliated. Perhaps that's because I I want to take the easier way, I I don't know. The part of me loathes the poor, not not the poor, but this kind of poor. I know those who've done better, even with nothing. Adam Footer is one. But, But then... 
Perhaps there is more to it than meets the eye. Perhaps there is a poverty I don't understand. Perhaps they cannot do better. I don't know. What do your instincts tell you? Asked Lydia. Lawrence shook his head. My instincts are nothing because I'm privileged. What do they tell you anyway? Lawrence took a deep breath. If I am honest, I believe that they are worthless, hateful beasts. And if there is any justice in the world, they deserve their fates. And you? Are you a worthless beast? (laughs) I don't know. You're lying, Lydia said. Everyone knows. How much power have I earned? Where would I be had I started out as they did? I will never know. How popular are you with your peers? Oh, if I'm honest. They hate me. Why? Weren't you listening, cried Lawrence. I don't have any answers right now. I am confused. Lydia made no reply. She sat, hugging her knees, fighting her own reaction, seeing all the answers in a blaze of light, but uncertain of how to tell him. I'm sorry, he said suddenly, lowering his head. This was utterly uncalled for. Please excuse me. It's all right. Lydia raised her eyes. I'm just not sure how to respond. This was utterly uncalled for, he repeated. I'd no right to burden you with these thoughts, he smiled. You are, after all, paying a social visit. But I will say one thing, though, said Lydia, rising. You are a thoroughly modern man, because you are a good man, who does good things, but has no idea what goodness is. Now, there is much more of the novel to go. I'm afraid this is as far as I got in the audiobook, but please go to justpornovel.com to get the rest of the book, and I look forward to your feedback. Thank you.